Chapter 47 The hamlet of Eastridge was a scattered arrangement. Two dozen houses were spread across a broad glen, reaching all the way up a gentle slope to the prominent ridge. One of the homes was near the road. Its crooked walls were capped with a mossy thatch that was dark with age and rot, and hung almost to the ground. It made the house seem like a suspicious old man, drawn up under his drooping hat, protective of his solitude, hostile to strangers. Within the building, Adam thought, there was quite possibly just such an old man. The only indication of life in the whole settlement was the gabbling from the goose house around the back and the smoke that billowed out of a chimney a little ways ahead. The chimney, he thought with relief, appeared to belong to a small inn. He noticed some of the soldiers pointing in the direction of the goose house and muttering. They would pay it a visit before leaving here. He was not surprised. The coarse morals of these men had begun to speak more loudly than their uniforms. They were not soldiers, at least not at heart. They would only serve and show discipline that was personally convenient. As he rode, this preoccupation with the soldiers took the edge off his observations, and he did not pay enough attention to the stillness of the hamlet, its eerie lifelessness. The inn had once had a sign declaring it to be the Never Hasty, an apt name for a place so far removed from the main thoroughfares, but whether by mischief or chance a good portion of the sign had been broken off, and all that remained was the word Sty. The Sty, then, was a small inn, and might have been called neat, if clean. But it was not. The burly innkeeper, whose scalp was thinly decorated with dark, oily strands of hair, and whose mouth was just as thinly decorated with dark teeth, did not appear to have bathed for most of his adult life. A glance around the parlour suggested that he treated his inn with the same philosophy. Spilled and dropped food lay unmolested on the floor, and tables hid under generous coats of greasy smears. Even the soldiers looked uncomfortable. The captain glanced out at the darkening drizzle, and when he turned back, he was scowling. Lodgings and meals for one night, he said. Party of eighteen. The innkeeper was clearly unaccustomed to visitors. His unfriendly eyes grew white with surprise, and he shook his head. Closed he said. Aidan was amused to see that his hands were shaking. These rural folk would seldom have seen such a large detachment of soldiers. Your establishment is empty, and we are here on the prince's business, Senbert returned. So you are now open. The innkeeper's worry mounted. No staff, no food, he said in clipped, almost foreign tones. Clearly he was a reticent sort. He held up his hands, but the captain was not to be turned. You two, Sandbird said to Aidan and Liru, get into the kitchen and make sure there is something to eat tonight. The kitchen was everything Aidan had feared. Most pots still contained the grimy, mouldy leftovers of whatever they had last cooked. All had a coating of ashy remains at the bottom that required the attentions of hammer and chisel. Aidan, after all his cooking for Osric, knew what to do. 
He set about cleaning and chopping potatoes, carrots and cabbage, while the innkeeper, who had not bothered to give his name or ask theirs, was out back, catching chickens. Aidan was sure they were alone, but he remembered Fergal's warning, so he suggested that they practice some sulis. Liru caught his meaning and agreed. His use of the language was halting. It translated to, We very trouble. Tomorrow we ride. No more people around. Liru's was only slightly better. I do plan. Tomorrow we rest, not ride. Plan? Aidan asked. Better you forgetful. No. Ignorant. Rest? Why, uh, boss soldier agree rest? Nice place, she said with a smile, indicating the inn. She would tell him no more. The chicken broth was not the best meal he had ever prepared, but for cold, tired travellers the smells were irresistible. In spite of Liru's odd taste in herbs, they eventually reached an agreement. There were no thanks offered from the soldiers, but neither were there any complaints. Culver and Fergal hurried through their meals and retired directly. Aidan wondered about the look Fergal had given him when his bowl had been set on the table. It was as if the twinkling eyes were saying something from within the dark forest of hair and beard, but he had no idea what. Liru, strangely enough, was not worried tonight about the soldiers. She retired early, too. Aidan struggled to fall asleep. Something was going dreadfully wrong with his innards. At first he thought it might be a fever from the day spent in the cold, but then, as his stomach rebelled and muscles began to seize, he recognized the symptoms of poisoning. In spite of his cleaning, something in one of those pots had managed to ruin the meal. There would be no sleep for him. He groaned and rolled and emptied his belly into the chamber pot several times. By morning he was a wreck. It was light when his door crashed open. Senbert stood wobbling in the frame, clutching his midriff, head slick from sweat. He opened his mouth to speak, but his eyes took in the chamber pot and Aidan's shattered state. So, it wasn't you then, he said. Should never have trusted the kitchen in this filthy. A groan of pain interrupted his words, and he staggered away, leaving the door open. Aidan remained in his bed for the rest of the day. He heard some raised voices, but they were almost watery, like they belonged to a kind of half-suspended dream. The sun travelled across the room and warmed him when it reached the old, smelly straw of his pallet. The poison began to work its way from his body, and he felt clarity returning to his thoughts. Rest, he told himself. He wondered how Liru was coping. Then something that had puzzled him came back to mind. The awful herb she had added, an herb she said she had picked. That sour milk smell. It was the weed she had found the previous night. Liru had poisoned the broth. Then he remembered Fergal's look of recognition and his quick retreat. He and Culver had probably gone to purge themselves as soon as the show of eating was over. Liru, too. 
Why had he been left to suffer? Then he recalled Senbert at his door and understood. After that confrontation over the muddy boots, suspicion would naturally have fallen on him. By evening, he was on his feet, but shaky. He went down to the kitchen. There was no more cooking being done. Sorry-looking soldiers appeared briefly in the common room, but nothing was taken from the food stores, not even wine. They nibbled on bread from their packs and retired early. Aidan ventured down again later, but finding nobody around, puffed his way up the stairs that shook as much as his limbs, and dug out some hard biscuits from his saddlebags. It was a poor meal, but perhaps all his stomach could endure. That night he slept soundly, and come the next morning, most of his discomfort was gone. He was woken by the sergeant banging on his door and telling him to be ready within the hour. At the stables, there was a commotion around Fergal. Despite Culver's annoyance and shouting injunctions, so intimidating that even the soldiers stood back, the heavy assistant was unable to stay on top of the horse. Apparently, he had been poisoned and had not yet recovered from the effects. As soon as he was hoisted up the one side, he began to flow down the other, until the soldiers gave up and let him slide and drop on the ground like a discarded bag of sand. Leave him, the captain said. He is not critical to the quest. If he is not able to ride, he should return to the city. Without him, said Culver, I will be sorely disadvantaged. We shall have to wait until he has recovered. In the meantime, I want you and your soldiers to make a full inspection of this hamlet. There is something strange afoot here. We will not wait another moment, snapped Senbert. I can already feel the prince breathing down my neck. His orders were direct and made no mention of inspections. I want to get this over with as quickly as possible. Aidan exchanged a look with Liru. Get it over with. He doubted any of the soldiers had noted that detail, but he and Liru had certainly noted the way their captain spoke to the Chancellor. Nobody spoke to Culver with that tone. Senbert, however, hardly appeared to be himself. He was nearly frantic with whatever worries assailed him, and did not back down. He yelled at the sergeant, who bellowed at the soldiers, and the party moved out. It was the fifth day. Aidan had hoped to speak to Liru or Culver, but it was as though the soldiers had been instructed to keep them apart. The hamlet was as silent and empty as on their arrival. He looked around, wondering at this. At the very least, he would have expected to see a few doors slamming in acknowledgement of their presence, but there was neither sound nor movement as they left. What did Culver suspect? By mid-afternoon, they were beyond the last traces of civilization and were now cutting through the grassland. The light was softened by a thin veil of cloud, but otherwise the day was clear and still. They climbed to the top of a gentle rise, and Captain Senbert took a very long time as he surveyed the land. Aidan watched him. Was he looking for something more permanent than a night's lodging? An alder-clad dale about a half-mile to the north caught the captain's attention. He pointed and led the way down the slope 
Aidan considered calling to Liru and making a break from the soldiers, but the academy ponies would stand no chance against these hardy steeds. He felt drops start to trickle down his forehead as they chose the campsite. Liru walked her pony beside his while they watched the soldiers dismount. He had a wild idea, but before he could say anything to Liru, the sergeant took his horse's bridle firmly and waited for him to dismount and unpack. Carrying his saddlebags and bedroll, he made for a tree some distance from the center of the clearing, where he dropped his things and sat. Liru sat down beside him. She stared at the ground as if she were about to strike it. What are we to do? she asked. First the prince, then Kalva and his servant. Now Osric has failed us. Osric has not failed us. We are still here. For how long? I see murder in these men's eyes. Aidan could not disagree. He cast his gaze around, trying to appear bored. How fast can you run? he asked. She looked up. Considering what they all ate two nights ago, I might be able to outrun them. How about you? I'm still aching, Aidan said, not making any effort to hide the annoyance he felt at not being warned. But I made sure I ate a lot on the way here. I'll be able to get up this slope behind us faster than any of these armoured soldiers. I think it'll be too steep and crumbly for some of them to climb at all. If we can reach the top of the hill, we can drop into the valley on the other side. It has many rocks and crevices, many places to hide. Finding us there at night will not be easy. Very well. Should we run from here or try to walk first and hope they don't notice? Aidan looked around again. The captain is missing. Now is a good time. We'll get up and walk slowly until we are called back. Then run. He stopped talking as a young soldier with pocked skin and a mean eye approached from the side and tossed down an armload of firewood. Seems that you are sitting in my place, he said, and dropped heavily beside Aidan, filling the air with a reek of old sweat. And it looks like you have some of my stuff, too. He drew Aidan's little knife and held it up. Yes, I remember this knife. I'm going to make you apologize for taking it. Other footsteps drew closer, and Aidan recognized the loose-lipped soldier who had spoken to him on the first day. Rourke, the men called him. He was a large, powerful man, and apparently a notable swordsman. He sat so near to Liru that he was leaning against her. She tried to move, but he gripped her neck and held her in place. They took our spot, said the first soldier, and this thieving boy took my knife. See? Hold him while I search for more of my things. Rourke leaned over and gripped Aidan's neck while the first pushed struggling arms aside and dug through one pocket after another. The search revealed a few pebbles, some coins which were immediately recognized as stolen, and nothing else but the one thing that was nearly everything to Aidan. What's this? the soldier said, holding up the little leather case with the emblem of a sapling and a toadstool. 
This has paper in it. Ah, yes, I remember. I use it for starting fires. We can use a page now. Aidan screamed and struggled like a wild animal, but the men were too strong for him. His kicking and writhing did no more than draw laughter. Both men now held him with strong fingers. At the edge of his vision, something flashed. The soldier who had sat so close to Liru had given her access to his dagger. In a burst of movement, she drew it, plunged it into his leg, and darted from his grasp. The howl caused the other soldier to drop his guard. It was a momentary distraction, but it was all Aiden needed to plant an elbow in the man's nose and slip away. It tore him to leave the diary behind, but he knew there was no way he could wrestle it free and still make good his escape. He flew up the slope, springing from root to root where the soil was too soft, and darting through the undergrowth like a ferret. The uproar behind him was immediate. The mistake now would cost him his last chance at freedom. He caught up to Liru and sped past her to lead the way, choosing the quickest path, reading the ground as effortlessly as he might read the words of a story. Here he was at home, in a way that none of his peers would ever be. Liru mimicked how he moved from root to root, leapt upwards from the stems of trees, and spread his weight over crumbling soil when there were no better holes. The heavy churning of boots began to drop behind. Calls became shorter as the men found their lungs burning. Aidan was just beginning to think he could stop to catch his breath, when an arrow cut through the air and crunched into the bark of a tree near his head. He moved behind a screen of thick bushes and continued climbing. He was feeling the effects of the poison now, but he pushed on, leading Liru to just beneath the crest of the hill. The last twenty feet would leave them exposed, but as another arrow plugged into the soil near him, he realized that staying put was no option. We need to make a dash. Over the top, he managed between breaths. Liru nodded. She was panting too. Aidan kept his head down and led the way through the long grass. As they reached level ground, he broke into a full sprint over the exposed hilltop, Liru at his heels. But he had not made it halfway across when three mounted soldiers appeared on their right and cantered to intercept them. The distance closed. They were so near to freedom, but he knew they would not make it. Then he recognized the sound of a familiar voice calling his name. He looked up at the huge soldier, whose eighteen-hand-high charger stamped and ground to a halt before him. Aidan's wild eyes settled just enough for him to recognize the man. He sank down in the grass, rolled onto his back, and gave way to the exhaustion. Liru's terrified eyes appeared above him. He grinned and pointed at the soldier. General Osric, he gasped. Fergal and a tall, middle-aged woman in military uniform now joined the first three horsemen and dismounted. The woman showed impressive balance as she sprang from the saddle. The placement of her feet was precise. There was no tottering step. Her eyes were quick and they caught Aidan staring. Slender figures and long copper hair were hardly common sight within a military regiment. He wondered what kind of woman this was. 
Wait here with Fergal and Tyne, Osric ordered, and rode towards the centre of the hilltop with his two uniformed companions. Aidan had never before seen Osric fully armed. It was a frightening spectacle. He would have dwarfed standard weapons, so he bore bigger weapons, which he dwarfed anyway, and carried with the greatest of ease. His two companions, though not nearly as large as the general, were no less fierce or stern. Aidan now recognized them as Murta, a ranger captain, and the renowned commander Thormer. It was a high-ranking trio, and for any soldier, a terrifying one. Aidan saw a ragged group of pursuers crest the hilltop and stumble to a confused halt as they saw the three mounted officers. All in! bellowed the commander. Exhausted as they were, they scurried over and lined up. The rest of the soldiers did the same as they arrived. Captain Senbert was the last to appear, and he rushed to take a position at the head of his men. Osric left the commander in charge and walked his horse back to where the others waited. Liru stepped close to Aiden. You never said he was that big. Osric dismounted with a thump. They all felt. Are you hurt? he asked. Aiden shook his head. Liru. The general dropped to a knee, and even then he was taller by several inches. She appeared confused. It was the first time Aiden had seen her fumbling for words. Sir, no. Thank you, sir. No, I am not hurt. You have nothing to fear from me, he said in a voice that even now rasped and growled. I'm not afraid, she said. It's just that I did not expect you to know my name or care what happened to me. He regarded her. After how you have been treated, I am not surprised. Nevertheless, my concern is sincere, and if any man here attempts to harm you, I shall hang him from the nearest branch. It is shameful that you are not given a woman for company, so I have brought someone very special to escort you. You will have heard of Tyne, daughter of Elian, during your studies. The tall lady offered Liru a kind smile. A strange croak came from Liru's mouth. She blinked and coughed and tried again. Thank you. It was hardly more than a squeak. For once, her complete self-possession was crumbling. Aidan guessed it was the unexpected kindness in the wake of such prolonged dread. He stepped back and gestured for Osric to hug her. The big general's face registered a combination of confusion and panic. Aidan tried again, but by now the moment was past, and Liru's display of emotion was gone as quickly as it had appeared. A summer cloudburst, over in a blink. Osric got to his feet. Now, much as I would like to bind that lot and send them directly to the barrack prison, we are going to need them very soon. There is trouble in these hills that will find us, and I'm afraid we now urgently require numbers. Even soldiers like these will understand the need to unite against a common enemy. Commander Thormer is explaining the situation to the men. I'll do the same with you, but first we need to find a defensible position. If you are camped in the comfortable and hopelessly exposed dale ahead of us, you will need to collect your horses and equipment with some haste. 
Osric, there's one thing I need to ask you now, said Aidan. Osric raised an eyebrow. The soldier with the scarred face, that one, fourth in line, emptied my pockets and took Calry's diary. Osric turned and roared across the hilltop. Commander! Thorma turned around and the whole line of soldiers flinched. Send me the fourth in line now! Thomas snapped an order at the soldier, who saluted and ran towards Osric. He came to attention somewhat further away than was customary. His face was pale, hands shaking. He looked ready to faint. Osric closed the distance with two giant strides. His voice was not loud, and it was all the more frightening for it. Do I need to ask questions, or are you going to come out with it? The soldier swallowed. I took some of the boy's things, sir. I was only toying with him, though. I'll give them back as soon as we get down to the campsite. Good, because, as a soldier, thieving from those entrusted to your care is a hanging offence. The soldier's knees were shaking. He knew. Osric lowered his large head until his eyes hovered in front of a pair that were blinking rapidly. Don't give me so much as a hint of doubt about you, he growled, taking his time over the words, letting them pour in. The soldier was leaning away, almost falling over. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Thank you, sir. Osric dismissed him with a thrust of his chin, and the man scampered away. He remained looking at the line before Thorma, frowning. Aiden was close enough to hear him mutter to Culver, who had come alongside. I recognize most of those soldiers. They will give us trouble before the end. Culver nodded his grey head. Now, Osric said to the others, let us inspect the lay of the land and find a better position. We have much to do. This night, I'm afraid, will be a desperate one. Chapter 48 It was the first time Aidan had watched Osric at work as a field general. In Casteth, the man had always appeared too big, too stern, too calculating, and far too intimidating. But here he belonged. Here he was to those behind him what a reef is to a small island in a tempest. The peril of their situation rose like dark water, and broke against his unmoving form, then reached the others only as a deflected spray. The colossal depth and gravity of his confidence, and the breadth of his planning, however urgent the situation, formed a shelter behind which the soldiers clustered. But though the disorder of mindless fear was held at bay, the urgency was felt by all. No observer would have missed the frantic haste of preparations in the dwindling light. Rushing past each other, they hoisted and lugged boulders to a stone wall that grew beneath a rocky overhang. It was the ranger captain who had found the broad hollow in the rock. Though it was a vast improvement on their previous camp, it was no fortress. It had one strategic advantage. The hollow sank into a wall of a narrow valley, so the entrance could only be stormed from across the riverbed over an uneven, rocky approach. Once the wall had reached a height of three feet— the horses were tethered at the back, near the supplies. 
The men set about arming themselves and filling their tight stomachs as best they could. Osric insisted on it. The preparations had been exhausting, and they would need their strength before the night was done. Osric dropped a heavy sack at Aiden's feet. For you and Liru, he said. You mentioned that Dunn had not armed you properly. With a sigh of relief, Aiden pulled out shields, helmets, plated hauberks, braces, gloves, blades, and bows. He wondered if he might need to help Liru, but she strapped on the armor and checked her weapons as comfortably as a cook arranging kitchenware. Aiden had been given a short sword, a mid-sized shield that could be buckled to an arm, freeing both hands, a long dagger, a knife, and a choice of crossbow or bow. He opted for the bow. Loading a crossbow under pressure was not something he enjoyed. The daggers were like needles, the sword a razor, and it suddenly struck him that this was to be the first time he would fight with sharp tips and edges. These were not training weapons. They would do a lot more than bruise the enemy. He dropped the sword back into its scabbard with a frown and sat on the cold floor, head in hands. The last time he had travelled through this area, some four years back, he had formed a purpose, to stand against tyrants. Tonight he would do just that. He should be brimming with fire, but all he felt was the desperate hope that his weakness would not announce itself, not with Liru, Osric, and Culver to see, and soldiers who would spread the word to every occupant of the barracks. Osric called him. Lyra was there, waiting. You two should know more than the outlines, Osric said. After you left the town, Fergal remained under the pretense of illness. As soon as you were gone, he located the innkeeper, a fen spy, bound him and made a tour of the hamlet. It was not just the condition of the inn that had kindled his and Culver's suspicions. Perhaps you noticed it. There was only one chimney putting out smoke on the day of your arrival. A cold day. He found what they had expected. All the homes were empty, their occupants' bodies hacked and hidden in shallow graves. Under interrogation, the spy revealed that it was the work of Fen war scouts who had made Eastridge a base for their operations. The worst hornet's nest we've ever found. You were very lucky to arrive when the scouts were engaged out to the west. Even as we left the hamlet, we saw a large party returning. How are they not on your tail, then? Aidan asked. They were. Murta's bow gave them cause to stay well back. I suspect they are waiting for the rest of their number, to gather and prepare for a full assault. These men are ruthless, but they are not hasty or foolish. They will attack in strength. It will be their intention to kill us to a man, and I fear to a woman in order to preserve their secret. Will the innkeeper not give away our numbers and weak condition? We were food poisoned, he added in response to raised brows. He avoided looking at Liru. Ah, I thought the men appeared worn for only a few days out. But no, the information will not have been passed on. The innkeeper was party to capital crimes. He was sentenced and hanged. Osric showed no emotion, and Aidan glimpsed how vast was the difference between this war-hardened general and himself. He could not even stand up to a corrupt student. 
His eyes dropped to the floor. Aidan, said Osric. There were women and children buried behind those homes. Even babies. These men will show no mercy, not even to Liru. If they defeat us tonight, more innocents will die brutal deaths in other towns. The arm of justice punishes, and it protects. Holding it back suspends both punishment and protection. If you find it difficult to swing your blade, think of all those who stand behind you. Aidan understood it well, but Osric had misread the doubt in his eyes. Conscience was not where his worry lay. It was better, though, to let the misunderstanding remain. Much better. Osric could not know. Neither could Liru. He tried to steal his resolve and turned to her. Are you going to be able to defend yourself? he asked. That depends on what I face. She drew the slender sword that Osric had brought her. This is a good weapon, she said, holding it out and catching the pale gleam of a dying sky on its blade. But the greatest advantage I have is that I will be underestimated. How do you feel about killing? I would willingly kill men who slaughtered families, as General Osric said. But I do not fight for your prince. He has betrayed me, and it will not be forgotten. He's not my prince, Aidan said, his voice rising with his temper. You keep calling him my prince as if I have some part in this betrayal. Then who is your leader? she retorted, her own voice rising on a tide of anger and fear. Who are your people? What are you even training for? Aidan opened his mouth twice, but no words came out. He turned away from her and moved to an empty section of broken rocks where he sat, stood, pulled his hair, sat again, and bit his fists until the dusk began to pool in the back of the cave and hid him from view. Osric had spent the afternoon preparing for many contingencies. He now went over final instructions with the soldiers, making sure each man knew how to act. The ill discipline that had characterized the men up until now was gone. Smoke in the wind. They stood straight, attention fixed on their general. It was more than respect. Osric, as frightening as he was, represented survival. Their shallow breathing and wild eyes revealed how few of them had been tried in battle. And the odds tonight would be bad, even for experienced campaigners. Murta, the ranger captain, returned. He slipped into the cave like a panther. Aidan had been watching him over the afternoon and was no longer surprised that he was known as Captain Murder. It seemed he was only pretending to be civilized and that he was barely accustomed to the society of others. He peered around him with the complete focus and deadly intensity of a hunting cat, and though he was not a big man, his prowling movements told of uncanny strength. Aidan overheard his report to Osric. I counted forty he said, but there could be as many as fifty. They are well armed, all mounted. They will reach us soon. Their armor is mostly plated leather, but they carry heavy weapons. Here are two I picked up. He held out a deep, leaf-bladed sword and a large mace. Aidan wondered if the previous owners had even seen their attacker. Osric felt and tested the weapons, asked a few more questions about the armor and other weapons, and passed them on to Thorma, 
who examined them and handed them along to the rest. Aidan dried his palms again. He and Liru waited on the far left of the cave, in a slight recess. Murta and Tyne stood in front of them. To the right were Osric and six soldiers, and further down, Thormer commanded the remaining men. Tyne and Liru made a very careful inspection of the captured Fen armor. Aidan spotted the thieving soldier, known to him now as Holt, standing nearby. Holtz had returned Aidan's belongings, and even made a gift of his own dagger in apology. After Osric's reprimand, he had looked genuinely sorry, as well as heartily frightened for his skin, and had promised he would do what he could to look after Aidan and Lero in the battle. Aidan had seen this kind of change before. Some men could be so pliable under the influence of leadership that they all but mimicked the leader's character. It was quite a change from Senbert to Osric, and Aidan was not complaining. Holt looked over now and saluted. Aidan returned the gesture. The other soldier, the one Liru had stabbed, had made no apology. The wound appeared not to be troubling him much, and Aidan had even caught him grinning at Liru. He wished now that they had spoken of it to Osric, but he knew the soldier would claim he had only intended to be friendly. He would accept a reprimand and then haunt them with his eyes. Such men were as slippery as eels and just as poisonous. Osric was completing his final inspection and stopped before Aidan and Liru. He spoke quietly. It is best that I do not stand near you, as I shall probably be targeted. Murta and Tyne will try to shield the attack, but it is possible that men will pass them. Liru, if you have not yet told Aidan how far your training reaches, now is the time. He will need to know how to work with you. How do you know about my training? she asked. I thought only our order knew of it. All on the War Council know. And I will not be tried or punished for speaking of it? Not under these circumstances. Not to Aidan. You'd best not speak of your final purpose, mind you. Only your weapons training. Aidan couldn't help feeling a little offended that secrets were being kept from him. Liru's abrupt and snappy manner wasn't helping either. She drew him away from listening ears and explained. We are taught many of the same weapons as you. I think you will have guessed that already. But using different styles. With the sword, our technique involves much movement. It is almost like dancing. We try to move out of the line of effective strikes. We only block when desperate, otherwise we dodge deflect and counterattack, almost always with the point, and often for the hands and arms. Even gauntlets have chinks. Think of a bird attacking one of those giant spiders. It sounds like it would be best if I took the initial attack, and you pecked from the sides. That is one of the ways it is meant to work. With your style of fighting, what are your weaknesses? I will tire quickly, if I have to keep up that kind of movement. The uneven ground here might work against me, and I am light, so even with a shield, a direct hit will stun me or knock me down. Aidan considered it. We can deal with one of those problems by clearing the ground of rocks, he said. And they set to work. Soldiers checked the preparations for the last time and took their positions. 
Then Osric called for silence, and the waiting began. The last traces of day vanished from the sky, and night fell. A half-moon, hidden by clouds, gave a dull, pale light that made shadows indistinct and shapes unclear. The view from the cave mouth revealed a boulder-strewn valley, and on the far side of the river a sheer rock wall. It meant that the cave could not be attacked from a distance or from cover. Even archers would need to show themselves before being able to release a single arrow. Aidan searched the shadows between boulders. Sometimes he thought he saw movement. Once he was sure there were shapes crawling over the whole riverbed. But then all was still for so long that he decided he must have imagined them. Water gurgled. Insects screeched. A pair of wooden pigeons cooed a ghostly duet nearby. The grip of Aidan's sword was now so damp he was sure it would fly from his hand at the first swing, but he dared not release the handle to dry it. There was a sound, a single click as a pebble dropped down onto the ledge in front of the cave. Dimly, mostly in silhouette, he saw Osric pointing up. Loose pebbles and coarse sand had been strewn on the crest of the rock wall. Movement above the cave was now betrayed. Osric made a looping hand signal, and two soldiers readied themselves beside the horses. Another pebble dropped on the far side. Then a gentle hiss of sand spoke from several points along the newly built wall, and more pebbles dropped. One of the attack strategies Osric had foreseen was that ropes might be used to lower men with ready crossbows. The position invited it. A few dozen elder saplings would provide good anchors. Aidan imagined them being inspected now. In his mind he could see ten or twenty men loading crossbows and tying onto the ends of ropes while their companions anchored themselves to the saplings and prepared to lower their companions down the short face. It was the second shower of sand that Osric had waited for. And now it came. All the way across the outer ledge, sand drizzled and pebbles bounced. The sound was barely above the murmur of the stream, but for men who knew what it signified, it was a clarion call. Aidan was finding it difficult to breathe. Osric made a downward motion with his arms. Two men swatted the team of horses. The animals surged forward, drawing ropes that led out of the back of the cave. There was a deep crack that echoed from above. Then a heavy rumble filled the air and shook the ground. Earlier, it had demanded the strength of several horses to pull the colossal alder trunk into position, and much chopping to clear it of branches so that it would roll. And now it rolled. The saplings that might have stopped its progress had been partially cut so as to appear strong when tested, but not strong enough to withstand such a force. Warning shouts were followed by the cracking of many small trees and the screams of men that grew and grew and suddenly burst on their ears as bodies dropped past the opening and thudded into the rocky ledge. A shower of debris was followed by a deep rush as the great trunk hurtled past the defenders and crashed on the rocks 
scattering everyone with a shower of stones, chips of wood, and dust. A few more bodies came down with the log, but not one of them moved. Horses reared, and soldiers were forced to subdue their steeds or be trampled. Osric gave a quiet order, and three men darted out to collect weapons. As expected, there were many crossbows. Most were broken, but half a dozen still worked. These were reloaded and placed ready. Then all fell silent again. Aidan estimated that between fifteen and twenty-five men had fallen, leaving enough still to mount a strong attack. Dust clouds drifted through the cave. There were some muffled coughs. They waited. As the air gradually cleared, Aidan studied the shadows between boulders again. Horses snorted. He could hear Leru's rapid and shallow breathing, and then realized his was the same. He tried to force himself to take long, deep breaths and relax his limbs, remembering all too well Dunn's warning about rapid exhaustion. Yet, try as he might, it seemed impossible to calm himself. Again he could see dozens of points of movement. It was as if the boulders themselves were crawling. There was a sharp clicking of pebbles to the left. He saw the movement. It was the ground behind the large rock Osric had expected they would use. He had balanced a few stones so that they would topple if the ground there was disturbed. Several similar traps had been rigged further down, and one of these now also spoke. The archers knew where their targets would appear. They took aim. Silence. Aidan wanted to scream. He dreaded the charge, but he could not endure much more of this waiting. When it happened, there was no battle cry. Behind a cloud of whistling arrows, shapes swarmed out from the two screens of rock and bounded across the riverbed towards the cave. Aidan knew the entrance would be black to the attackers, giving them nothing to aim at. It was no surprise, then, that only one of their arrows found a shield, one a horse, and the rest clattered against rock. The Thurnish bows twanged, and six fen attackers collapsed. These Thurnish soldiers were not quick enough with the bow to knock and aim again in the time remaining, but the half-dozen crossbows were raised and shot, bringing down another four. Then the wave struck. The attackers were big men who swung heavy maces and large swords with ease. A dozen of them crashed into the defences. Osric had instructed the soldiers to stab for the eyes because men stumbling into darkness would not likely cover their faces and would not see the points of spears or swords thrust from the shadows. It worked. About half of the attackers went down without even striking their opponents, but the remaining fen gained a foothold and began to lay about them with devastating blows. The thurnish began to fall. Aidan saw Osric throw his sword like a knife, skewering a fen soldier who had knocked Senbert to his knees and was about to bring a mace down on his head. The man crumpled with Osric's sword through him, and Senbert sprang back to his feet. An attacker saw Osric weaponless and turned on him, swinging a heavy sword. Osric swatted the blade aside with the shield strapped to his arm, stepped forward, and delivered a blow with his gauntleted fist that did the work of a hammer. Before the man dropped, Osric grabbed him by the throat and belt and hurled him into another two attackers, knocking them both off their feet. Senbert's blade 
finished them. Osric unhooked his giant mace and smashed into the next enemy soldier that caught his eye. Two men fell on Murta and Tyne. Aidan was not surprised to see Murta's feral speed and skill. The attackers found themselves with an uncaged animal at their throats. But it was Tyne who held all his attention. She fought as Lero had described, dancing, darting, and slipping through defences with movements so quick and elusive that her opponent may as well have been dueling a shadow. Aidan had never seen anything like it in his training, never imagined that such grace could be so deadly. He felt an immediate respect for this tall woman. Aidan! Lero screamed. You're right! He spun around to see that one of the fen had broken through and was striding towards him, snarling and lifting his mace. Aidan faltered. Without any warning, the memories took hold. The image of his father bore down on him. Unreasoning rage and crushing violence. Inescapable. Unopposable. All fell silent, but for a rising scream of dread. His limbs collapsed, dropping him and his sword to the ground. The whimper that escaped his throat was a sickening admission of naked helplessness. It was the whimper of a child, a voice of numb terror, of a spirit utterly crushed and taught to cower. The mace reached the back of its arc and began the fatal swing. A dim shape clouded his vision as Liru stepped in front of him and took the blow on her shield. It lifted her off her feet and cast her through the air. She struck the wall and slid to the floor where she remained motionless. The mace rose again. Aidan was frozen. He could neither speak nor move. He saw a hand close around the shaft, and another hand grip the fen's throat. It was Holt who had intervened, but it was clear that he had lost his weapons. The attacker twisted around, and the two men struggled back and forth until Holt lost his footing and went to the ground under a weight far greater than his own. He was outmatched. A big hand closed around his throat. He struggled and kicked, his movements becoming weaker and slower. Aidan knew his countryman was dying. He knew he had to do something, but his body would not respond. His terror only mounted as Holt's life ebbed. A soft tread drew his attention to the side as Tyne rushed up and thrust the point of her sword through the assailant's temple. Holt drew a great breath of air and slowly crawled from under the body of his dead enemy. Tyne looked down at Aidan wordlessly. It was too dark to read her expression, but the detached posture spoke her disdain clearly enough. She turned her back on him and went to Liru's still form. As quickly as it had begun, the clangor of battle died out. The last attacker had fallen. Heavy breathing, the moans of the wounded, and someone's wet, foamy coughing replaced the screams and the crash of metal. The defenders set about gathering their wounded and looking for survivors among the bodies. Only four of the Thurnish had been lost, and another three were wounded. The Fen losses, however, were considerable. 
Forty-one were dead, most of them crushed by the alder trunk. Eight were seriously, if not mortally, wounded. After Murter had scouted the area and was certain that the threat had passed, fires were lit and the injured properly tended. The stench of battle was heavy in the cave, making it a grim camp, but Osric was not prepared to expose the party to the arrows of possible stragglers. Aidan recovered sufficiently to get to his feet. Liru had not moved. Tyne and Fergal were crouched beside her. They did not look at Aidan. He wanted to ask, he wanted to help, but the hot glow of his shame was enough to tell him that he did not belong there. Tyne had seen him, he knew it, and she would not forget. He looked up and caught Holt's eye, but the man turned away. Aidan's face contorted in a spasm of self-loathing. He recoiled from the light of the fires and headed across the riverbed. He knew he was exposing himself to a rogue archer. He didn't care. An arrow now would be a mercy. He walked downstream to where none from the cave would be able to see him. Here he sat on a boulder until the cold bit into his legs, and he let it. Liru lay dying or crippled because of him. He had watched, unmoving, just watched while Holt had almost died mere feet away. He would never forget the look of those eyes turned towards him in frantic appeal. Holt's dagger had been in Aidan's belt, and there it had remained. Even now, the strength in his arms was barely enough to raise his hand. But earlier, it had been as if his arms were not his, as if they were the dead limbs of a corpse. He could still see them as they had flopped on the ground, useless, and the paralysis had only fed his terror. He looked down the valley, tracing the waters that fled the scene. Should he do the same? What hope had he of being a marshal? Whatever courage and strength he possessed were treacherous. Maybe a prince's treachery was what he deserved. He began to shiver and realized how cold he was. Then he cursed himself for the thought. How could he think of his own comfort after what he had done to his friends? He did not warm himself by the fire when he returned. Osric came to check on him, asking if he had any wounds. The bitterness of Aidan's thoughts leaked poison into the tone of his answers. He hated himself the more when Osric left, looking confused and snubbed. Aidan remained in a dark corner, shivering, and hoping that Liru would not die. In the night. Chapter 49 A little before first light, Murta and a few soldiers crept from the cave and scouted until they were sure none of the fen remained. Osric relocated them to a broad valley. Here, the injured rested for three days while the dead were buried. The fen were too many to be buried so they were heaped onto a pyre near the cave and burned, the flames giving off black smoke and a thick stench. Aidan watched it all with only the dullest interest. 
Lyra woke, but she was in great pain. Twice Aiden tried to speak to her, but her answers were curt. As much as he wanted to apologize, he could not bring himself to drop his shield in the face of bared teeth and baleful eyes. Instead, he talked around the thing he needed to say, asking about her injuries and commenting on the proposed plans, plans in which he no longer had any interest. If Tyne had given space, he might have been able to unload the thoughts that ate him like acid. But she hovered and glared, as if he were contaminating her patient. After a few moments, she would chase him off, saying that he was disturbing Liru's recovery. Liru never asked him to stay. Aidan felt eyes on him as he moved through the camp, and often heard laughter in his wake. No mention of his embarrassment was made in his presence, but he almost wished that it would be, just to have it out and over with. Instead, the words and looks buzzed and darted around him like a cloud of midges. Holt now shunned him. Aidan was not surprised. After some contemplation, he decided to return Holt's dagger, and did so with a shame-faced apology. The man snatched the dagger and walked away while Aidan was still speaking. Hanging there in mid-sentence, the anger and embarrassment that rose almost forced tears from his eyes. He needed to get away. Without letting anyone know, he headed out, aiming vaguely for a hilltop a few miles distant. A blanket of moth-eaten clouds scudded beneath the sun and branches pitched in the disturbed air. He walked in distracted loops, taking a long time to reach the place. After fighting through the last of the undergrowth and climbing the rocky brow, he discovered it much to his liking, isolated and bare. He had asked himself too many questions over the past days and found no answers. So now he sat and watched the land below, while a cold, snow-born wind tumbled down from the heights, buffeted past him and raked through the stands of trees and grassy plains, making them ripple like the coat of some great beast. It could not improve his mood, but for a time it helped him forget and feel nothing. The sound of breaking sticks and heavy breathing drew his attention to the slope he had recently climbed. His curiosity gave way to annoyance when he saw Fergal's broad form lumbering upwards. Aidan hoped intensely that the final scramble would be too much, but the oversized cleaner was as determined as he was unwanted. Without invitation, the man dropped himself down on the rock. Here he panted and blew with a grimace that revealed just how much the ascent had hurt. When he could talk, he chose not to, and, instead, dug through a pouch and found a letter, which he began to read silently. Aidan wondered what kind of man would choose to invade another person's privacy in order to exercise his own. He had paid little attention to this servant, or whatever he was, and looked across at him now. At first, Aidan had thought him relatively young, but the way he behaved around men of rank had made him seem very old.
It wasn't a question of respect given or returned, as much as a steady patience. The kind of patience that suggests a greater knowledge of others than they have of themselves. That suggests great experience, great age. But there was something about the way he stretched his arms and grinned at the sunrise, or watched with amusement when one of the soldiers was about to put his lips to an overheated tin mug. These and many other almost childlike ways made him seem very young. Part of the difficulty in fixing an age was his hiddenness. He had the appearance of being overgrown in all ways. Great falls of charcoal hair lay in thick mats, reaching down to his shoulders. His eyes were mostly shadowed under wild hedges of thorny eyebrows. And when he spoke, Aidan remembered, it was only a disturbance somewhere deep within that dark beard that revealed the presence of a mouth. But there was no disturbance now. The silence appeared not to bother this large, hairy man in the least. Aidan, however, was growing uncomfortable, and was about to move off when Fergal coughed. This is the bit, he said. Listen to this. Never have I known such courage or resourcefulness under the most trying circumstances. If you were to take that one heart and divide it among a dozen men, they would be a dozen to be reckoned with. Are you trying to mock me? Aidan cried, standing. Fergal returned the letter to the pouch. The letter was written by my brother, he said. He was describing a boy who, for the love of his young friend, leapt down a gorge two hundred feet deep in a final desperate attempt to save her. I would not have believed such a tale from any other source. My brother saw it with his own eyes, and even made a part of the jump himself. Aidan was unable to speak. So violent were the emotions boiling within his chest. So Fergal continued. My brother is Nulty, and he tells me that he knew you well. Do you remember him? Aidan nodded. And do you remember the day of which he wrote? Aidan nodded again. Then sit, please. I would speak with you. He waited until Aidan had settled down again and recovered. Nulte also wrote of what he termed a dread association. He made inquiries after your departure, and what he learned convinced him that your father had been beating you and your mother. The thing that gave birth to his suspicions was the way you responded when a nobleman, Dresborn, prepared to thrash you. Aidan was silent. He wished he did not have to see it all again in such detail. He remembered the gasps as people cover their mouths, staring in morbid fascination at his disgrace. Some had shaken their heads, some had even laughed. None had understood. Why can I stand up to anyone in training? he blurted. Why could I fight that gang at the autumn festival, but I can't hold my ground when someone reminds me of how my father used to charge at me? Perhaps because when those patterns were formed, your only possible defence was to cower. That part of your mind was locked onto the idea that there is no other way to survive your father's rage. I imagine the same response is triggered when someone reminds you of him, 
appearance, or more likely behaviour. Something in you believes it is him, and takes you back to those first encounters. Aidan considered this. The thugs charging towards him at the festival when he'd waited in the oak shadow had not even seen him. They were not bearing down on him with that dominating, focused, and wrathful intent. The situation had been nothing like the encounters with his father. The same was true of all the other times he had been able to hold his ground. Burgle's explanation made sense, but it brought no consolation. Even if I understand it, Aidan said, what use am I to anyone like this? Use is a poor word, a small word. You are of great worth to many just as you are, but that is not to say you should expect to keep this wound. But how can I get rid of something that's buried where I can't find it? Fergal was silent and turned his gaze to the sky. Birds chattered, grassy swaths whispered to each other, clouds drifted, but Fergal remained still. Aidan was beginning to suspect that this was no mere dreaminess, no lost internal meandering. Those twinkling eyes were far too sharp. This man had something in common with those that burst into song at the dinner table or asked ludicrously personal questions in public. People's expectations of him seemed to have little influence on his behaviour. His quirk, however, was neither loud nor indiscreet. He simply felt no discomfort about bringing a conversation to a juddering halt while he had a deep and careful think. Aidan decided to wait him out, and wait he did. It was a long time before Fergal spoke again. Many have overcome their fears, he said, of battle, of heights, of loss, of society even. But these recoveries are seldom quick. Different wounds require different remedies, and yours, while not unheard of, appears to have uncommonly deep roots, no doubt due to the fact that the seed was planted in childhood. Unearthing those roots may take some work. A chat with Osric might be instructive. I think you'll find he understands the condition better than you'd expect. Aidan sighed. I'm not sure I want to face him or any of the others again, he said. They think me a coward, maybe even a traitor. If I were you, I'd not be too concerned with the opinions of soldiers who might have been our murderers. I have spoken to the others. Osric is not disappointed in you. He is no less your friend now than before, though you might try to be a little less withdrawn. His confidence often deserts him in the area of relationships. If you don't make an effort to accept his bumbling attempts at kindness, you will both end up feeling you are not good enough for the other. I'll not stand by such idiocy. Your bitterness will not aid you. They will end up punishing those who care about you. Aidan blushed. This cleaner was certainly perceptive. What about Liru? he said. She and Tyne hate me. I spoke with them too. Tyne's anger is understandable, though it is short-sighted in her. She knows how you and your friends once intervened on Liru's behalf. Liru's anger is emotional. She feels abandoned. 
It is because of how much she had depended on you that she now feels as she does. Aidan was surprised and felt a slight warmth. Will I be able to win her trust again? he asked. Fergal chuckled. If you are asking a man to predict the current of a woman's emotions, you are asking in vain. But I will say that you should try. Tyne won't even let me talk to Leru now. When were you ever kept where others placed you? From your first night at the academy, you've been leaving footprints where they do not belong. Aidan stared at him. How do you know about that? Then he remembered the size of the man they had disturbed and the mass of hair. Recognition lit his eyes. Remember now, Fergal said. That was you. It was. Oh, Ian noticed that you had ink dripping from your hand. Did we make you spill something? And ruin a manuscript I'd been working on since morning? Uh, sorry. Did you tell anyone? No. Neither did I tell anyone about the time you broke into the Chancellor's office and used a three-century-old marble bust to open the door. How did you know that? I know now. Aidan ground his teeth, squirming with embarrassment at being found out so easily. Are you going to put me in the rat cells, or prison? I never liked that particular bust. The sculptor must have made his impression from a death mask, because it gave all of us the jitters. Unfortunately, nobody had the authority to remove such an important likeness of a former Chancellor. Your little adventure, it turns out, had a happy result. But you will understand if you are not thanked for your efforts. Aidan managed to smile. No, Aidan, I have no intention to see you incarcerated. In spite of this dread association with your father, you are still the most courageous and resourceful apprentice the Academy has seen. If you are prepared to accept a cleaner's opinion. It was the most encouraging thing he had been told in years. But in what Fergal had just said, there was a thorn. His apprenticeship, his training, his prince. You are quiet, said Fergal. Are you perhaps wondering about the sense in returning to, shall we say, a precarious loyalty? Yes, Aidan admitted. But that brings up something I need to ask. If you knew about the conspiracy against us, why didn't you help slow the party down? We had plans, but you and Leru moved before us. The poisoned broth was an excellent idea, though. So, you know, pursued Aidan, that your master has been sent here to die. Perhaps you too. We suspected it, but your overhearing that conversation between our prince and the first councillor was very useful. Did Osric tell you it was me? No. Then how did you... Oh, you didn't know, did you? Again, I know now. But I had little doubt. Who else would have been down there? Fine. Guilty. But let's get back to the question of home. What happens after the quest? Can we go back? And if we do, for what purpose? 
Burgle thought long about this. Going back will not be without peril. I'll not pretend to you that ensuring our safety will be a simple matter. But perhaps we shall think of something. As to purpose, well, we have a long journey ahead, and much time to consider that from many angles. Maybe some unpleasant angles, too, said Aidan. There is a good chance we'll get to do a lot of our travelling in the bellies of wolves or some other sharp-toothed creatures. Panther almost got my mother last time. Even if we make it past them, there's the fortress itself. You know what happened to us when we entered? I do. So how are we meant to get in? With great care and delicate planning. There are many secrets to that fortress. Culver and I happen to know a few. You'll see. We have more in mind than tiptoeing through the front gates. But there's no other way in. Ah, there we have a topic for our first lesson. Can you detect the problem with what you just said? Aidan ran through the words a few times and then smiled. I should have added, that I know of. Just so. You tried to establish a fact from a lack of evidence. Unless the inquiry has been so exhaustive as to explore every possibility, the lack of evidence should never be used to ground a statement of fact. Unlikelihood, certainly, but no more. A prematurely assumed fact blocks further inquiry. Can you give me an example? The sea north of Lorfen is endless. But isn't it? Haven't ships travelled for a month in that direction and found nothing? Indeed, but the very fact that there is still water to the north when they turned back means that the exploration was incomplete. Who can say that they would not have sighted a great landmass one day? Another is this. There are no spies in the academy. Are there? Aidan asked with shock. I hope not, but it would be unwise to assume not. Where easier for a spy to hide than in a place where no one believes a spy could exist? People never look beyond an assumed fact. One more. Lecrans have nothing worth respecting. Aidan stiffened. That's not a good topic for me. But it is a necessary one. Prejudice creates blindness. It's too busy hating to think. No matter how justified it might feel, Prejudice will shackle you. But they, Aiden, use reason, not emotion. Have you made an exhaustive search of the whole population of Lekrau and found nothing worth respecting? Aiden's eyes were hard. I take your point, but please could we discuss something else? As they made their way back to the camp, Fergal illustrated the same principle by detailing several political and military defeats, and Aidan began to see how dangerous this little flaw in reasoning could be. When they arrived at the camp, Aidan helped Osric with the meal. He understood now that there was no anger in the general's eyes, only concern. Though it was unpleasant to be in the company of those who had seen him shamed, he bore it. Fergal had given him just a thread of hope, to which he clung with slowly recovering tenacity. Tyne called him aside. Aidan, 
she said in a voice that was as steady as the commander's. The eyes that Aiden had been avoiding held him, and he did not look away. He realized now that the intensity of her look was perhaps better understood as sincerity. I was not aware of your background, she said. You have my apologies. The only thing I can find against your behavior is that you should have warned Lero about your malady. She had a right to know, because it was your responsibility to defend her. But I'm not angry with you, and I'd be glad if you would count me as a friend. She put her hand on his shoulder, gave a gentle squeeze, then turned and walked to the fire, allowing Aidan the chance to speak to Liru alone. Liru did not greet him when he sat. He fiddled with a twig he had broken off a sapling, peeling the bark away, exposing the pale wood. Liru, I'm sorry. I should have told you. I thought that in a battle it might be different. It's just very embarrassing to talk about. I've actually never talked about it. I hoped it wouldn't happen. You are right, Aidan. You should have told me. Are you angry with me? Yes. I suppose I deserve it. Thank you for stepping in front of me. It was brave of you. I hope you don't regret it. I regret it with every aching breath. You would rather have me dead? I am happy that you are alive and unhappy that I had to save you. Aidan shuffled. Well, I'm glad that you're feeling strong enough to speak your mind, he mumbled. I am Mardre. Even dead Mardre will speak their minds. Now go away. You are giving me a headache. Aidan slunk back to his fire. Liru was angry and would stay that way for a long time. But at least she would talk to him. That was something. Tyne went back to her, leaving Aidan and Osric alone. They had not spoken openly since the battle. Neither of them seemed to know how to begin. When they did overcome their silence, they spoke at the same time. Both stopped and insisted the other proceed, pressing with equal vehemence. It was Osric who got frustrated first. Have you eaten? he asked with a huff of exasperation. Aidan looked surprised by the question. Oh, yes, I ate a little earlier, but I'm not that hungry. Not enough exercise today? No, it's not that. Oh, of course. Osric mumbled. Did you see the spoor outside the camp this morning? There are deer for the taking. Maybe you should head out with Murta. It might help to... to get back into the motions again. Aidan stripped off the last of the bark from his twig, threw the shreds onto the coals where they twisted up and shriveled before being consumed. Maybe, he said. Osric rubbed his stubbly beard. Perhaps I should also give you some specific training. Simulate some charges. I think Dunn might not put enough into the practical aspect, the real situations. Aidan threw the bare twig into the fire so hard that it produced a shower of sparks and sent a few coals tumbling. He glared at the pale wood. Moisture fizzed to the surface until there was none left, and then the flames had their way with the lifeless wood. 
He hated this. The questions, the advice, the examination. Was he to be stripped and grilled before everyone who had seen his humiliation? The darkness beyond the camp called to him, the loneliness where he could hide, where the inhabitants of the forest would not try to mend him. They would not pierce him with their eyes or their words. They did not care. That was the thought that stopped him from walking away. He looked at Osric and saw the honest concern, the generous hope behind his awkward and confused expression, as he clearly wondered what he had said wrong. It's not done, Aidan said. It's not familiarity or practice. You can't get me used to it because I would know it's not real. If it was real, it would be like trying to catch five-ton boulders rolled off the top of the city wall. Osric sighed and leaned forward, looking into the coals. Aidan, I know it seems that way to you, but I don't think it's as hopeless as that. I've worked with these kinds of freeze reactions before and helped soldiers pass them. Given time, I am convinced that you will master your response. How much time? It wouldn't be quick, but it could be overcome in stages. Incremental confrontations. Covering it over and trying to pretend it doesn't exist is like ignoring termites in the walls. You need to be deliberate about it. I've seen men whose nerves were shattered from nightmarish experiences, and many of them were able to hold spears and stand their ground again. But not all of them. You are young, and too full of fire to subside beneath it. A full battle was the wrong place for you. We'll find a way to get you past it. A step at a time, though. In reality... This will probably have to wait until we get back to Castith. Aidan said nothing. He didn't need to point out that getting back to Castith might depend on his ability to stand his ground. Osric's eyes remained on the fire when he spoke again. Is this damage why you never talk about your father? There's another reason. Crime. Aidan was silent. It would go poorly for him if we were to meet, Osric said. Aidan shifted and glanced up. He may have hurt me, but he stood up for me too. He was the one who taught me to track and hunt and move through the woods. He taught me better than Wildemar could ever hope to. I have lots of good memories of those days. After saying this, he wondered why he had. Why shield his father? He wanted to repay him. Yet somehow he felt the strangest need to defend when somebody else took up the attack. Any son should have those good memories, Osric rumbled. But no son should have the other memories he left you. I would very much like to give him some of what he gave you. Aidan looked away. He remembered the beatings. He remembered them well. Sometimes he still felt the creeping pain of bruises. But as he imagined his father under Osric's blows, there was an old sadness that welled up in him. He shook his head 
and turned to Osric. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I'll never forgive. Even in his grave, I'll hate him. I hate him for how he ruined me and my mother. And if I ever see him again, he'll be dead to me. But I don't want to see him beaten. I don't know why. Osric sat long in silence, the corners of his mouth pulling down and his fists clutching. When he answered, his voice was strangely thick. I chose differently, he said. Chapter 50 By the end of the week, they were ready to travel. Of the fourteen soldiers they had set out with, ten remained alive and eight were fit for service, though many of these had light wounds. The two with more serious wounds were sent back to Eastridge to rest and to wait reinforcements. The party travelled slowly on account of the convalescence, taking all of three weeks to reach the foothills of the Denelan Mountains. It was the first time Aidan had seen snow on the peaks. A month earlier the slopes and some of the hills would have been under a cold sheet of white, but now the season was shifting and the lingering caps and pockets of snow receding. As the land rose up around the travellers, it also began to change its character. Gone were the gentle hues of beech and lime. Ridges grew hooded and ravines thick with a more sombre shade of blackthorn, fir, and elm. Herds of deer flecked the slopes, speckled bounders and noble erak, tall as horses with horns like spears. The grass that now dominated was soft and furry from a distance, but tough as wire underfoot. Though it could be bent into a comfortable bed, each blade was like a miniature reed ending in a needle tip. It became increasingly difficult to find suitable grazing, something Aidan remembered from his first journey here. The company was large enough to keep wolves at a distance, but the lonely howl, that most haunting of songs, was often to be heard on the night air. Fergal conducted his lessons with Aidan and Liru while they rode. They were astounded by the man's knowledge. He seemed to know more about any subject than any of the masters at the academy. They began to think he knew more than several put together. It was no wonder Culver had claimed him as a personal assistant. Whatever disappointment Aidan had experienced at being passed on to a mere clerk for tuition evaporated rapidly. Fergal showed himself fluent in each of the foreign languages Aidan and Lero had studied, and it soon became clear that he spoke a great many more. Occasionally, he would even use illustrations from works in what he termed lost languages, languages no longer spoken, whose sounds were no longer known, and had to be guessed when reading the words that lingered in clay tablets and fragile parchments. Fergal set challenges that had to be solved using many fields of knowledge—languages, culture, politics, strategy, and, of course, history. He also began to coach them in something new intentional observation, the habit of constantly noting and interpreting details. This was something Aidan was familiar with from the Origins game he used to play at the Misty Vales, though he had never applied the technique broadly. He decided to test Fergal. Can you describe the first inn we stayed at? he asked. You'll have to be a lot more specific than that, 
Fergal said, or I'll be talking all day. All right, describe the cook. The cook, Fergal mumbled. Hmm. Aidan smiled, preparing for a small triumph over his new master. I won't bore you with the details that were of no aid, Fergal began, but I will mention a few that were of interest. She was the mother of the tallest serving girl. How? Aidan attempted to interrupt. The initial resemblance was minimal, until one noticed them in profile. They shared a unique forward bridge of the nose and deeply sunken chin. But if the resemblance was not enough, the mother removed all doubt by her behavior. At first I thought our sallies from the kitchen to be random or brought on by rowdiness, but she looked too purposeful for the former, and the latter link was inconsistent. I soon realized that she was overseeing every time her daughter made her rounds between the soldiers. Another thing that presented itself as interesting was that on her first appearance she walked evenly, and every time she appeared after that, she limped. Ah, Liru said, a weapon strapped to her leg. It would make sense if she was worried about her daughter. I assumed just that, and made sure to avoid looking at the daughter. As a result, I spent a fair amount of time examining my table, oiled pine, on which I read a dozen names and learned that Alburn will always love fern, though I fear the giddy letters indicate powers at work other than affection. Yes, laughed Aidan. He was probably being beaten over the head by the cook with her brass spoon while he scratched her table. Fergal grinned. Good. You noticed her spoon was brass, and it did have some dents in it. She held it in her right hand, and she was left-handed. It was her writing that gave her away. Was her left hand against the supposedly injured leg? Aidan asked. Very good. It was indeed. The next thing she revealed was the existence of a back door to the kitchen, when she appeared at one point with hair blown loose and spots of rain on her shoulders. I could carry on, but I think you get the idea, and hopefully see the usefulness of observation. Now, Aidan, seeing as I've answered your question, what do you remember of her husband? Uh, he was really small, and he had a beard, and... A white shirt? No, brown. No, well, he had a shirt. Green, said Fergal. Well, it was dirty, so you have to admit that brown is partly right. It was not dirty. I have seldom observed a neater or cleaner chap in my life. Brown, I'm afraid, remains wrong. Lira was even worse. Fergal began drilling them, asking them regularly what they had noticed about a clearing recently traversed or about an interaction between soldiers. Aidan found it difficult to pay attention to his surroundings while listening to Fergal's instruction, but he improved over the weeks. Liru, after growing deliberate about it, showed herself to be something of a sponge for details. Once Fergal was satisfied that they were on the right track, he had them study one soldier at a time without staring, observing each for potential threats and weaknesses. They learned that one was concealing something beneath his saddle, another was nursing a sore head, a third was uneasy about the soldier behind him. Aidan was also uneasy about him. It was Rourke, that leering eel who still mocked with his eyes. 
As casual as he seemed, he never let his coat fall over the handle of his sword, and showed by his reactions that he took in a lot more of his environment than his lazy eyes suggested. Aidan marked him as dangerous. Any curiosity on the part of the soldiers was left unsatisfied, as none of the discussions were held in Thirnish. Arunian, the most common second language, was also avoided. Instead, they used Fen, Vinthian, and Sulis. Fergal began teaching them some basic words in two more languages, Lecran, to Aidan's disgust, and Madre, to Liru's delight. She was unable to hide her surprise and joy when she discovered her new master to be fluent in the language of her childhood. Soon they were singing songs, telling jokes, and reciting poems together. Fergal was considerate enough to explain it all to Aidan. These would be Aidan's fifth and sixth foreign tongues. Lecran was compulsory, but for the sixth language the students were given a few choices. He had been wavering between Kroonish and Mardre, and leaning towards the latter, so he did not object. He was determined to catch up to Liru as fast as he could, so every night he wrote down the new words and phrases and practiced until he spoke them in his dreams. Mardre was a fascinating language, full of rich vowel tones and soft consonants. It almost sounded dreamy. Instead of the languages becoming jumbled, he found it easier to learn and store each subsequent one, though the boundaries were not impenetrable. There were times when a Sulis word, for example, would try to pass itself off as a native in a Vinthian sentence. Fergal was sharper than any border inspector and caught the little impostors every time. Nevertheless, he declared himself to be impressed with the effort and progress of his students. Aidan's application to Lecran, however, was another matter. He felt as though the words polluted his mind, and he let them trickle out as fast as they reached him. One day, during a spell between questions, Aidan changed the topic to something that had been gnawing at him for a long time. What's under the academy? he asked. Fergal directed a long look at him. I gave my words not to speak of it. Anyway, you would have difficulty believing me. Now you're setting my curiosity alight. Good. Curiosity is an excellent fuel. You will find out what is down there, but not through me. How? There's no longer an entrance. Did we not cover this in your first lesson? No entrance, you say? Aidan considered for a moment. Are you saying there's another entrance? I am not saying that. Neither could I say it, even if I knew it to be true. I am addressing a flaw in your reasoning. A fact constructed from the material of ignorance. A brick made of air. And that is all the satisfaction you are going to give me on this? Very good, Aidan. You are making fine progress. Aidan huffed for a while but soon thought of another question. This one you might not like, he said, but I need to know. I am listening. Are you cheating us because Malik's father or mother told Culver not to? Fergal looked up at the clouds, apparently dreaming. When he turned around to Aidan, there was a hint of amusement in his face. 
Then this is why you were so surly to begin with. Aidan dropped his eyes. Yes, I suspected your little pre-departure conference with Malik might have run along those lines. It is true that his mother has great influence, and also true that such a demand was made. But even if it had not been, Culver would not have taught you. You will learn to forgive him once you understand him. The Chancellor is a man who keeps himself apart. He is someone very few people understand. But perhaps you will learn something of him before we return. It still sounded like academic snobbery to Aidan, but he didn't really care. Burgle was proving to be the best tutor he had ever known. Lyra said the same. If Malik had known this assistant better, he would have included him in the veto against teaching. Camp was usually made during early afternoon, allowing time for the two apprentices to train with weapons. They never trained within view of the soldiers, and leather sleeves kept the noise of weapons down. Even Aidan was sworn to secrecy as he began to work with Liru. Osric and Tyne acted as their instructors. Though he had known Osric for many years, Aidan had never actually trained with him. The oversized general was not capable of shifting as quickly as his smaller opponents, but the depth of each movement easily made up for this, and the speed of his arms was devastating. The blade would move so quickly and with such weight that he could parry and cut before anyone realized the offensive had shifted. Tyne, though she was taller than most women, drifted over the grass as lightly as a summer breeze. She slipped around lunges and darted in with a fluid grace that sometimes even put Osric on the retreat. Aidan and Lyru watched with dropping jaws. It was poetry. Aidan had begun to like Tyne as he had grown to understand her. She was not the domineering, starchy woman he had first thought. She could command if needed, and she was strong, no mistake. But behind it all was a shy lady who smiled with the most endearing dimples, coloured slightly when complimented, and who was always quick to soothe any bruise. Whatever ill will she had borne Aidan was long gone, and she laughed with him as freely as with the others. Once, as he watched her stepping and leaping around Osric, a long copper braid sweeping behind her and a half-smile always tugging at her mouth, he leaned over to Liru and whispered, They make good dancing partners. He would say nothing when Osric and Tyne demanded to know what all the whispering was about. It was not the last such comment that passed between the youngsters. Aidan had never seen the general's smile so often, and there was no doubt as to the cause. Sword sparring was usually marked by glittering steel and ringing strikes. Tyne's bouts with Osric were marked by glittering eyes and ringing laughter. The teaching and training covered unarmed combat, knives, swords, clubs, and quarterstaves. They alternated partners, fought in pairs, and then all fought Osric. Then they fought Osric with one hand tied behind his back. Then Tyne suggested they tie his arms and legs, put a bag over his head, and give him Aidan's cheese knife to hold between his boots. Thorma, the steady, silent commander, was always to be seen around the camp, 
thick, white smoke curling up from his pipe, and his heavy glance bringing instant order to any disturbance. His constant presence allowed Osric to move around freely. Murta would hunt on most days. When Aidan was able to get off, he would join him, slipping easily into the patient silence of the trail. Murta tolerated nobody else near him, saying the rest of them breathed through trumpets and stamped on every branch the ground had to offer. One afternoon, following a grueling weapon session, Aidan was stretching out in front of the campfire, watching a deer haunch sizzle while beans and maize simmered in half a dozen blackened pots. He was cooking a roll of stick bread, dough wrapped around a stick, which he would stuff with beans and strips of meat. The idea was to pack it away for tomorrow's lunch, but the steam rising from the bread was tickling his nose, and he was beginning to doubt quite seriously that the bread would survive the evening. His contemplations were interrupted when Thorma sat down beside him, his ever-present pipe belching spicy clouds. Aidan was too intimidated to cough. He'd seen this big commander smashing his way through the Fen attack, producing almost as much devastation as the general. Osric tells me you are from the Misty Vales, Palmer said. Yes, sir. I'd prefer you to drop the sir unless it's in front of the soldiers. Yes. Aidan caught himself in time. I remember the Misty Vales dimly. How well did you know Glenting? I only visited there once when my father went to buy a mule. Would that have been old Ainsley's stable, by the river, just under the mill? Yes. How did you know? Glenting was my home. Is my home. You know what it's like being northern. There's that song, something about how the blood seems ever to sing in our veins of going home. Aidan smiled. He had heard the song and knew the longing. But in his case, returning would be more complicated. Do you think you will go back? he asked. I have another three years to complete in the army, and then I'll be discharged, free to stay or leave. What would you do? Aidan began to answer and then realized he had no idea what to say. As he thought of faithful Thomas and Dara, the other memories rushed back, the slander and accusations, the way in which he would perhaps even now be remembered. Perhaps charges had been laid against him. Ah, you have some attachment in Castith, said Thorma, elbowing him. A young lass that holds you back? Oh, no, it's not like that. It's just that, well, we didn't leave the North well. There were some lies spread about me. Going back might not be a good idea. Now that's a serious matter. Palmer drew and released a small cloud that drifted towards the fire, where the updraft whisked it up into the air. I've always found it better to face lies than turn from them, he said, gazing into the flames. Like keeping my enemy in front of me. I'll tell you what, young Aiden. When you decide to head back home, if I can, I'll make the journey with you. A good word from a retired commander will go a long way. No sheriff would question my word. And I'm more than happy to add my knuckles into the bargain, if they are needed. 
Thank you, Aidan said. That means a lot to me. The man's generosity warmed him as much as the fire. He only wished that his problems in the Misty Vales could be solved that simply. But what will you do if you go back to Glenting? he asked. Ah, now you inquire after something that touches near to my heart. How much do you know about the making of pipes? As darkness gathered around the camp, settling at a respectful distance from the fire, Thormer expounded on the different shapes of bowl, shank, and stem, the characteristics of briar root, cherry wood, maple, and clay. His voice became wistful as he told of his plans to build a small workshop at the end of a quiet street, where his cabin could overlook the river, and where he could smoke an evening pipe on the veranda while dangling a lazy hook in the water. Aidan found himself wanting to swallow the hook and clutch the dream for himself. He had not thought much of a peaceful life. Other purposes had driven him. But the commander's plan sounded good, very good, except perhaps for the smoke. Later that night, after he had retired, he spent an hour trying not to smell or think of the meat and bean bread roll in his saddlebag. Then he finally surrendered, wolfed it down, and rolled into his blanket again with a broad smile and no remorse. Before his thoughts grew sleepy, the vision of Thormer's peaceful retirement glowed in his mind's eye. Surely that was the end for which he strove to. Surely it was the only sense behind all the armies and weapons and spilled blood of the nation. Not battle and victory, but the peace that lay on the far side calling so patiently and so softly as to even be forgotten by those who won it. Before sleep took him, he promised himself he would not forget. Aidan was beginning to feel slightly easier in the camp, but there was one change that was for the worse. The nearer they drew to the dreaded fortress, the longer the soldiers' hushed evening discussions became discussions that would fall silent at the approach of anyone outside their number. Aidan managed to catch the occasional drift of speech. They were telling stories of Kultum, rumors of ghosts, giants, ogres, and goblins. It seemed that the fortress had a claim on every legendary horror. But the stories that would have brought laughter back within the city walls were having a different effect here. Some of the tales he had read himself Every man that entered was lost. Sounds that caused the earth to shake and birds to fall from the sky. Black vapor, like a spray of night. The last he suspected to be from his own account, suitably embellished. And it was not just the stories. The land, too, was growing stranger. Stands of giant trees began to reappear, more now than Aidan remembered. They loomed over the hills like ancient watchmen, many of them dead, but some very much alive. The feeling of being watched was heightened during the dim, mist-cloaked mornings, which played all manner of tricks on the senses. It was a little after first light when a trembling soldier reported seeing the shudder of distant leaves on a wooded hillside, as if some large beast was moving beneath the canopy 
but Murta knew of no such beast inhabiting this area. He wanted to separate from the party and investigate, but Osric was not prepared to have anyone else lead their company through the drifting fog, so the sighting was left unexplained. But it was not forgotten. Later, after the mist had cleared and the sun began to warm the ground, they headed towards what looked like a broad tree and turned out to be a colossal bush. Under the shade, they found, leering back at them with dark, bulbous eyes, a statue that Murta assumed was some kind of boundary marker. It was a carving of the most monstrous locust, bigger than a man, made from such materials and finished with such precision that the creature looked real, startlingly real. Normally, the statues of kings or mythical guardians were used, but a locust of this size was no less impressive or intimidating, seeing as locusts were considered portents of devastation. The more superstitious believed that boundary markers could be imbued with dark powers. Clearly, the soldiers were of this persuasion. None felt like resting anymore, and they moved on. Aidan could sense the radiating fear. He was sure the only thing that preserved order was the weight of Osric's presence. The general's eye was quick, and his discipline firm. The awe in which the soldiers held him kept them in their place, especially after the way he had led them against the Fen war scouts, with losses of less than one for each of the enemy's ten. True to his values, he not only kept the company disciplined, but immaculately neat at all times. Camp hygiene was better than that of a moderately priced inn. Uniforms were cleaned, shoes polished, beards trimmed, and no man was permitted to smell worse than his horse. None dared test Osric in this, so the party looked almost parade-ready, both in appearance and discipline. But it was not lost on Aidan that between Osric, Murta, Thormer, and Tyne, one was always on the watch, and the others slept fully armed. That evening, as Aidan was stretching out by the fire, Osric told him in Sulis to wait a while, and then move to the other side of the fire, away from the soldiers. That was when Aidan began to notice the silent tension between soldiers and officers. The following night, he and Liru were told to sleep with their weapons in hand, under their blankets. A knot in his stomach made it difficult to rest. Stars were dimming by the time exhaustion overcame him. There was little talk in the camp when day broke, and they travelled in silence. There would be one more camp before they reached the fortress. Aidan disrupted the stillness to ask, in Fen, what Culliver was planning to do when they arrived. Fergal gave a long answer in a language Aidan had never heard. When asked for a translation, he said that it meant, Patience is acquired through exercise. By mid-morning, that dreaded round tower appeared over the distant hills, as dark and watchful as he remembered. Aidan was unable to eat anything more than a few raisins. It was afternoon when they crested the final ridge. No one spoke. Aidan remembered well the plain that now lay beneath them, and the rock-walled hill in the centre. On top of the rise, dominating it, Kultum waited 
challenging them, daring them to approach. Aidan saw it as he had before, vast, lonely, and dreadful. But if he was stilled by the sight, the others were turned to stone. There was something deeply unsettling about the fortress, in no way lessened by the intervening years. It was as though Kultum returned the stares of its watchers. Osric finally broke the spell and led them down to the bank of a river. They made camp under the swaying locks of grey willows, but it was a restless camp that became increasingly uneasy as darkness settled. Heads were constantly turning in the direction of the fortress, often with sharp movements, as if in response to something sensed or imagined. A camp of frightened soldiers held far less comfort for Aiden than the surrounds. So, as he had often done over the past few days, he used a skin to collect the entrails of the deer Murter had killed and carried them out into the night. He could hear the soft tread of the paws that soon followed him, but made no effort to run. He skirted the hill and placed his burden on the ground, then retreated to a solitary rowan tree and pulled himself up onto a smooth-skinned branch. He did not have long to wait. The old grey wolf looped past him and then around the meat. It circled twice more, sniffed, and crept forward. Even when the meal was under its nose, it stood long and tested the air for danger. Aidan climbed down from the branch and seated himself against the trunk. The wolf looked at him, but over the past days it had grown accustomed to this curious bringer of gifts. The meat was fresh and soon overcame the animal's fear. As it ate, Aidan heard a soft tread nearby. He guessed it would be time. Murta would have been quieter. Everyone else in the camp would have been crunching leaves and branches from half a mile back. The wolf looked up and retreated a few yards as Tyne drifted in from the darkness and sat beside Aidan. After a while, the wolf crept back to his meal. So this is where you go at night, Tyne whispered. I remember him, Aidan said. The white patch over the side of his face made him stand out. This old wolf once led the pack, once terrified me. It was while we were fleeing his pack that we entered the fortress. They watched the old animal hunched with age, devouring the meat with hungry gulps as his nervous eyes darted around him. You would think, Aidan said, that I'd feel good about this. I've grown while he, my old enemy, has shrunk. Yet all I feel is a terrible ache. I pity him, that he has been called by age to surrender his strength. Old words for one so young. From a song. I always hated that song, hated all sad songs. I thought they made happy people miserable. Now I think I understand them better. Bards write them because they can't hold them back. Sadness has got to flow out or it gets stuck and turns bitter. Tyne sighed. I believe you are right, she said quietly. 
Aidan looked at her. Why did you and Osric not marry? I see it in the way you smile when you bring him his food, and the way he steps beside you at the first hint of danger. Tyne shuffled. And I thought you a child, she said. Then she was quiet for a long time. Aidan waited. Talking with Fergal had taught him to do that. Perhaps, she said, it's like with your bards. There is deep sadness that we both carry. Love opens the gate to the deepest hurt. That sounds wrong to me, Aidan grumbled, partly to himself. Maybe when you've known a little more of what it is to lose those you love, you'll think better of me, better of Osric. Aidan decided to let her assumption be. He wondered what the loss had been with Tyne. He stared out into the moonlight a long time before he remembered a northern fable. Have you heard the story of the two lands? he asked. No, but I'd like to. It's a rillum, but I'm not going to get the flow or the rhyming parts right. As well as I can remember, the tale goes like this. There were once two lands where great battles were fought. After they had ended, both lands had corpses scattered all over. When the clouds approached, the first land said, Leave me. If you pour water onto me, you will spread the poison of these corpses all over and disturb the little peace I have left. And it drove the clouds off. The other land took a deep breath and let the waters wash over it gradually draining the filth away. After twenty years, the first land had become a desert, and the skeletons were the only things to be seen. The second land was renewed. Not even the bones could be found. So, the rain is love? I think that's what it means. Tyne was silent. Then she shifted her feet as if to rise. Don't go, Aidan said. I won't talk about that any more. He heard her pause, then settle slowly back, and realized that he had unwittingly cracked a very hard shell. He did not want to chase her away. She reminded him strangely of his mother. Under the warlike ways, she was just as soft, just as loving, and just as much in need of love. As was he. The moon hung over the mountains and silhouetted the lone grey wolf with silver fire. The white patch on its head was smeared a little towards the bottom, tribute to a good meal. As a breeze trickled over the grass and pressed through the leaves, an owl hooted above them, a soft and hollow tone over the thin rustling. Beyond the wolf, the ground flowed away into hills upon hills, rising slowly and breathless awe of the shadowy mountains. Aidan's blood thrilled at the lonely beauty, the haunting perfection. It was a sight he hoped he would be able to recall for the rest of his days. When the wolf had finished his meal and loped out into the night, they began to make their way back to camp. A distant yell of terror froze them to the ground 
But when they realized that it had come from the camp, they sprang up and ran as fast as the darkness would allow. Aidan knew Tyne was trying to draw ahead, but he wouldn't let her. The orange light of the fire grew until they rushed into the open circle, blades flashing. Everyone was staring at the fortress, and one of the soldiers was pointing with a hand that shook like an unfastened sail in a heavy wind. What is it? Tyne asked. The soldier answered without turning to her. It moved, he said, his voice thin. The fortress is moving. I saw one of the towers change shape. Could it not have fallen? The fortress is very old. No sound, he said, and it moved slow and careful-like, the way a person moves his arm, the way living things move. The campsite was silent for a long time. Osric reminded the sentries to watch all quarters, no matter how compelling the stir. Too many stories? Tyne asked. Osric drew her back to the fire, away from the soldiers, before replying, I don't want to say it to them, but something has moved up there more than once this evening. Murta saw it too. After a deep consultation with Murta, Osric decided to douse the fire. Culver seemed unperturbed by the commotion. He had returned to a scroll covered with strange, thickly packed symbols, the moonlight being strong enough for him to read. Aidan was impressed. The man certainly had unshakable self-command. It seemed nothing could touch him, not even fear. Fergal, however, stood beside them. What do you think? Tyne asked him. I think it is very uncharacteristic behavior for stone, he said. But beyond that, I am as bewildered as you. Culver, too? Him, too. Let us not contribute to their fears, Osric said. Appetite or not, we must demonstrate confidence, or every man here will have deserted by morning. He cut a slice of venison, and the others followed his example, though they ate with their stomachs in their throats, and their eyes continually wandering to the dark mass on the hill. After they had eaten, Carver handed a scroll to Fergal, who left the camp and climbed the side of a grassy rise. When he reached a flat rock, he sat and began to study the parchment, glancing up repeatedly at the dark structures ahead of him. After a while, Aidan found the camp stifling again. He followed his tutor and stood nearby. The symbols on the scroll conveyed nothing to him, but when he lifted his eyes to the hulking shapes on the plain below, and beyond them to the deep silence within moon-frosted walls and shadowed spires, he understood a message more chilling than sleet. Are those the instructions for getting in? he asked. Fergal released a deep breath. Riddles, I'm afraid, not instructions, misinterpreted to our doom. That was enough to put an end to Aidan's interruptions. He peered out into the night, watching to see the movement the others had reported earlier, and hoping not to. The uneventful monotony finally lulled him, and he decided to head back to the camp 
and his blanket. Osric's fears were confirmed. It was starlight when he roused the camp. Six of the soldiers were gone with a portion of the food stores. Osric had seen them slip away, but had decided against challenging them. Mortal fear, he explained, can make a certain kind of soldier more a liability than an aide. I do not want to have to worry about daggers in our backs while facing Kultum. The immediate problem, though, is that we may now be in danger of wolves. Not so, Murta. Possible. It's a big pack. Ten of us might seem more inviting than sixteen. The deserters run a greater risk. Perhaps they will draw the pack off, but I think not. The last time I saw the wolves, they were moving north. On their return, they will reach us first. We must hurry, said Osric. By first light, we need to be across the plain. Tie up anything that jingles or gleams. Quickly now. Chapter 51 The moon had set. It was by starlight that Myrta picked the way over the dew-laden grass. To the left, the dark presence of the fortress could be felt more clearly than it could be seen, causing heads to turn in that direction repeatedly. Fortunately, the ground was level with few obstructions or surprises. The remains of siege engines, army wagons, and their fallen horses had long since disintegrated. Gentle mounds were all that remained from the disastrous final siege of Kultum. The fortress had never been conquered. It stood empty because it had been abandoned. The statues that had looked enormous from a distance now defied belief. Features were not clear in the darkness, but the huge portions of sky where stars were blotted out left no doubt as to the size of these stone monoliths. It said something that the besieging army had not pulled any of them down. Despite the measures taken to move silently, each fall of hooves or creak of saddles was like the clanging of a bell in that undisturbed and silent place. To Aidan, their passing there seemed like a coarse violation of some deep rest. He was quite sure he did not want to wake whatever it was that rested. They kept to the outer ring of the plain, counting off the statues as they passed them. When they reached the fifth, they stopped. Culver and Fergal approached the base, a massive stone platform with a broad stairway that reached from end to end. They spoke in low tones before calling for the others. Culver stood wrapped in thought, as Fergal explained. There are two smaller statues on either side of the giant's right foot, he said. The one that lies must have its right arm rotated until it points to the sky. The one that tells the truth must have its left rotated until it points to the fortress. There was silence. You do know which is which, asked Osric. Not yet, said Fergal. Can we guess? If we get it right, a door opens somewhere. If we get it wrong, the levers jam and the door is sealed. I also suspect there will be something more serious, like a hail of pig-sized rocks. These statues are more than they appear. 
so we must wait for light. Just a little should be enough. Already I think the statues are a touch less inky. As if in response to Fergal's observation, a barbet chattered nearby. Culver sent Murtagh and Senbert up the stairs to the giant's foot, the heel of which reached to their shoulders. The two smaller statues were man-sized. After brushing away a thick carpet of dead moss and inspecting the shoulder joints, Murtagh called for help. These joints will not turn easily. Dust, rain, and time have done a lot. It will take more than two of us. Osric and Tyne joined them. They waited for the light to grow, for the details of the statues to emerge. The two stone forms may have looked alike in shadow, but as the morning crept in, they were seen to be markedly different. The one on the left was of a man with an open, smiling face. One hand was at his side, and the other was held out in a gesture of welcome. The statue on the right was of a hunched woman, hook-nosed and ragged. Everything about her was vulgar, from her crooked bearing to the snarl which twisted her face into a grotesque mask. Both her arms were held out in front of her, bent fingers splayed. There was no welcome here. Culver and Fergal climbed the stairs and halted before the statues, locked in thought. After a silent contemplation, they returned to the base of the stairs and stared up at the giant that towered over a hundred and fifty feet above them. A few centuries of weather had left stains, fractures, and even craters in the stone. Broken pieces lay at the base, tangled in deep grass. But the size of the statue was so great that the damage did not obscure the overall form. This was not just an oversized man. The heavy-boned limbs, swollen hands, piggy little eyes, and cavernous mouth were unmistakable. This was a true giant of legend. Yet he was smiling. Not a wicked, hungry smile but kind and respectful. Though he had the obvious strength to shatter the tower, his open-handed gesture was one of peace. Aidan almost felt kindly towards this simple, benign creature. All waited in tense silence as the two scholars discussed what they saw, comparing the giant with the man and woman. It was clear to Aidan that the woman was the one at odds with the others, her manner and actions falsely represented the situation. He was not surprised when she was declared to be the liar, solving the riddle. While the others prepared to shift the arms, he decided to walk around to the back of the giant statue. Something bothered him. It had been too easy. Any puzzle deserved to be seen from a few angles. Skeet had often encouraged him to nurture his desire to look at things in a way others had not considered. Climbing onto the roof for a better view, Callery had once called it. A walk would give him a different perspective here. The stone foundation was considerable, and it took some time to reach the other side. When he did, he looked up, and what he saw caused him to halt in mid-stride. Wait! he yelled, slipping in the dewy grass as he sprinted back to the others. He glanced up, fearing a dreadful hail of rocks. Fergal, wait, wait, it's wrong! It's the other way around! 
Everyone stared at Aiden as he scrambled around the corner. The men who were straining at the arms stopped. Culver glared, but Aiden persisted. The giant has a huge spiked club tucked into his belt, held against his back. Nobody would carry a club like that unless they were trying to hide it briefly. The woman is telling the truth. The giant is not to be trusted. It's the man who is lying. Nobody spoke as they comprehended how close they had come to tragedy. And in the stillness they now heard a sound that caused the blood to drain from every face. A long, searching howl. They are on the north side of the fortress, Murta said in reply to the questioning glances. The wind carries towards them. They may not know of us yet, but I wouldn't give it long. They will be here soon. Fergal turned to Aiden. Are you sure of what you saw? Yes. I could see the spikes pressing into the giant's back. It looks uncomfortable. Fergal exchanged a look with Culver, who nodded. Do as he says, Fergal called. Lift the man's right arm up and turn the woman's left arm back. They set to work, but the rigid joints defied them still. Another howl filled the air, louder, closer. Osric and Thorma joined in. Even the two scholars climbed the stairs and added their weight to the effort. There, cried Liru, who was standing watch nearby. A stream of grey and white fur coursed around the western slopes of the central hill. At first it looked as if the wolves would run past, but then they stopped, noses to the ground. The scent of horsemeat, said Murta. It won't be long before they see us. He threw his weight against the stone arm, heaving and shaking with the effort. Tyne stopped him. She drew a long, slender dagger and drove it into the joint, wriggling the blade along and dislodging a shower of natural cement and dust. Then she did the same in a few more places around the joint. Osric understood and followed her example on the other statue. They've seen us, Liru called. The plane was large and the pack still a few miles distant, but they moved with bewildering speed. Together, said Osric. The men heaved, and the woman's arm ground slowly back until it pointed to the fortress. The man's arm had further to go, but after two concerted shoves, it pointed to the sky. Nothing happened. All eyes turned to Culver and Fergal. They were looking around. Lero, standing at the base of the other foot, ran towards them, but as she reached halfway, she screamed and tripped, falling hard on the stone. What happened? asked Tyne, rushing up. I don't know. It was like the flagstones gave way under me. Culver and Fergal were there in an instant, walking back in the direction she had come. The stone was grooved, hiding any cracks in the floor, so nobody was expecting it when the surface on which Fergal stood gave way, and he began to descend on a long ramp that was flush with the flagstones on one end and tilted downwards into the earth at the other. He turned around, pressed on the rising edge of the ground with his hands, and pulled himself up again. The stone ramp lifted as he took his weight from it. It's counterweighted, he said. Get the horses and mules. The slope should be gradual enough to take them down. Murta, light a torch. 
It will be black as a dungeon down there. Aidan, bring his horse. Aidan was surprised to see how Fergal took charge without even consulting Culver. Obviously, he was given many responsibilities and was required to act as speaker in these non-academic settings. As he ran back down the stairs to the horses, Aidan glanced across the plain and almost lost his footing. The wolves were close enough now that the wind could be seen rippling their coats as they surged over the grass, pulling the ground beneath them, ears flattened, eyes eager. He seized the horse's reins and led the unwilling animals, clattering and snorting, up the stairs. They knew something was amiss. Myrta had already descended, lit a torch and found a way to secure the ramp in a downward position. The horses did not descend willingly. Some had to be pulled down. The danger of hurrying beasts that were stamping and rearing was not lost on anyone, but the approaching tide presented a far greater danger. The area cleared until only Osric, Thormer, and Aidan stood at the lip of the ramp, shoving the last stubborn horse while Tyne hauled the reins from below. Then the sea of fur reached them. Growling and yapping filled the air as a mass of bodies, about fifty strong, swirled around the base of the statue and began leaping up the stairs. The natural caution had diminished with the size of the party. Osric and Thorma drew their swords while Aidan tried to shove the horse without putting himself in the line of a kick. You two, Osric shouted. Get down below. I'll cover. Ramp's blocked, said Thorma, holding his ground. Two snarling wolves crept up towards Osric. They lurched and snapped simultaneously. His sword sliced into the neck of one, but the other sank its teeth into his leg. Thorma's boot thudded home and launched the animal over the heads of its fellows while his sword swept across a line of approaching muzzles. The wolves backed away a little, but showed no intention of running. They began to circle. Aidan saw there would be no winning this fight. The horse was frantic now as it kicked and plunged, blocking the ramp. Those hooves were as dangerous as the jaws grinning around him. With a sudden inspiration, he drew his short sword, yelled for Tyne to get out of the way, and stabbed the horse in the rump. It twitched, screamed, and rushed down. Clear, he yelled. Let's go. No further invitation was needed. All three leaped onto the ramp and backed into the comparative darkness below. They hurried off the slope and Murta released the latch, but the ramp did not lift as it should have. A glance made it clear why not. Several wolves were creeping down, cautious but not timid. Everyone, lift, now, Osric called, ducking under the stone slab and heaving upwards. All those who were not obstructed by horses joined in, and the stone began to rise. The weight suddenly increased, and it dipped again. A forest of muzzles appeared at the edges, wrinkled and snarling. More hands, Osric grunted. Culver, Liru, and Tyne joined the effort, and gradually the slab rose again. One of the muzzles was pinched in the shrinking gap, and there was a yelp of pain. Aiden, Liru, said Osric, it's too high now for you to reach. Find something to use as a brace. They scurried about in the shadows, 
pushing between restless horses to search the walls and corners. But there was nothing. On the way back, Aidan nearly had his head removed by a panicking mare that kicked out behind her, striking another horse in the ribs with a loud smack. It was so close that Aidan felt the rush of wind on his face and smelled hoof. By the time he returned empty-handed, the ramp had risen and become part of the ceiling. Wolves love to circle their prey, said Marta. Once enough of them had got off the ramp to do so, it rose by itself. I don't think they will push it down again. No animal likes the feel of unstable ground. Every wolf that tips the ramp will scramble off at the sensation. They did not have to wait long for the slab to dip. There was a frantic clicking and scratching of claws, and the little wedges of light disappeared again. Fergal was sure that there would be some lever to reset the positions of the arms and secure the slab, but it could not be found. Osric made no secret of his concern. I don't like leaving this to chance, he said. Uncertainty ahead and danger behind make a poor prospect. And a wound on your thigh, said Tyne. Would you like me to take a look at that? It's nothing, said Osric. Teeth barely pierced the skin. He spoke too quickly. Aidan noticed and wondered why Osric looked like he was blushing. Then he understood that a wound on the thigh would require removing his trousers to have it tended. He grinned at the big general's embarrassment. Tyne raised her eyes from the bloody patch on his leg and was about to argue when she caught herself, and there was no mistaking the blush this time. After oiling and lighting branch and cloth torches that had been made at the last camp, they prepared to leave the chamber. There were two exits. One was a narrow stairwell leading up, apparently through the giant's leg, to what Fergal suspected was a network of tunnels within the statue. The other was a broad slope leading down. The downward incline was steep, but not too steep for horses and the ceiling was high enough for a mounted rider. It was as if the tunnel had been made with that in mind. The torches were not the best. They produced as much smoke as light, arguably more. But it was enough to reveal the precision with which the stonemasons had built this tunnel. The blocks met perfectly. No fringes of mortar had been used to compensate for inaccurate measurements. There were neither dripping leaks nor powdery cracks, but the passing of time was clearly displayed in an orange fungus that spread out over the walls. Its shapes, down to the minutest details, were such perfect imitations of the branches of a tree that it seemed to be a painting. Aidan found the air surprisingly fresh. He guessed that there was a through-draft, not enough to cause the flames above his torch to flap and toss, but enough to continuously change the air over the centuries. They travelled in single file, and in silence. Apart from the clopping of hooves which filled the long passage with a series of multiplying echoes, and sounded like the tread of a hundred horses or more. After covering about half a mile, they reached an upward slope that led into another chamber, this one far larger. Here were racks of weapons and mounted torches. Osric found a sealed pot of tar, which he opened. 
The seal was good, but much of the tar had hardened. The gummy centre was barely enough to supply half a dozen of the torches. After consulting with Culver, Fergal spoke up. We will need to leave the horses here, he said. It is our hope to reach the archives as quickly and silently as possible. At least two must remain with the animals. Captain Senbert and Holt, the only remaining soldiers, volunteered quickly, and at a look from Osric, Thormer said he would support them. He would be more than capable of preventing any cowardly desertion tricks. He came over to Aidan and Lero, leaned forward, and put a big, calloused hand on each of their shoulders. You be careful now. Young eyes and ears are sharp. Make good use of them, and keep those library dwellers safe. He angled his head towards the two academics with a grin. If it were certain that you'd be safe here, I'd request for you to be left with us. But there are no certainties in this place. Staying with the group is probably best. Aidan gripped the commander's forearm. We'll be back, he said. I know you will. Thormer hid it well, but in the clenching of his teeth the truth was plain. He was deeply worried for them. Fergal and Culver turned away from the broad passage that sloped upward and, instead, took a narrow stairway, tightly coiled and steep. Aidan noticed how Osric had to turn his shoulders to prevent them from scraping, and he thought kindly of his own small stature as he passed through the narrow opening. It was a long climb, very long. Breathing became heavy, especially from the front. After more turns than Aidan could count, they finally reached a doorway. The stairs continued upwards, but Culver led them out into a large room, similar to the one they had left beneath them. Fergal remained to drop a white pebble at the entrance to the stairs. If we need to make a hasty retreat, he said, we don't want to be arguing over directions. They passed through a series of passages and doorways, marking each turn with a pebble, and found their way into a different section of the buildings, where the passages were wider and the ceilings higher. A heavy gate, rusted off its hinges, gave them access to a cavernous hall, well over a stone's throw across, and almost as much in height. It was clear that it had once been richly adorned, but now silk tapestries hung in grey rags, and thick brown carpets promised to bury any shoe in dust. A fire pit nearby held a few mounds of powder that would never burn. Down the centre of the hall there was a long table, partly collapsed and riddled with decay. At its far end, another table at right angles to the first stood on a dais. It could only be the royal table. Being made of more delicate wood, this one had been eaten away to a crumbling ruin. The chairs here had all collapsed except one. In the light of the burning torches, pure, untarnished gold shone from under this chair's layer of dust, and Aidan knew that they were the first to enter this place since its abandonment. That metal would not have been left behind. He wondered what else might be lying around. But theirs was a quest for knowledge, and neither Culver nor Fergal gave the precious metal a second glance. Along the hall, 
windows looked out over a large courtyard. The light outside was still weak, the chilly blue-gray shadows of a day awaiting sunrise. They peered out, searching for anyone or anything hostile. Apart from the unnaturally large arms of the creeper that hung from the central tower, the only signs of life were streaks of pigeon dung on the walls. But even these looked to be old stains of long-abandoned roosts, stains that no weather could remove. There's something unnatural here, said Osric. I can't name it, but something is wrong with this place. No birds, said Murta, bringing gradual realization to the others. Very strange for abandoned buildings. They make perfect rookeries. Culver led them away from the hall, through an arched passage, into a wide foyer. A grand staircase with marble steps and brass rails led up, presumably to the royal chambers. On the other side, there was a colossal oak door, now rotten and splintered, and held together by its iron bracings like a pile of leaves in a gardener's arms. This is the part that concerns us, said Fergal. We need to reach the central tower on the other side of a courtyard just beyond this door. It requires exposing ourselves. We will need to move quickly and silently. This door will not open silently, said Osric. Can we not get out through a window? Aidan asked. Fergal held his palms on either side of his belly, indicating his size. The windows that would admit such dimensions are only to be found five stories up. Osric turned to the door. We'll need to lift it before opening, he said, taking hold of a prominent horizontal bar. Murter and Fergal took places beside him, and counting down, they heaved and drew the door back. It did not scrape along the floor, but the hinges sent out a screech that shook the building to its foundations and echoed off all the cold stone and rusted iron in the fortress. They stood in shock for a moment, looking out into the empty courtyard as the sounds fluttered and died away. Culver seemed the least affected. His expression was unreadable as he stepped through the doorway, led them down the stairs and across the flagstones. The courtyard was enclosed on all sides. Beyond the surrounding roofs rose a daunting forest of buildings and towers. Near the middle of the courtyard, rusted manacles were fixed to the ground, suggesting that the royal entertainers had catered for savage appetites. Immediately to the left was a stable, and to the right, a larger building that looked as if it might be a small armory, perhaps dedicated to the tournaments, or tortures, that had taken place here. Aidan tried to peer through the open door, eager to catch a glimpse of ancient tools and weapons, but the interior was too dark. He realized with discomfort that anything within would be able to see him clearly. Here and there were scattered possessions that seemed to have been dropped in flight. A barely recognizable shoe, a rusted spear, a shattered vase, an overturned cart, some ragged shreds of what might once have been cloth, and a crown. It was dirty and stained, 
But that didn't keep the torchlight from flaring in the many jeweled gold surface. One central stone glowed so richly it was as if it had a light of its own. A brilliant, fiery radiance that became smoky and bronzed towards the edges. He had never imagined a jewel like this. Beside it, the other stones, and even the gold, looked like the cheap quartz and tin of children's trinkets. The dancing light in the stone called to him, drew him in. It was easy to picture how this could change his fortunes. He would not need to depend on Osric for his fees, or on Bor and Harriet for his mother's lodging. Malik would no longer be able to look down on him, and he would have the resources to put Eva in his place, and even to deal with his father. He would buy his freedom. He would have standing in society. Even men like Dresborn would be forced to respect him. Aiden! Fergal called. Aiden realized he had stopped and been left behind. There will be plenty of that, but knowledge is our treasure. You should also know that the spoils of a commissioned quest belong by rights to the prince. Aiden tore his eyes away from the dazzling gem and trailed after the group, feelings rioting in his chest. Why should they have to tell the prince? Was it necessary to be truthful to a liar? Wasn't it only fair to deceive one who had deceived them? When he caught up, Liru glanced at him, her dark eyes clear and sharp. You are thinking about taking it and keeping quiet? She said. No. She stopped, turned around and faced him. Maybe, Aiden said. I don't know. Why do we owe the prince anything? They resumed walking. Liru spoke softly. For me, it does not matter. My house is already very rich. For you, I think, you would become poorer. Poorer? Have you lost your mind? Poorer because you would give away your honesty. You would have to lie. But the prince lied to me, and so you would become like him. Her words struck like one of Hadley's blows with the quarterstaff. He recognized the greed clawing inside him, pleading to have its way, begging him to justify taking the crown. Burkhart, too, would have had some means of justifying his actions. Aidan walked on in silence, embarrassed and angry. Enclosing the far side of the courtyard was a wall with a gate standing open, and a gallery where royals had most probably been entertained. To the right of the gallery was a flight of stairs that led them to a broad arched bridge. They kept low as they crossed the bridge, pushing aside some heavy fronds of ivy that dangled from a branch of the giant creeper. Aidan glanced up at this twisting plant with its pillar-like arms that reached out over the city. The intricate shapes that its tendrils formed in the air and against the stone wall were unlike any he had seen before. They almost looked like symbols. He wondered if this creeper shared a secret with the pearl-nut tree at Badgerfields, though it did not give him the same feeling. Instead of putting his ear to the thorny bark, he resolved to keep his distance at all costs. 
Burgle stopped at a wide landing before double doors that were almost a foot thick and stood slightly ajar. These doors led into the enormous round tower that could be seen from leagues around. It was easily as wide as the main buildings of the keep, and several times as high. While the men worked at opening the door enough to allow them in, Aidan approached the wall and looked out into the silent maze of streets. As with the giant statues, everything here was constructed on an imposing scale. All the buildings were large and impressive, none standing under three stories, and some, like the towers, rising to great heights. The result was that the streets remained shadowy. In these shadows were many dark objects that lined the roads. They almost looked like broken tree trunks. In one place he thought he recognized the white spidery lines of a skeleton, though he was not sure if he was seeing that with his eyes or his memories. The graveyard images from his first visit to Kultum kept fluttering through his mind. One thing that was not caused by memory or imagination was the smell. He noticed Murta was also sniffing the air and looking around. That is not the smell of abandoned stone, he said. Could it be wolf droppings? Aidan asked. I don't think so. Reminds me of a rat's nest. Murta did not answer, but moved away from the door and peered down into the shadows of the deserted road. The door shifted with a slight creak, and the others slipped inside. Murta took a careful look around before following. Culver and Fergal led the way down a broad ramp to a wide stone door. They looked, prodded, shoved, and conferred. Fergal broke the silence. We feared as much. There's a secret to opening this door that we do not possess. We will need to use a smaller entrance. Unfortunately, the only way to reach it is by climbing ten floors up to the council room, very deep floors, I might add, and then descending again using a narrow turret staircase that links the council room and archive room. They turned onto a wide spiral stairway and began to climb. After one turn, Aidan stopped. The noise of feet ahead of him made it difficult to hear anything, but for a moment there had been just a hint of sound. What is it? Murta asked, coming back. I'm not sure. It sounded almost like, like, shouting. They waited for the noisy steps of the others to move ahead, but when they listened again, all was silent. While catching up to the others, Aidan noticed with concern that a river could not have left a clearer trail across the dusty floor. With a track like this, they would not be able to hide if it became necessary. Fergal need not have bothered with the pebbles. At the tenth floor, they reached a passage that led past several chambers. At the end of the passage was the council room. The large room was semicircular, the curved side being the outer wall of the round tower. The many windows gave ample light and made the space airy. Aidan looked around. 
A few leather maps had hung from the walls, but these were now largely decomposed, eaten by insects or torn by winds that moved freely through the broken shutters. Ornamental weapons were mounted on walls, spears, axes and swords, mostly rusted to frailty, except, as Aiden was fascinated to see, a few bronze weapons that had developed that pale sea-green corrosion beneath which he knew they would still be strong. He walked around a large central table and approached one of the windows, looked out and caught his breath. Not even Burkhardt's council room commanded a view like this, and he was not even halfway up the great tower. Ahead of him, Lake Volundel was more like a sea reaching far out into Thirna, its western shore well beyond the reach of any eye. To the north, somewhere in the distance, was his home. But he knew, as the thought reached him, that the Misty Vales was his home no more. He leaned out into the window, resting his torso on the deep windowsill, and looked south. The mountains of the Denilan range were as majestic as ever, but the giants on the plain were now well beneath him. He could also see the tops of the fortress walls, and marveled at their width. Along their surfaces, more like roads than allures, were occasional mounds of wood and iron that he assumed to be the remains of catapults or carts. The breadth of the walls would have allowed these to move and pass each other with room to spare. Far below, the labyrinth of streets unfolded. Kultum was not just some mountain retreat. It was a fair-sized city. Getting lost among the buildings would be easy. Looking across to the main gate, he saw the front courtyard. It was a good distance away, but his memories of it were still near. Harsh sounds of something being struck brought Aiden back into the room. Osric, Culver, and Fergal had moved around the central table and were standing before a door. The heavy oak was braced with rusty but tenacious iron, and it held fast against the kicks directed at it. We need the key, said Osric. This lock would not turn, said Fergal, key or not. Osric was not listening. There, that's a key that should fit. He strode across to a snarling statue of polished granite, a violent-looking man standing with feet splayed and arms akimbo. It will take all of us to lift it. Come along. They gathered around and took their places. Don't you start getting used to this, Fergal said to Aidan, bringing a few puzzled looks. They tried swinging gently at first, but that produced nothing more than dust. Then they took a run-up and hit the door with enough force to burst the unseen hinges. The whole structure collapsed forward with a whoosh of air and a clatter that echoed down the spiral stairway. Murta was at the windows immediately, searching for movement, listening for any hint of sound. Aidan did the same on the other side of the room. Nothing. Murta said after a while, but he looked uneasy. He walked across to Aidan and peered out the neighboring window. We are moving too noisily, he growled, and we are leaving tracks that a common soldier could follow. 
Aidan kept glancing behind him as he moved towards the dark stairwell. He did not like having his back to the open door by which they had entered. He waited with Murter at the top of the stairs until the sound of descending feet had died away. They listened, but all was silent. That crown would not have remained in the courtyard if stories about this place were all imagined, Murta said. Keep alert, boy. Our luck may not hold much longer. Chapter 52 It was a long and slow descent, and Aidan found it increasingly difficult to draw breath. The air in here had not been circulated. It was the forgotten air of another time, held captive to grow thick with damp and with the smells of decayed wood and little forests of silent fungi. At the bottom of the stairwell there was another door, this one of iron. But though the door was strong, the hinges had rusted to a papery softness, and one heave from Osric's shoulder was enough to push it down. As the light of torches flooded the space, the whole party gasped. It was not the little archive chamber they had expected, but a great hall, larger even than the banquet hall that they had first entered. Many columns and arches supported a high ceiling, but more striking than the fine architecture and remarkable size were the reflections. Everything here was covered in clean tiles that sparkled and reflected the torches like dew on a spring morning. Light porcelain, some white, some sky blue, made it feel as though the chamber's roof was open to the air above. Oil lamps and sealed oil jars were discovered and put to work, providing far better illumination. The many lamps were mounted against golden reflectors which cast a soft, dreamy light through the whole chamber. As the light grew, the far wall was revealed. It was covered with paintings that were so masterfully done, they seemed almost to move. Boughs dipped, grass swayed, chests breathed, and eyes looked out and watched as closely as they themselves were watched. There was writing on sections of the wall, too, but none that Aidan could read. These were runes he had never seen before, but they were as exquisite as the paintings. Culver was standing before the wall, his narrowed eyes consuming the details. Aidan wondered what the esteemed Chancellor could see that escaped the rest of them, but he dared not interrupt. This was now the great learned man's place and he suspected that anyone who bothered him would be sorry indeed. Culver, Fergal mumbled absently while running his eyes over the shelves. As soon as you're done with your gawping, be so good as to make your way over here. Aidan and Liru stared. A hundred little details suddenly fell into place, and Aidan saw what had been in front of him all this time. Culver is your assistant. Fergal drew himself out of his thoughts and glanced up at them. Exposed then, are we? he said with a touch of humor in his voice. I doubted we'd be able to keep the ruse going on a journey like this. Yes, 
Quite so. He takes the recognition, and, along with it, all the attendant administration and formal duties. That way I can devote myself to the business of knowledge. A far better arrangement. If you speak of it, you will find yourselves chained to reshelving trolleys in some forgotten library for the remainder of your days. Aidan doubted the threat was sincere. No one would believe them, even if they did speak of it, but decided, nevertheless, to heed the warning. Culver joined them, his superior manner gone, thrown off like a discarded cloak. For the first time that any of them had seen, he looked at them and actually smiled. It was almost shy, even apologetic. In that instant, Aidan understood that the cold, imperious air had been no more than an act. No wonder he had seemed so inhuman. Humming to himself, Culvert turned and fell in beside his master, sorting through racks of clay tablets. These tablets must have filled a thousand shelves which projected out from the walls and lined several alcoves. A thought dropped into Aidan's mind. Could it then have been Fergal, whom Giddard had once referred to as the powerful supporter, someone other than Osric who had seen great potential in him? It was an interesting idea. Maybe one day he would ask Fergal himself. Setting the thought aside, he walked over to a shelf of clay tablets. As before, he was unable to read the symbols. The shapes were not really pictures, but there was something more representative about them than simple lettering. He remembered now that he had once seen writing like this. The image returned to him, an engraved pillar beside that aged stone bridge in the north of Denelan. He studied one of the tablets, trying to find a repeated symbol. The search took him all the way to the end before he found a recurrence. An orb with wavy lines cutting through the right-hand arc. But a closer inspection revealed it to be slightly different to the first. Rounder, with an extra wavy line. It did not seem possible for these to be letters of an alphabet. There were too many. Were they words? Or maybe ideas? He compared the two symbols again. Conditions in the lake. Choppy and choppier, or partial cloud cover and more complete cover. He wondered how many of these symbols there were, and how anyone could remember all of them. It's Gellerak, Fergal said, without taking his eyes from the tablets he was shuffling. It was the language of the first literate inhabitants and the greatest innovators our land has known. The language sounds as coarse as rocks falling down a gully, but the words have great depth. Perhaps that's why the scribes so loved to press their thoughts into clay. Aidan had no idea how Fergal could speak Thurnish and read Gellerak at the same time, but it was clear that the task was presenting little difficulty. Here, said Culver, first sighting of the Durot. I have the details of the second siege and here the third, so the timeline moves from right to left. Hopefully. Otherwise this could take a year. They moved to the far left and began to search tablets. 
Inauguration of King Vosk, the three-year drought, encounter with the Arunish, various building projects, commissioning of the twelve statues. Ah, here's something. Unnatural storms. The two men began to work through the shelf of tablets, placing the relevant ones on a marble desk. Talk came to an end. Time passed in a respectful hush, punctuated only by the clinking of clay. Murta hovered near the entrance and disappeared up the stairs every now and then. After what must have been several hours, Tyne set about preparing a light meal from provisions she had brought. Neither Fergal nor Culver showed any interest. Aidan was growing monumentally bored. He decided no harm could come from a better investigation of the chamber, so he took a lamp and headed over to inspect the giant paintings. At first, what he saw looked like a beautiful storm front, but then he began to look more closely. The sky was split between night and day, and from rich-looking clouds a spear of lightning drove downward, solid, fuller than the usual spidery bolts from thunderheads. It was not any storm. It was the storm. The same that had caused rumours to flood Thurna. The same that had shaken Castith and provided substance for years of superstition and rumour. The same from which he had once heard his name spoken. Looking at the image that rose before him was, in a way, like looking at the storm itself. Something of its power was here too. At the base of the lightning, a slight flaw caught his attention. It was the point at which the bolt met the earth, where enormous trees grew. The image was broken here by a section of unpainted lumpy plaster. It looked like a hasty patch-up. Aidan touched it, and the plaster crumbled away, revealing a fist-sized hole. He looked around to make sure that Fergal hadn't noticed. Inside the cavity, something glinted. Aidan brought his eye as close as he could without spoiling the light. It was a large ring. He put his fingers through it and pulled, gradually applying more pressure until a long brass cylinder slid out with a quiet scrape. He was turning it in his hands, wondering if it held some secret, when the ground shuddered. There was a deep grinding and a soft cracking of mortar. Aidan paled and tried to shove the brass cylinder back, but it wouldn't go. Then he had to scramble away, as the wall in front of him began to sweep outwards along the ground with the ponderousness of great mass. It was a barn-sized, swiveling door, and he had released the draw weight. Everyone in the room looked up and dropped what they were doing as the wall pivoted. Once the door was fully open, the grinding and the movement stopped, leaving the dust to settle. All stared into the blackness beyond. You're doing, Aiden? Fergal asked. Sorry, I didn't know anything like this would happen. He held up the brass cylinder with a sheepish look. Fergal did not seem in the least upset. He grabbed a lamp and headed for the doorway. 
the others following. This room was as dark as the first was bright, but the deep echoes told them that it was a lot bigger. Burgle walked down an aisle between large shelves and what appeared to be statues. His lamp revealed the strangest shapes. By the time the rest had collected lamps and followed, he was only a small glowing orb surrounded by colossal objects that loomed between the heavy pillars. Oh, it's a museum, said Tyne as she walked with Aidan into the dark cavern. The air was cold and heavy, carrying the smells of aged bones and hides. Stuffed animals lined the shelves and stood on the ground, coated in films of dust and sheets of cobwebs. A few were so decayed that patches of skin had been completely eaten away, and shed hair lay beneath them in dusty heaps. There was something odd about them, though. Aidan held his lamp in front of a creature he'd taken for a kind of bush pig. Apart from its size, it did not resemble a pig at all. Every feature was a perfect copy of a shrew. Then he found a pair of tatty moths. Though there was almost nothing left of their wings, it was clear that they had been as big as crows. I don't think it's a museum, he whispered to Tyne, the strangeness of the place seeming to demand silence. They can't be stuffed animals. They're too big. Must be models. Really detailed models, Tyne whispered back as she brushed over the feathers of a dove wing as long as her arm. They began to recognize more creatures enlarged to startling, even grotesque proportions. Ants, spiders, beetles, centipedes, bees, mice, and hedgehogs. The bees were larger than a man's head, and the hedgehogs taller than sheep. Some were a little more than two or three times normal size. Others were much more. Aidan would have expected a greater degree of consistency in the models, but as he studied the detail on the hedgehog and saw the decomposition of skin and the bone and sinew showing through, an uncomfortable thought took hold. Though he was not too sure about the beetles, it began to look as if the rest of the animals had been actual living creatures. He found two pygmy antelope the size of horses, and a pair of geese that might have snapped the ridge beam of a roof on alighting, but it appeared that there was nothing bigger. Aidan felt a slight disappointment. These colossal bugs and rodents were all well and good for the girls and academics, but he wanted to see something that had the interest factor of death and terror, like a giant wolf. Burgle was examining one of the ants. Look at this, Murta called from several aisles away. It took some walking and weaving between shelves and displays to find him. He was shining his lamp on an impossibly large snake skin that reached away into the darkness. I don't even want to imagine the size of the snake that wore this, said Tyne. It must have been two feet thick, or more. Fergal looked puzzled. All these animals are in pairs, he said, and their full bodies are here. Where are the dead snakes? Perhaps this was all they could retrieve, said Osric. Perhaps, said Fergal, but it's unlike the Gellarach. They dearly loved symmetry. 
There's a draft, said Murta. There must be another opening on the far side. He moved off to investigate. Aidan took another direction. He was set on finding something more impressive. He walked as fast as he could, ignoring the bones that filled the ten-foot shelves around him. More boring little bones. What he needed... As he turned the corner, a pair of immense eyes glared down at him. He fell to a crouch and almost dropped his lamp, barely managing to stifle a yell of fright. The animal's head was something that not even Osric's arms could have encircled. It had a body the size of a prize bull's and half that again. Lips were pulled back in a snarl, revealing canines longer than butcher's knives. It waited, immobile. Aidan rose slowly from his crouch. Part of him remained convinced that this beast was as alive as he was. He stalked around to the side and relaxed a little, now that he was no longer under those jaws. This animal was well preserved. It had the features and lines of a fox, but the monster that stood in front of him could not have been called by that name. A more careful inspection showed him that the proportions were different. The chest deeper, shoulders wider, jaws heavier, and eyes narrower. It was an enormously powerful-looking creature. It was not just power, though. Something else lurked in that expression. Even though the features were lifeless and the eyes had been replaced with translucent stones, it wasn't the first time he had seen it in this museum. Could it be... intelligence? His light reflected off something behind the animal and its mate. He walked around and held up the lamp. It revealed a fully assembled skeleton of ancient bones still encrusted with clinging rock. He knew nothing against which he could compare the creature except perhaps a house. Whatever it had been, it had been big. Those jaws could have accommodated both foxes. His imagination took hold, and he found his thoughts drifting, painting scenes from an age when such beasts walked the land. An expression of growing wonder crossed his face as he stared up at the skeleton before him and looked back into a forgotten past. A muffled shriek interrupted him. He spun around to see Tyne with a hand to her mouth, staring up at the fox, and Osric grinning beside her. Aidan turned back to the skeleton and decided to get closer. He had to step around a long line of crates loaded with empty sacks. The sacks had crumbled over the centuries and produced a shower of fine dust beneath and around them. That and the gloom almost caused Aidan to miss and trip over the object at his feet. But the light caught it just in time. Here's something that girls will like, he laughed. Ever seen a giant frog? Tyne and Osric approached. It's a bit dark and grimy down there, said Tyne. Pick it up and put it on one of these crates so we can brush it off and get a decent look. Aidan had not expected such an enthusiastic response. He bent to the job with a will. Big frogs were irresistible, always had been, and this one looked like it would have ignored flies and lived on ducks. 
He worked his fingers under the body and lifted, tensing and shaking with the strain. The smooth-skinned body escaped his grip and dropped the half-inch he had been able to raise it. Aiden fell over and sat hard on the dusty floor. It must be made of lead, he said. It's as heavy. The frog's eyes opened, and Aiden realized in one horrible instant that this was no frog. Each lemon-sized eye covered a large section of what he had assumed to be a body. But it was not a body. It was only a head. He suddenly guessed the meaning of the shed snakeskin. A strong hand grasped his collar and pulled him to his feet. Everybody out, now, Osric barked. Back to the stairs, don't run. Nobody disobeyed when the general gave a flat order. Aiden glimpsed lights moving from various points in the chamber. Ahead of him, Fergal dropped the beetle he had been inspecting and hurried towards the door. On the way through the archive room, however, he did manage to pocket a hasty handful of tablets before being ushered up the stairs. What is it? he asked. The word snake was enough to give wings to his flight. Aiden chanced a backward look before leaving the room, but saw nothing. He knew, though, that they might need all the distance they could put between themselves and that serpent. Osric led the way, lamp in one hand, sword in the other. Aidan waited until second last and Murta brought up the rear, climbing the stairs with the sword pointing behind him. Contrary to traditional design, these stairs rose anti-clockwise, giving the right-handed swordsman the advantage on the way up presumably because the archive had been considered the more difficult chamber to infiltrate and attack from above more likely. And so it turned out. Aidan had climbed about halfway when there was shouting, the clash of metal, and screams of pain. A sword, still attached to a hand, came sliding down the stairs. Aidan recognized the weapon. It was the standard army issue a three-foot double-edged blade and a single-handed grip with a short, straight guard. Clearly too short. After a brief halt, they resumed the upward rush. The clash of steel rose again as Aiden burst from the stairs into the council room where he saw Osric pushing back three of the soldiers who had deserted during the previous night. They kept their distance before Osric's huge sword. Aiden noticed that one of them held the jeweled crown. A fourth soldier stood behind them, cursing and clutching his shortened arm, that now ended in a bloody stump. Surprised to see us, said the young, confident soldier who held the crown. Place didn't look so bad in daylight. When we saw how you got in, we decided to collect our share of the loot. You would be fools to get in our way. Osric stepped aside and pointed. Down the stairs, he said. You're welcome to all that you find down there. The soldiers eyed him. So you think me a fool, old man? said the wild-eyed youngster. I can smell the trap in your breath. One of you is coming with us so we don't get locked down there. We are leaving now, said Osric, moving away from the stairway entrance and leading the group around the side of the large central table but the soldiers ran around the other side and placed themselves in the doorway, blocking the escape. 
We saw the wolf get hold of you, General, the young soldier said. We know you won't last in a fight. The boy is a coward who shrinks like a beaten dog, and the girl's a featherweight. Looks like the odds are in our favour. Your ranger isn't even interested. All we require is an escort. Then we go our own way. Murta was indeed distracted. He was looking out the window, holding the edges and creeping along as if following some movement and staying just out of sight. We have made too much noise, he said. He spoke quietly, but the chill in his voice hushed everyone. That was when Aiden heard a sound he remembered well, a deep scraping, like the pouring of sand. What is it? Osric asked, keeping his eyes on the soldiers. Only saw a shadow, Murta replied, his voice rasping with strange emotion. But it was big. Close the door. It was not the ranger captain's rank that caused the soldiers to obey. It was the paleness of his face. They swung the big iron doors of the main entrance closed, one of them scraping along the tiled floor with a shrill whine, and dropped an iron crossbeam into the brackets. All the surfaces were rusted, but the metal was thick enough to still possess formidable strength. Osric and Murta ran back to the stairwell they had just climbed. They raised the door they had smashed down earlier, leaning it back into its frame. It would not stop anything, but it would give warning if moved. Spread out along the wall, Osric said, striding to a position in the middle of the wall between the doors. Multiple angles. Aiden pulled two solid bronze spears from their mountings and, despite what Osric said about spreading out, crouched beside Liru. The young soldier did not like how he was losing control of the situation. Are you putting on a little show for us? he asked, trying to get us distracted. Thump. He turned around and looked at the braced double door of the main entrance. Thump. Rourke, is that you? he called. No reply. He leaned against the door with a mocking smile. This thing is solid iron. You can knock all you want, but unless you tell me... Crash! The young soldier flew across the room and collided with the table, breaking two of the decayed legs and collapsing in a heap of dust and splinters. The crown he had been holding slipped from his grasp, tumbled along the ground, and disappeared through a gap in the smaller doorframe. They could hear it bouncing down the stairwell to the archive room. The soldier was too dizzy to notice the crown's disappearance. He raised himself on his elbows and looked back. The iron door was dented in. Aiden could not understand how any creature could have done this, even to corroded iron. There was another crash. The door dented further, and a hinge burst from the wall. The soldiers began to move away. Their young leader scrambled from the pile of timber and staggered to his feet. The next impact thrust one of the doors across the room and swung the other inward to collide against the wall with a shattering of rock and plaster. The dust concealed whatever it was that now filled the opening. Before the air cleared, there was a scream and an explosive hiss, 
A jet of dark, sticky vapor swelled into a black cloud, foul as carrion, flooding the room with night. Chapter 53 In the sudden darkness, only dim, misty shapes told of the whereabouts of people. Something impossibly large filled the doorway, and it began to move forward. At first, Aiden thought the snake had escaped through the hole at the back of the museum in order to meet them head-on, but size ruled this out. The creature before them was something on a different scale altogether. A yellow eye as big as a shield appeared through a narrow break in the fog. The ink-black pupil flicked around the room, showing a precision that took in every occupant. The enormous eye, full of deep cunning, reduced a warrior to a mouse, nothing more. An outline revealed the young soldier standing in the middle of the room. He produced a soft, shaking moan and turned to run. In near silence, the colossal shadowy form moved with horrifying speed. There was a crunch of jaws snapping shut and a whirling of clouds as the shape glided back to the doorway. Through the rift, they saw an arm projecting from a lipless jawline, twitching slightly as the creature sank into the mist again, leaving no one any wiser as to what it was. Aidan, beneath his horror, had a vague impression that only part of its body was in the room. Yet what was in the room was surely bigger than any animal he had ever seen. One of the other troopers on the far side of the room crawled up against the wall, and the shadows near him thickened. It was then that Culver saw his chance. Ignoring Osric's instruction to remain still, he jumped up into the window behind him. The wall was deep, and the window presented a temporary refuge. Had the shutter frame held together, he might have made it. But the wood cracked, his weight pulled him away, and he swung back into the room. Before he could recover, something in the mist had changed. A silent darkness rushed towards him, and his final scream was cut short with a sickening crunch. Culver was no more. Liru hid her face. She should not have done so. The movement betrayed her presence, and the shadows darkened in front of her. Aidan, crouching alongside, slowly raised the two spears between them, grounding the shafts in the corner between floor and wall. The weapons rattled in his hands, but he kept them pointing to where the mist looked most solid. From hidden nostrils the beast's breath drew and pushed over them, cold and vile as poison. Air blowing in from the windows thinned the black fog slightly, revealing those crouched on the near side of the room, and a great glowing eye hanging in the air the pupils studying Aiden and Liru. Barely moving from his crouched position against the wall, Osric threw a spear, but the beast turned its head at the motion, and the spear that should have plunged into its eye must have struck hard skin. They all heard it clatter to the ground. The eye vanished, but like a trap released, the black shadows bolted towards Osric a movement that might have crushed every bone and smeared him against the opposite wall, but he ducked just enough to escape the full weight. Still, it knocked him to the ground, and he skidded over the floor to the far wall where he lay in a heap of broken wood. 
Tyne cried out and moved impulsively to help him. Again, it drew the beast. She froze, but it was too late. This time Aidan saw a corner of the jaws. They held teeth the size of tusks. The lower jaw dropped, shivering, as if muscles were bunching. No, he whispered. Not Tyne. Please, not Tyne. There was a roar of fury, and Aidan glanced up just in time to see Osric on his feet again, tearing a huge double-bladed axe from the wall. Osric was not one to repeat a mistake. This time he waited for the head to turn. Then he hurled the axe with enough force to smash through a wall, and this time it must have struck the large eye square on. The reaction was volcanic. There was another hissing scream that caused everyone to slam their hands against their ears and cringe. The air was filled anew with black mist as the entire room was shaken by a series of wild collisions. It was as if a giant had taken hold of a tree trunk, thrust it into the room, and begun smashing blindly. Chips of wood and stone flew about, tinkling like hail. The beast's power was staggering. Had they not been tucked into the corners, every person would have been crushed. The hissing and thumping that shook the ground gradually receded. When the air cleared, the smell remained. Everything was coated in slime. The table had been reduced to chips and powder. Statues and ornaments were toppled and shattered, and huge stones had been wrenched from the mortar around the doorway, as if they were no more than pebbles in mud. The entrance had been doubled in size. They got to their feet, rubbing their eyes and swaying. Osric remained on the ground. He looked only barely conscious. He had not quite escaped the thrashings. Murta called for silence. Everyone listened. The retreating sounds were still fading. Then they ended abruptly. It was just a hint, but it was unmistakable. A distant clatter, much like what might be produced by an axe falling on tiles. Murta ran to the window and thrust his head out. Nothing, he said. It's still in the building. A deep scraping rush echoed up from the enlarged entrance. Back to the archive room, Murta shouted. Down the stairwell. Go, go, go! He and Tyne grabbed Osric by the arms and dragged his heavy body across the floor to the narrow stairwell opening across the room from the main entrance. This time the soldiers understood all too well and dashed ahead. Aidan and Fergal brought up the rear, spears pointed backwards, tips shuddering. As they turned towards the arched stone doorway, the light in the room behind them darkened. Aidan pushed Fergal through and dived after him as something struck against the frame, releasing a cloud of dust. Clearly the beast's head was too large to pass through, but the next instant heavy stones were falling all around Aidan, one bruising his thigh and another narrowly missing his head. With a shout of pain, he twisted around and stared at the monstrous shape moving through the billows of dust, striking, twisting, plunging, only inches from his boots. It was actually digging through the stone wall, enlarging the entrance. He scrambled to his feet and tried to leap down the stairs, but something held him fast. Spinning around, he saw that part of his cloak had been trapped under a large rock. 
He knew he should unhook the cloak, but before he could do so, the frame shuddered, and this time something living brushed his shoulder. It drove him to a panic. He pulled and strained to tear the cloak free, half shouting, half crying, as he imagined the beast gathering for another lunge. A hand grasped his arm and pulled. The cloak tore off at the clasp, and he and Fergal lurched forward, tumbling down several stairs ahead of a terrific explosion of stone and dust. Fergal pulled him to his feet, and they edged down into the blackness of the stairwell, all torches having been lost above. They soon caught up with the others. There's another way out of the archive room, Fergal shouted over the hammering of the falling rock. Don't wait here. When the boulders start to roll down the stairs, they won't stop until they reach the bottom. They continued on through the darkness, increasing the pace when a load of apple-sized rocks came tumbling past, striking against legs and ankles. Hurry, said Fargal, as an ominous pounding began to fill the space. How far are we, Murter? About halfway. The thumping behind them grew with every bound. It could only be a falling boulder. We're not going to make it, Fergal shouted. Everyone, press up against the inside wall. There was no time for explanations. Aidan did as he was told. It was no longer thumping, but smashing its way down the stairs towards them. A boulder large enough to do that could kill them all. Aidan turned his face away and held his breath. There was a shuddering impact just to the side, and something rushed past his head, the wind pulling at his hair. Then a scrape and a grunt of pain below him. A few more collisions, a scream, and the sound faded. Fergal? he asked. Just a scratch, Fergal said, then raised his voice. Who was hurt? One of the soldiers, Murta's voice echoed up. Sounds like a broken arm. There was no need for further instructions. They were moving again, as fast as the darkness would allow. After a few steps, Aidan missed his footing and stumbled forward, striking the outer wall. He realized that the falling boulder must have made some large cavities in the stairs. The sounds of digging had grown muffled, but it was obvious that the creature's efforts had not diminished in the least. Soon, the echoes of heavy, tumbling objects reached them again. This time it sounded like there were many boulders. How far, Murter? Fergal called. We're here. Fergal and Aidan took the last few stairs as the light grew. Then they stumbled into the archive room, still bright with oil lamps. Move, Fergal shouted. Away from the door. He pulled Aidan and Lero to the side and the others darted out of the way as three rocks, one almost as high as a man's waist, rushed through the opening, smashing into the shelves on the far side of the room. The soldiers were too shaken to speak, and they stared, trembling. Even the injuries were ignored. Nobody looked for the crown, which would be somewhere under the rubble. Murta and Aidan had their eyes on the cavernous museum door on the far side of the chamber, but the snake had not emerged. What was that thing up there? Tyne asked, her voice shrill. Nobody knew. Fergal hurried away. There are five alcoves in this wall, he said. In one of them, a hidden exit was planned. But I don't know if it was completed. 
Perhaps it is concealed by a shelf or worked into the floor. I'll take the one nearest the museum. The rest of you take the others. Marter, please keep an eye on the museum. There's no telling where the snake could be now. Aidan entered an alcove, and Liru took the one alongside. He began pulling a large rug off the floor and inspecting the paving stones for any kind of groove that might indicate a trapdoor, but the grouting between blocks was solid. Boulders continued to tumble down the stairs. He suspected that eventually the giant beast would be able to dig its way to them. He also knew that if the snake had not been properly roused earlier, this din was likely to finish the job. He tried to concentrate. The walls were next, but packed shelves covered them. He began clearing, placing the armloads of tablets on the floor as gently as his haste would allow. From one of the other alcoves, there was a tinkling crash of shattering clay. Someone clearly had decided that it was time for sacrifices to be made. Aidan stepped back and looked over. It was Tyne. Nothing here, she said, and marched into another alcove. Fergal's indignant face showed itself briefly. Here, called Liru. I think I have it. Aidan dropped the tablets he was holding with a clatter and darted across, the others close behind. Liru was pointing to a brass lever. Wait, don't touch it yet, Fergal cried, pounding into the alcove. He looked at the lever and darted from wall to wall, examining the joins. When he noticed the steel bars in the corners, he nodded. Well, said Tyne, her impatience in no way concealed. Are we going to open this door or not? It's not a door, Fergal replied. Everyone, collect your lamps and get in here. Osric was conscious but stunned, and had to be supported. It was only the soldiers who hung back with distrustful expressions. Suit yourselves, Fergal said, and pulled the lever. Nothing happened. You're right, said Tyne. Definitely not a door. I'm going to try another alcove. Patience, dear. Counterweights can have delays. Well, right now, a delay. The floor shuddered and dropped, causing everyone to reach out for a support. The walls began to slide up behind the standing shelves as the ground beneath them sank. In front of them, the floor of the archive room rose, slowly closing off the entrance. The soldiers were still watching from the archive room. Something caused all three to look towards the museum. As if stung, they spun away and shot across the floor, screaming, fighting each other to get ahead. They dived through the shrinking gap between the archive floor and the ceiling of the cubicle, tumbling onto the heads and shoulders of the rest of the party. One landed on Osric. Tyne gripped his collar and flung him off, none too gently but neither he nor the other two had eyes for anything other than the disappearing entrance. Then they were enclosed. It was rock on all sides. Fergal, Tyne said, is this cubicle hanging from chains? Most likely. But they would be made of iron or steel, and everything iron in this place is rusted. Rust works its way in from the outer surface. As with the main door of the archive room, heavy chain links will still have a good deal of strength in the core. Are you sure about that? Fergal shifted. He was about to reply when there was a sharp clink of metal above them. 
the floor trembled and brought all conversation to an end. Everyone was holding on to something. Another opening appeared where the first had been, dark and cold, rising up from the ground until it swallowed the entire wall. For a long time, they descended in breathless silence until a rocky floor reached the level of their feet. They all lost their balance as the moving platform jolted and came to a rest with a cavernous boom that echoed around them as if they were in the belly of a mountain. And perhaps they were. They had been carried deep under Kultum, into a place they hadn't known existed. Fergal led the way onto a landing. The others followed, holding the oil lamps out, shielding their eyes and peering into the darkness beyond. The cubicle that had lowered them was enclosed on three sides by a hollowed stone pillar. Above the ceiling of this moving cubicle, they could now see the four steel bars were fastened to chains that reached far up beyond the glow of their lamps. Aidan guessed that they ran over a giant pulley and attached to a counterweight somewhere, but was at a loss as to how it all worked. He wondered why the platform had not shot up like a startled pheasant the moment they stepped off, but then realized a simple latch would solve that problem. As his eyes adjusted, he saw a number of carriage-sized stone blocks all around. It looked as if they had been intended as counterweights, with chains and braces lying nearby. The skill in engineering that these people had possessed was like nothing he had ever seen in Castith, and all of this had been built almost a thousand years ago. The sound of running water drew his attention to a channel nearby. Beside it was a deep pit, and beyond that, the stark white curves of a partly assembled skeleton. It was even bigger than the specimen he had seen in the museum, and altogether different in form. It looked like it had been some type of giant lizard, flat, broad, and ugly. The teeth were almost as long as he was tall. Looking at it gave him an icy feeling. Where are we? Tyne asked. Fergal looked around at the hulking shapes of unfinished stone machines, the tools, the aged bones, the channels of dark water, and the great pillars of rock that stood around them like the legs of titans, and reached far up to a roof only betrayed by faint, jagged contours. I have never learned of this place, he said. I doubt that any living man has. If the cavity was natural to begin with, it has been vastly altered. Those abandoned tools suggest that much work was still in progress. Fergal, please, Tyne interrupted, glancing up from Osric, who was breathing hard and shivering. That might be interesting, but— Which means that there is bound to be a worker's exit. Can't we just use another one of these moving platforms? They do go up, don't they? It looks, I'm afraid to say, that they don't go anywhere. As far as the light reveals— Ours seems to have been the only one that was finished. We will most probably have to walk out, but first we need to get our bearings. With what reference? Not even Murta could have kept a bearing down that stairwell. Fergal picked up a discarded rib the size of a spear and began to draw a dusty bowl. The archive room 
and a door in the wall that would be opposite us if we were to look out from our alcove. It was the door we tried on our way in, about here. He drew a line. And at that time we were walking west, I believe. Martyr? A point to the north, perhaps, but I'd settle for west. Using that as a reference, Fergal drew in the compass lines, and beside it, a rough layout of the city. These blocks, he indicated the pale shapes around them, which I presume to be the ballast blocks, are limestone, and not found in a cavern of granite. It means that there has to be a large access point for this cave on one of the main city arteries, but not too near the city gates, where a build-up would cause problems. That reminded Aidan of something. There was a trapdoor in the ground near the main gate, he said. We saw it the first time we passed through. Troop tunnel, said Fergal. Allowed soldiers to reach the gate quickly from the barracks. It wouldn't lead down here. The four regions in the city that have both the broad roads and space required for a mining and construction entrance are the palace, the barracks, the area beneath the markets, and the south quarter. He indicated each on his rough map. The palace is not an option for a worker's entrance. The barracks are here. He thought for a while. I am going to rule that out because of the Gellerac love of military efficiency. Cues of miners would interfere with smooth deployment. That leaves the market and south quarter. He fell silent again. Wouldn't the market be too cluttered for big loads of stone? asked Tyne. Fergal looked at her, or at a point somewhere beyond her, and absently twisted his fingers in his beard. Fergal? And Casteth, that would be the logical conclusion. But the Gellerac had a culture of social elitism that is difficult for us to grasp. The southern suburbs had wide streets because that was where the wealthy settled. Whoever commissioned this entrance would have had to choose between the congestion near the markets and the outrage of the wealthy. I think... Yes, I think I'm going to go at the markets. You don't sound convinced. Quite true, Tyne, quite true. Well, what if you're wrong? Then I will be convinced it was the other way. Now, he said, pointing back to his map, we are currently here, except that we are a few hundred feet beneath the surface. My map, I'm sure you will appreciate, cannot represent that dimension, which means that our most hopeful bearing would be that way. He pointed out into the darkness, roughly in line with the grinning lizard skeleton. Osric, are you able to walk? Of course. Osric pushed himself to his feet, took a step, and crashed to the ground like a felled pine. We'll get him there, said Tyne. Murcher and I can manage. Wouldn't it be better if I... No, Fergal. I am more than strong enough, and your place is with directions. Aidan turned to Liru and lowered his voice. Can't argue about her being strong enough. But I think what she really means by the second part is that her place is with Osric. So, you've noticed too, said Lero. I think even the horse has noticed. Lero's typical smiles were subtle twitches that were hard to spot in broad daylight. Where she stood in shadow, 
she was all but invisible. Aidan wondered if there would be brightening of her expression now. It wasn't likely, considering what they had just witnessed in the council room, but it made him realize how long it had been since she had smiled at him. He took his place in the line that formed and moved out. Maintaining a bearing was imperative, so they were careful to fix a line through three points at any given time, and, when they reached the first, to pick another at the edge of their lamp range. As they walked, they passed more of the giant counterweighted machines, some using levers like oversized seesaws, others chains, some having a part of the mechanism reaching up to the rocky ceiling, but none ready for use. There were many bridged walkways, allowing passage over the channels. These channels were beginning to look like veins the way they distributed the water so evenly. Tools, picks, shovels, chisels, sledgehammers, and numerous contraptions Aidan could not identify were lying where they had been dropped. Carts were abandoned, their stone payloads lying beneath them in neat piles where they had fallen through the corroded trays. There were three more towering skeletons, and many bones still embedded in rock, but no human remains, suggesting that the cave had been successfully evacuated. Apart from the gurgle of water, an occasional scuff of a boot on the rocky floor, or the unintentional kicking of a pebble that skittered away into darkness, the cave was silent. Yet it had a sound, or at least a feeling of great depth, that whispered through the emptiness. Then the skeletons began to grow more numerous, and this time they were human. There were many, and they were all laid out in rows, occasionally overlapping. It was a peculiar arrangement, and Aidan wondered if it had to do with some Gellerak superstition. Could this be their cemetery? Virgil, he called. Why were they placed like this? Fergal stopped and turned. He did not answer immediately, and when he did, his voice was raw. These weren't placed in the sense that you are thinking. These skeletons were lined up because the dung in which they were encased has decomposed. All eyes were drawn across a pale graveyard. Kultum, he said, was abandoned, but a great many did not escape. The air no longer seemed as clean as it had. As they walked on, Aidan found his breathing becoming shallow. It was not just the sense of contamination. There really was something in the air that was not right. Finally, one of the soldiers blurted out, What is that smell? Probably bats, said Tyne. Stop breathing and it will go away. Aidan was close enough to hear her mumble. And so will you. Fergal again drew to a halt, and everyone stopped. What is it? Murter asked from under Osric's shoulder. I think you'd better take a look. After setting Osric down, Murter walked to where Fergal stood. Aidan, of course, was already there. They look like the tree trunks we saw on the streets. Murter froze. Oh, no, he whispered. Fergal raised his lamp, and Aidan did likewise. 
Ahead of them stretched acres of what they now understood to be tree-sized droppings. Fresh droppings. It was what I was worried about, said Fergal. Where else would something that big make its lair? Chapter 54 High up in the round tower, choking clouds swirled in the breeze. From the shutterless windows, rusty afternoon light spilled across the council room, illuminating the haze and creating thick bars of curling gold. A stone shifted and then dropped, releasing a small cloud into the air. The dust did not settle quickly, but when it did, it revealed a room that was vastly changed. Where the narrow opening to the stairwell had been, there was now what could only be described as a colossal burrow. This tunnel reached down almost fifty feet before it was utterly clogged with rocks and crumbled mortar. Another stone came loose and bounded into the void. The sound was hollow. From high in the air, a richly colored mountain barbet dropped onto the windowsill in a flurry of deep ochres and hazy blues. He was a young bird. As he cast a plucky eye over the strange shapes surrounding him, he decided he was impressed. No, satisfied with his discovery. After a few more glances here and there, he settled and began to preen himself. Between every few drawers of his beak, he would tilt his head to the side and babble to himself of his own growing finery and of the magnificence of his new roost. And it was his. For nowhere in the building behind him or in the city beneath was there another creature to be seen. Far below, deep in the earth, Tyne, Murta, and Osric were all heaving for breath but none called for a slackening of pace as they ran. The foul stench had passed, but the memory had not. If anything, the dread had grown. Their heads turned constantly, but the only breaks to the monotony of the cave floor were the many water channels. The ground fell away slightly, and the lights of their oil lamps revealed a glistening surface, dark as slate, but smoother. Oh, water! said Fergal, stumbling to a halt in front of a wide, dark lake. So still, it almost caught me out, or in. Race to the left, said Marta. I don't see it. Trust me, Fergal, it's there. They ran along the side to the left, and after a while the lines of a stone bridge emerged. How did you see it from that far away? Tyne demanded. Peripheral vision. Better perception in darkness when not looking directly. Yes, yes, I know all that, but I saw nothing. I'm convinced there's a cat hiding somewhere up in your family tree. The bridge was long and wide, spanning a body of water that was a few hundred yards across and could have been anywhere between a foot and a mile deep. When they reached the land on the other side, they passed a cart that still held its load, and it sparkled. This time Aidan ignored it and ran on. He didn't want another confrontation with Liru. The soldiers, however, lingered, and when they caught up, their pockets were bulging. The flaps of their coats were down, and nothing showed. 
but they were unable to conceal the glittering that escaped from their eyes. The ground began to rise again, more steeply now. It was too much for the staggering Osric and his bearers. We can't slow down for them, one of the soldiers said, his voice raspy and dry. Good point, said Fergal. Why don't you three run along, and we'll catch up? Nobody ran on. They all knew that Fergal was the only one capable of finding a way out. It's time we took charge here, the soldier announced, reaching for his sword. But Murta slipped across like a shadow, and had his knife at the man's throat before the sword was halfway drawn. Aidan stared. He had never seen anyone move that fast. Want to play? Murta growled. The soldier raised his hands slowly. Murta took the sword, handing it to Tyne. Then, in another cat-like burst, he knocked the man back and snatched the weapons from his two injured comrades before they were able to mount any resistance. Osric, Murta said, may I kill them? When the general spoke, he sounded tired, and his teeth were clearly gritted against tremendous pain. It would probably be justice, but the procedure for punishing their crimes is a little more involved. My conscience could not accept such executions, though a part of me wishes you hadn't troubled yourself to ask. Murta's knife hovered. Everyone held their breaths and stared. Slowly the blade descended, but it was not resheathed. Murta tucked it against his forearm and carried it there as they resumed the climb. The confiscated weapons were left and forgotten, but the tension was not, and it held a keener edge than any of the abandoned steel. They had climbed only a hundred feet when Murta pointed. Could that be a way out? he asked. It was still hidden in darkness, but as they approached, the light revealed a towering wooden structure that rose to the height of the ceiling that was now only just discernible three hundred feet or more above them. The wooden beams were thick, and though they had suffered from the passage of time, they retained enough strength to hold together. I don't think it's a way out, said Fergal. There's only one other thing it can be, and only one way to be sure. Hide your lamps under your cloaks for a moment. Try not to set yourselves alight. They did as they were told. Can you see it? Above the tower? Aidan peered up into the darkness. The faintest point of light reflected back of them, though there was nothing to reflect. Looks like a sliver of daylight, said Murta. It faded. Daylight would have remained, Fergal explained. This tower was built to retrieve an earth star. The gems absorb and radiate light for a short time. That's how the Gellerek discovered them. And entirely by accident. Why didn't they take it? Aidan asked. The tower seems to be right there. It was always an official ceremony, one of many things that I imagine were interrupted. Let us be gone. They continued up the steep slope, but a noise from behind drew Aidan's attention. He turned and stared. The uninjured soldier had remained at the tower. He was already thirty feet up the ladder, lamp swinging. 
Look, Aiden called. He's going for the Earth Star. They stopped and faced around. Don't shout, said Fergal. We can't risk the noise. He has made his choice. They turned and left the lone soldier, rising into the inky darkness behind them. The cave narrowed and looked as if it was about to split. Murta stopped. Quiet, he said. The party drew to a halt. Aidan tried to still his breathing. What was it? Fergal whispered after a while. I thought I heard a fall of stones. It sounded far off, a long way behind the wooden scaffolding. The sudden pounding of blood in Aidan's ears made it difficult to hear anything else. Put out all the lamps but Fergal's, Murta whispered. The darkness swamped in on them. Now be careful with your feet. Lift them high so you don't kick a stone. Fergal, lead on. They reached the split. There were abandoned tools and mounds of broken rock on both sides. Fergal stood in silence, looking one way, then the other. Murta, he whispered. What do you see? After a brief pause, the ranger captain replied, Left, I can see lots of edged objects, maybe tools in racks. Right, nothing. I think... This time there was no need for him to call for silence. They all heard it, a deep washing of parting water. They spun around. The lake was hidden in darkness, but the climbing soldier was a starry beacon. Aidan hoped the climber would be seen first. He was too frightened to even recognize the selfishness of the thought. He hurried after Fergal, almost pushing himself in his haste. They took the left split, and sure enough, Fergal's pale lamplight fell on rows of shelves, part filled with mining and construction tools. Aidan realized that it would be logical for this to be located near a main entrance. The cave narrowed further. The ceiling dropped until it was less than a hundred feet above them. They passed a large metal cage, jumped a water channel, and stopped before a deep rectangular pit. The lamp revealed skeletons strewn across its floor, but unlike the other skeletons, these were crushed, absolutely flattened, as if they had been painstakingly hammered until no ridge or mound projected upwards above half an inch. Beyond the pit was a solid rock wall. A horrible realization took hold of Aiden. Fergal had been wrong. For all his brilliance, he had brought them to a dead end. A faraway shriek of terror caused the whole party to turn back as one. In the distance, they could still see the soldier on the ladder. He was more than halfway up, but something was amiss. The lamp had fallen, burst open on the beams, and set the wood alight. Clumsy fool, Tyne muttered. I don't think it was clumsiness, said Murta quietly. Watch the tower. As the soldier clung to the ladder and managed to get his dangling feet back onto the rungs, the entire structure shook and he was nearly flung into the air. With one desperate hand he managed to retain his hold. This time he wound his arms and legs around the beams like a frightened toddler clinging to his father's leg. The flame spread quickly through the dust-dry timber. Something. Big, shifted beneath the tower. A shadow, it seemed, 
but it did not waver with the flames, as a shadow would have done. A crack of splitting beams echoed through the cave. The tower shuddered and leaned. Sounds of rippling fire traveled across the space, fire that cast its glare over the lake that now shimmered with countless reflections. An arching pillar of smoke stood up from the ground, weaving and leaning, but then Aiden realized that the fire had not yet reached the ground. It could not be smoke. He heard someone whimper nearby as all began to grasp the full size and form of the beast in whose lair they were trapped. It had the long, supple lines of a serpent, but the impossible size of a mythical dragon. And its shape was different, too, broader, more lizard-like, and far more powerful. The hide was an armor of scales, black as midnight, interrupted only on the underside by a pattern of sickly, off-white bands that looked almost like a host of grasping arms. The monster reared over a hundred feet into the air, and that was probably less than half its body. Instead of trying to think of some way out, Aidan stared, transfixed by the sight before him, the lurid terror holding him in a vice. Flames reached the soldier, and his screams tore through the air. The dark pillar rose up behind him, no longer hidden in shadow, bright flames reflecting off its metallic hide. The soldier drew himself up, set his feet on a rung, and leapt away from the inferno. He did not travel far. The animal's lunge was precise, the speed blinding, and the soldier's scream was cut off. There was more than one breath of horror. Aidan turned to Fergal, but Fergal was not to be seen. The light from the burning tower had rendered his lamp unnecessary, and he had moved off without anyone noticing. Aidan started back towards the cage they had passed earlier. He saw Fergal standing in the shadow, staring at a puddle of water that had formed beneath a leak above him, twirling his beard. Fergal? Bring the others over, will you, Aidan? Aidan's mind was spinning, so he made no attempt to reason simply ran back and passed on the message. When they arrived, Fergal ordered everyone into the cage. It won't work, Tyne objected. That thing will tear through this cage like it's made of straw. Fergal ignored her. He was pulling on a rusted chain nearby, producing some shrill screechings above him. Aidan cringed and spun to look behind him searching the area around the fire which was now a tumbling inferno, lighting the cave for half a mile in each direction, and glaring off a thousand sparkling surfaces. But there was no sign of movement. Or was there? A ridge of dark rock stood between them and the blaze. Aidan didn't remember that ridge. Fergal, he called in a trembling voice. Fergal, hurry! Fergal released the chain, stepped into the cage, and closed the barred door with another shriek of metal. Aidan winced. We're in a trap, Tyne whispered. Why are we here? Patience, Tyne, Fergal said. Nothing more we can do, and panic won't aid our cause. Like I said, canterweights can take time. A reverberating thunder filled the air as the tower split and began to collapse. 
Flame-wreathed timbers hurtled to ground with a slowness conjured by distance until they plunged into the growing hill of coals. Something snatched Aiden's attention away. There was a clatter of chains above, a violent lurch that had everyone staggering to regain their balance, and the cage lifted and began to rise into the air. How did you work it out? Aiden managed, trying to mask his terror with interest. It was the pit with those crushed skeletons that gave it away, said Fargal. That's where the counterweight comes to rest. The dripping water was the clue to explaining the water channels. Weight equalization. The chain I pulled must open a sluice in a channel above the cave. Water rushes into what I presume is a hollowed-out limestone block until its weight is greater than ours, and we begin to rise. Aidan was pretending to listen while his eyes searched the ground below. Fergal continued, The movement probably causes the sluice to close, so we don't accelerate as we rise. At the top, there is likely to be another set of chains to adjust the water level in the ballast block, according to the load going down. Simple, but most good designs are. Aidan realized Fergal had stopped talking. He didn't want to reveal that he had missed every point, so he asked, How were you able to think that out while the soldier was trying to escape? I could not bear watching again. I had to turn my thoughts elsewhere. Fergal, said Murta, I think silence would be wise. Look. At first Aidan didn't see what Murta was referring to. The fire still raged in the distance. Though the light was glaring, the dark rock and undulating surfaces still hid much in shadow. There was the lake, its waters beginning to settle, the rows of carved stone columns, a motionless army, and the dark cave floor, slate-like in the shadows. Apart from that pronounced ridge about halfway along, there were no distinct features. Then the ridge shifted. The simultaneous flinching of every occupant caused the cage to sway and creak. Aidan looked up and wondered how deeply the rust had sunk into those chains. He looked back. The ridge was gone. They were now a good fifty feet in the air, and an arch of the cave ceiling began to obscure the view. The steel floor blocked the lower angle. After a few more feet, they were no longer able to see anything beneath them. Weapons out. Osric wheezed. Aidan understood, though he had no illusions of matching Osric's throw. The look of calculation he had seen in those yellow eyes had convinced him that such a trick could not be repeated. They readied themselves, blades pointing out through the bars like the spines of a hedgehog. But this was an unhappily plucked hedgehog. With the soldiers disarmed and Osric unable to rise from the ground, the defense did not look reassuring. Chains clinked and creaked. The counterweight appeared from above, passed them not far to the side, and dropped away at a speed equal to their ascent. Aidan was able to glimpse the pool of water in its hollowed-out center before it disappeared from view. With the firelight cut off, they rose into a darkness relieved only by Fergal's oil lamp. He snuffed it, and all was lost to the eye but the faintest outlines. Creak, rattle, clink, clink, clink. 
If there was movement taking place beneath them, the growing noise of the chains masked it. Still they listened, straining their senses to the limits of that divide between the real and the imagined. Aidan was just beginning to relax when his ears were assaulted by a hiss like the spray of a tempest. He gripped the bar in front of him just as something slammed against the base of the cage and threw it upwards. For a perilous moment they hung in the air, the floor no longer beneath their feet, and then steel and flesh fell as one and came to a jarring halt as the chains locked taut. But not all of them. The cage staggered and listed over to the side as one of the ancient links broke free and the chain tumbled down onto the roof bars with a deafening clatter. Everyone slid over the floor and came to a stop with arms and legs stuck out through the bars, wriggling, squirming to work their way back in. Aidan almost impaled himself on his sword. It slipped from his grasp, but snagged at the edge where he managed to retrieve it. Lyra was less fortunate. Hers flew out beyond reach and fell away. They scrambled to their feet as best they could, braced themselves and waited. Aidan's arm was scratched raw from the rusty metal surfaces. The space around them constricted, more heard than seen in the darkness. Aidan caught his breath, but then guessed that the cage had entered a channel in the rock. They were nearing the exit. The angle of the cage, however, was wrong, and the edges caught on protrusions, scraping and juddering with a harsh metallic din. It was a good thing no limbs still dangled. They would have been torn off in a blink and a scream. The clattering did not relent until a dim light grew above them and they screeched to a halt in a large storage or loading room, partly filled with stone blocks and mining equipment. Daylight, at last, poured in through windows and warehouse-sized doors. The cage did not quite reach the level. It was still partly sunk in the channel, which meant the door could only open part way. They squeezed out, one at a time, and climbed up onto the landing platform. Virgil and Murta remained until last. As Fergal was stepping up, the cage shuddered and jumped several feet, launching him up in the air. Tyne and Aidan reached out and caught him as he dropped onto the edge of the platform. For a moment the three of them stood tottering. Leru darted in, gripped Fergal's cloak and pulled. It was enough to shift the balance, and they staggered away from the drop. Hurry, Marta! Fergal shouted. I think it's found the ballast chains! Murta was still inside the cage. He tried the door, but it was now completely obstructed by rock. He was trapped. The group stared in horror as the cage lurched again. This time another chain snapped and the tilt increased. Murta grabbed hold of the bars and scaled them with wild haste. Clinging to the roof struts, he traversed until he found a bar that was partly detached at one end. He put all his weight on it and wrenched. It moved, but it would not give. He reversed his feet, shifting them and placing them against the roof to push his body downwards as he pulled on the loose bar again. His face bloomed red, veins swelled, and his whole frame shuddered with the effort, but still the bar would not yield. Chains snapped taut again, and the jolt threw murder to the steel floor. A link burst, and another chain fell slack, dipping its corner into the waiting emptiness. The cage was now beneath the level of the landing. 
Murta was on his feet again and up the bars, straining with frantic desperation. Oh, said Liru, looking away. I can't watch this. Aiden glanced to the side and noticed that Tyne was not there. His eye caught movement from behind, and he saw her now, sprinting back from a tool rack with a sledgehammer. She rushed past them all, leapt, and landed with graceful precision on a small square plate in the center of the cage roof. Then she spun, raised the sledgehammer, and struck at the bar Murta had attempted to loosen. The first blow glanced to the side. She gritted her teeth and swung again. This time the bar broke free and spun down onto the floor. Murta surged up through the gap and leapt onto the outer frame. He turned back, helped Tyne across, and hoisted her up to waiting arms. Then the last chain broke. Tyne's scream was even louder than the clatter of steel as the cage, followed by the chains, dropped down the shaft, crashing from side to side as it descended. Murta, who had been standing on the cage roof, was thrown against the rock walls where he clawed in vain and fell back onto the bars. For an instant the structure wedged in the darkness, right at the very roof of the cave beneath them. Aidan felt a surge of hope, but it was snatched away. There was a creak of metal, a shrill scrape, and an eerie quiet as the iron enclosure fell away into the void. The dread silence held them for a moment. It ended with a crash that boomed up from hollow depths. Could he have caught onto the rock when the cage jammed? Aidan asked, his voice trembling. Murder! Murder! Tyne screamed. They all listened. There was no reply. Again and again they called until their throats ached, but the only sounds that reached them were the soft collapses of burning timber. Aidan saw that Lyra was crying. Then he realized his own cheeks were wet. When it was certain that Murta was lost, Fergal drew them away from the edge and helped Tyne support Osric. They hurried to the large doors and stepped out onto a broad street. Fergal glanced around, getting his bearings. Then he called Aidan and pointed. This road bends, but it will eventually take you past the palace courtyard. From there you'll recognize the way back. Why are you telling me this? Aidan asked. You need to get word to Thormer, and you need to get Lyra to safety. But I'll hear no argument. We will be slow, perhaps too slow. Your lingering will do us no good. In fact, the larger the group, the slimmer the hope of remaining unseen. Now go! Aidan set off with Lero at a run, the two injured soldiers following. They kept to the shadowed walls as much as possible, glancing around every corner before crossing roads. Coming to a wide open space, they stopped. Something remained of a few stalls and stands, but otherwise the place was cluttered with debris. It was the old market. Aidan decided not to attempt a dash across the middle and instead took a course through the long shadows of the high western walls. As they completed their circuit, they looked back to see the soldiers entering the market square and running straight across, stamping and kicking their way through the disorder with enough noise to travel several blocks down the silent streets. Idiots, Liru said. 
They turned and ran on. Twice they had to cross the road to negotiate once imposing statues, marks of the city's former magnificence, now stretched out on their broken faces. And often they danced between skeletons. Eventually the leaning gate to the royal courtyard came into view. They passed through it and ran across the open space. Aidan knew the crown would be gone, but he looked anyway. They rushed through the main doors, down the sleeping banquet hall, along the series of passages still marked by Fergal's pebbles, and reached the stairwell. No lamp, Aidan said. It's going to be night down there. He looked behind him. The two soldiers had closed the distance. They were sprinting, and the panic in their eyes was fresh. Move! the first shouted. With a hand on each wall, Aidan led the way down the narrow stairs. Liru's light steps and shallow breathing followed close behind. The soldiers were moving fast, too fast. It wasn't long before one of them fell, thudding and wincing until he came to a stop just behind Liru, where he swore freely and struggled to regain his feet. He was lucky. Such mistakes could be fatal. I never saw the snake you woke, said Liru between rapid breaths. Was it small enough to follow us here? The head was as big as a saddle. I think it could get down this stairwell, but I'm sure it could eat a horse. They burst from the darkness into the staging chamber. A torch flickered with a dark red flame and black smoke. And as he looked around, Aidan knew they should not have come here. Chapter 55 Slip the net, did you? It was Rourke, the heavy soldier with the loose jaw and slippery, leering eyes. He flung a crossbow down, drew a very bloody sword, and strode towards them. From behind, a noise of pounding feet grew, and the two soldiers burst into the room, knocking Aidan and Liru to the side and tumbling into Rourke. The first clutched a bleeding head, and the second a clotted stump of a forearm. Monster! the first of them gasped. Quick! We need weapons! Monster! Rourke said, raising his eyebrows, smiling slightly. Some kind of serpent-dragon thing. Oh, yes. You just go ahead and laugh. It's real, and it's as big as a whale. It swallowed Marvin and Drake like they were rats. Marvin and Drake were rats, and you're a gutless, spleenless, brainless liar. What really happened? Rourke shouted, spit leaping from his flabby, lopsided mouth as he shoved the man in front of him. While the soldiers bawled and cursed, Aidan looked around the room. Senbert and Holt were on the floor, gagged and bound. Aidan felt his knees weaken as he recognized Commander Thormer lying in a dark pool. There was a crossbow bolt protruding from between his shoulder blades, and it looked as if someone had been hacking at his head and torso. Aidan turned his eyes to Rourke. Only the lowest of wretches could shoot that big-hearted man in the back. And then he tried to steady himself, to keep his anger back and his eyes from misting. Images of a lazy river 
and a quiet porch that would now remain empty kept tugging, goading him. Thorma had not deserved this. These soldiers would be chased down and hanged if word ever reached Castith. Their lives would depend on making sure it never did. Thorma, Aiden realized, was only the first. As soon as the soldiers ended their argument, he and Liru would be silenced for good. Aiden noticed Holt looking at him. When their stairs locked, Holt motioned with his eyes and head down the passage. The message was clear. Run! Heading back to the others was not an option. The entrance to the stairwell they had just left was blocked with jostling soldiers, and the ascending ramp was an unknown. The long corridor out was the only escape. With small steps, Aiden edged away from the light, taking Liru's arm and keeping her beside him. He had learned that sudden lateral movement would be more likely to draw attention, so he backed directly away with slow steps. The black slime still clung to them, so as they neared the end of the chamber, they almost dissolved into the shadows. They could now move to the side. Aidan drew Liru quietly towards the tunnel. Five paces. He felt the ground with his foot before each step. They could not afford to stumble. Three paces. The soldiers fell silent. His grip tightened on Liru's arm, and he prepared to run. But the lull was brief. The voices grew again, louder than before. Aiden and Liru slipped into the darkness of the long passage. Shoes off, Aiden whispered. The stone was cold but smooth and dry. A red glow from behind was just enough to show them where the walls were. They set off at a run, swift and silent. After a hundred paces, the darkness was complete. They slowed down but kept jogging, arms held out on each side. Whispered reflections from their own pattering feet helped them sense their way between the walls. Aidan thought they might be nearing the end when there was a terrific din of shouting. It was followed by the ominous clatter of hooves as a rider appeared behind them at the far end of the tunnel, flaming torch in hand. The light was only a spark in the distance, not enough to show Aidan the incline ahead. He and Liru both pitched forward as they reached it. They scrambled to their feet and hurried up into the chamber where the wolves had pressed them. It was dark in here. Aidan took Liru's hand for fear of losing her. He worked his way along the dark walls until he found the narrow entrance to the stairway he had seen on their arrival. The thrumming hooves drew nearer, shaking the dark space with echoes. Climbing these turret stairs, far steeper than anything they had seen in the fortress, without a light, would be precarious at best, but there was no choice. Aidan went first. The stairs were narrow, even at the outer edges. Each was at least twice as high as it was wide. A fall here would be much like a fall down a ravine. Bare feet helped somewhat, but the surfaces were dusty, and even bare feet could slip. They climbed at a pace that was balanced between urgency and caution. The hooves fell silent. 
They climbed on, though his hands were encumbered by the boots he was holding. Aidan found it necessary to use both hands and feet. He whispered for Liru to do likewise. The darkness made it all too easy for them to topple over backwards. He was sure there would be exits in the rock at stages, maybe narrow passages that would enable them to loop around a pursuer, but he found none, only the interminable stairs. He was puffing hard now. But then a doorway appeared in the outer wall. A faint radiance betrayed the narrow exit where the stairs continued on upwards. Aidan made the decision quickly. He slipped through the opening into a dimly illuminated space. It was a long and narrow room filled with racks from floor to ceiling. Some held arrows and crossbows that were mostly disintegrated, and the rest held rocks grouped in sizes. Hundreds of them. Trolleys stood beside the racks, many already loaded. Aidan hurried to the far end of the room. It opened onto a wide corridor running left and right. Cut in the outer wall were arrow slits and, between them, slightly larger openings. The featured surface on the outside of the statue had completely hidden these. Behind the openings stood compact catapults of a design Aidan had never seen. They were eaten through with rust and cloaked with moss and ivy, but what remained of the intricate arrangements of hinges, rails, and wound steel looked enormously powerful. These towering statues did far more than provide lookouts and archery posts. They were guard towers in disguise. Aidan had no doubt that the range of the catapults overlapped that from fortress walls. It meant that a siege force would have been caught in a death zone, bombarded from both sides. The rocks gave Aidan an idea. Let's try and roll one of these down the stairs, he said. They rushed back to the entrance, grabbed the closest trolley, and pushed it, but the ancient wheels were rusted solid. Aidan grabbed one of the mid-sized boulders, wrenched with all his might, and staggered with it in his arms to the opening. As he rolled it out onto the stairs, a large hand gripped the corner of the doorway. The first impact of the boulder was followed by a roar of pain and anger, but Aidan didn't wait to find out what the damage was. He whirled around and yelled at Liru. Run! Go right! Go right! Before he reached the end of the room, he caught up to her, grabbed her arm, and led her to the left. He hoped Rourke hadn't seen. They rushed along the gently bending corridor, weaving between trolleys and catapults, stumbling occasionally over boulders hidden in the dusty half-light. After fifty paces, they reached a turret stairwell leading up, where the passage continued to encircle the giant statue. Aidan worried that they might encounter Rourke circling in the opposite direction, so they took the stairs. It led them up to another level, much like the first. They stopped and listened. Aidan was unsure now. Could Rourke have found another stairwell? Could he be on the same level, ahead of them? The silence was broken only by the low hooting of wind through arrow slits. Then there was another sound. They both heard it. A soft, metallic scrape, like the tip of a sword brushing stone. The sound a man could make if climbing a turret stair with his sword held out in front of him. 
Rourke had not fallen for the trick. He was right behind them. They ran. The angle of the outer rock here was slightly different, allowing shafts of sunlight to slice across the passage. It made the obstacles even more difficult to spot. They both tripped several times. When they reached the ammunition room, identical to the one below, they stopped and looked back. This time, there was no uncertainty. Big steps pounded towards them, and a tall figure flashed from the darkness whenever it cut through a shaft of light. Aidan hurried past the racks to the doorway that opened onto the original stairwell. Up or down? There was no time to ponder. He chose up and climbed a little more than a turn before stopping. Quiet, he whispered. They heard the scrape of Rourke's jacket as he entered the stairway. Then he fell silent, obviously listening for his prey. After the sudden exertion, Aidan found his head was less than steady, like water slopping around in a recently moved tub. It made his orientation on the steep, dark stairs uncertain, and for a dizzy moment he felt as if he were falling backwards. His fingers were cold from the stone under his hands when the sound of boots reached him. Rourke was moving down. When the impacts of his large boots had faded to near silence, Aidan started climbing again. He remembered the height of the statue and wondered how much of the giant was left when he thumped his head against something above him. There was a flash of light, then darkness and pain. Ah! What is it? Liru asked. Aidan reached up and pushed. The trapdoor broke off its rusted hinges and fell away with a clang. He winced at the sound. The light revealed a movable stone block beside him. He guessed that it could be slid across to seal off the opening above, but he could not see how to shift it. He climbed the last few stairs up through the trapdoor. As he stepped into the open air and looked out, he immediately crouched. Liru crawled out and Aiden replaced the trapdoor, hoping their pursuer would be uncertain about the direction of the sound and abandon the chase in the darkness. As Liru stood, her knees bent too, and she instinctively put a hand to the ground. They were standing on a small, circular platform, perhaps twenty feet across, obviously on top of the giant's head. A low, ivy-clad parapet surrounded them. They could now see that the statues on either side had similar platforms on top, each overlooking the green plain that rolled out a long, long way below, rich velvet and the afternoon sun. But it was not only the height that was causing them to stoop. It was the wind. A thick bank of cloud was barreling in from the mountain, and the gusts that swept majestic grassy waves down the hills and across the plain were almost pushing them off their feet. Then something extraordinary began to happen, and Aidan felt a wild excitement. Look, look, he said, pointing. It's the storm you missed last time. It's happening again. Liru turned and gasped. Bright afternoon hues began to peel away above the curiously shaped bank of clouds, revealing the azure of night, and from this deep blue darkness 
stars emerged until they covered half the sky. The western sun still cast its glow over the land, painting it with copper fire. The wind picked up, and the clouds continued to alter shape in the strangest ways, as if they were being molded rather than blown. And then they began to move as one, as an army charging in formation, though no army ever moved with this speed. They rushed forward until they were directly above. Then they stopped, and all fell silent. The wind died, birds hushed, the whole land waited. It was like a scream in the emptiness of night when the broken trapdoor slid open. Chapter 56 A head emerged from the stairwell. Rourke's half-lidded, cunning eyes fixed themselves on Liru. He was a big man, and strong. Aiden had seen him during the Fen encounter. He had not gained his dangerous reputation for nothing. Aiden drew his short sword and considered rushing forward while Rourke was still half-buried, but the man's long arm and longer sword were already clear, swishing as casually as a tomcat's tail. You gonna stand against me, you little coward? He stepped up onto the platform, bigger than Aiden remembered, now that Osric was not nearby. Aiden, Lyra whispered, I lost my weapons earlier. I will not die at his hand. If you cannot fight him, I will jump. Aiden stamped down a black upwelling of despair. He concentrated on the swords, trying to distract himself from what he knew was lurking inside him. Given time, he would have mastered this weakness, or at least tried with every ounce of strength he possessed. But time had been denied him. He ground his teeth and held himself rigid in a guard stance. You defy me! Rock yelled and strode forward. In one horrible instant, the soldier was no more. All Aidan could see was his father. They were in the old kitchen back in the Misty Vales. His mother was crouched on the ground, crying. Aidan's words still hung in the air. He had actually reprimanded his father, tried to intervene. But instead of softening with remorse, Clawman's eyes flickered wild and black, spilling rage as they fixed themselves on Aidan with a predator's intent. As he took that first stride forward, and his arm drew back, something was different, and Aidan felt it in every bone. This was not discipline. It was assault. It was betrayal by the one who had been his strength. Even before the blows began to fall, his trust was violated, and something broke deep in his mind. Planting a fear more vivid than nightmares, more destructive than hemlock. The giant figure advanced. Though Aidan fought the vision with all the strength left in him, trying to clear it away as if groping at the threads of a rope-like web clinging to his face, its hold on him was too strong. The image of his father loomed higher and higher. He saw the tip of his sword fall as strength drained from his arms. His legs grew weak, and he knew they were buckling. Then... 
A movement to his side reminded him of Liru, and, dimly, he recalled that she was unarmed. He cried out as he set his knees and clamped them. For once they held. He would not fall to the ground. Yet, try as he might, he could not make his arms answer. The sword hung limp from his wilted fingers, tip buried in the mossy stone. He would stand before this last assault, but it would be the way a dead tree stands before a logger. This was it, then. All his life had been for nothing, for waste. Like arrows raining down in a thick and deadly hail, sharp thoughts began to run him through with such speed that everything else turned to a nightmarish stillness. He had failed. Failed Calry. Failed Liru. Failed Peashot, Hadley, Osric. He had shamed himself and disgusted all who had supported him. Perhaps it was right that it should end here. He had caused enough ruin. Shaft after shaft pierced his mind, shafts that quivered and rang and screamed of pitiful failure and utter worthlessness. What was the point of living when he would continue to fail those who leaned on him? Then. From within, another thought rose into the chaos of his hammering, shaking mind, a thought that stood out with icy clarity. He knew where the blame lay. His father. His father had planted the weakness in his bones that had caused him to wilt before Dresborn, before Eva, before the Fen, and now before Rourke. It had meant injury not only to him but to those he cared about. Aidan's long, brood, potent swill of violent resentment bubbled up inside him, turning his vision black. He would hate his father forever, even in the grave. This hate was the one thing that couldn't be taken from him, the only thing left to him. A faint, choking sob tugged at his ear, and a light step. Liru's final step towards the parapet. If there was another step, he did not hear it. Because everything suddenly disappeared. It was like being struck through by solid light. Heat built up in his chest until it seemed to him it would burn him to cinders. But instead it worked on him like the warmth of the morning sun. Power was crackling and sparking around. Then he heard a voice that was the roar of thunder and the gurgle of a stream, a voice as old as the sky but filled with the lightness of a child's laughter. Aiden, it said. And in that one word there was enough to make his heart burst. He was already on his knees, and he was glad of it. He could not understand what was happening, but he wanted to kneel before the one who spoke with this voice. A warm, singing wind rose up, and as it blew, the statue, Kultum, Denilan, Belundal, they misted and dwindled away until they were gone. 
Around him was starlight. His feet touched the ground, but it was like standing on clear ice. The stars glittered far beneath him, too. The singing began to build, a growing, thrilling exultation that all but seared him with its beauty. Then it was as if a shroud made of stars was dropped. At first he could see nothing but the brilliance of pure, solid light pouring down around him. When his vision cleared a little, he found himself before a great throne. It was not just a chair. It was more like a mountain before which even the heights of Denelan would have been dwarfed. The upper reaches rose among the stars, lost to his eyes. Then, like an eruption of all the lightning ever to burn the skies, the throne was filled, and Aidan immediately dropped his eyes before one who was simply beyond the limits of sight or comprehension. The radiance was overwhelming. And in that untainted light, there was no hiding. Of all the times he had found himself where he did not belong, none came anywhere close to this. Never had he fallen so far short of the requirements for entry, yet here he stood, and there was no bluff, no excuse, no argument he could make for himself that would hold up this place. Until now, he had always thought of himself as good and noble of heart. Yes, there had been some wrong choices, but it was an unasked-for history that had forced him into those paths. Those choices were his father's doing, his father's fault. He was damaged, not guilty. He had loathed himself at times when seeing the warped changes taking place, but how could he blame himself? Measured against his father, or any of the other tyrants he had known, it was obvious that he was on the better side of the line. Reasoning this way, he had always felt justified. Aside from a few smudges, his soul was clean. But now, instead of being compared against dirt, he was searched by the radiance of utter purity. He gasped at what was revealed. He stood as a hog dripping filth, a hog that had somehow slipped into the royal throne room, blinking and stinking, and realizing for the first time that there was a measure as high above the ways of the sty as life is above death. What answer could he make? As he lowered his gaze, he saw that he was holding a deep cauldron. When he looked inside, he almost vomited. He did not need to be told what it contained. It was the vile mixture of all the hatred stored and brewed for his father the debt he had kept, that he intended to settle. It was his treasure. Kneel, the voice said, shaking the ground. He tried, but the cauldron was as big as a storage vat. It prevented him from reaching his knees. Afraid to look up, he cringed, fearing that he would be told to release it, knowing he could not, would not and dreading the wrath that would follow. I'm sorry, he whispered, thinking not only of his unbending knees, 
but of all the filth of the sty he had brought with him, and his inability to rid himself of it. He would be thrown out. He should be thrown out. That would be justice. He began to turn away. The next words were quiet, but they caused every muscle to lock and hold him in place. If you choose, you may walk away from me, Aidan, but I will not walk away from you. But I don't understand, Aidan stammered. Am I here to be punished? You are here to be freed. The words rumbled like an avalanche, and the shudder in Aidan's chest was beyond any emotion he had ever known. That word, kneel, echoed again in his mind. In it rang not the groans of enslavement, but the song of freedom. He knew why. It was about belonging, the right kind of belonging. It was isolation that led to enslavement. He had discovered that. Though there was more to fear before this throne than in ten thousand of Kultum's giant beasts, it was not wrath that he sensed, or dread that welled in him. An invisible torrent surged from the throne, washed through him, wrapped around him. He felt as if he were a fish that had hatched and managed to survive in the muddy pool of a dry riverbed, and was now being swept up into soft, clear waters. It was unlike anything he could define. This was defining him. And then he looked into the cauldron. The fumes were poison, and the container stood between him and the throne. It blocked part of the life-giving flow, leaving a shielded place where bitterness still coursed through his veins and gathered in dark clots. Did he really want this? The decision was more intimidating than any bridge or cliff jump, but he drew a breath, and in his mind, leapt free of the old, dark refuge. He tried to pull the cauldron away from him, but he could not. It was as if it had grown into his skin. Help me, he cried. There was no surge of power, just the faintest tingling in his arms. He looked down and pulled again, and this time it tore partly away from his skin. The pain was intense, and as the raw skin was exposed, he felt a sudden vulnerability, for the cauldron had been a kind of shield. But from the river that was rushing around him, he drew courage and wrenched again. The cauldron ripped free and once he had torn it loose, he flung it down on the ground, where the noxious liquid poured out and was washed away. Finally, he was able to fall to his knees, and as he did so, the stains that covered him began to fade. Then, from a distance, he saw his father. His fist clenched automatically, and he felt something in his grip. It was a dagger. He understood at once what he needed to do, what he had never been able to do before. 
looking not at his father, but towards the foot of the throne, he opened his hand and dropped the blade, releasing judgment to one higher. As the dagger melted away, light flooded that part of him that he had kept hidden by the cauldron, kept in bitterness and shadow, and he yelled with fright at what was revealed. Crouching in that inner bastion of hate, that long-guarded place where he had so often fled and braced himself with fantasies of revenge, he saw it. It was not strength that had kept him company in that place but a coiled, venomous thing of fear. His numbing, paralyzing fear. A lying, twisted demon that now looked up at him with more hatred than he had ever known. But the light that illuminated suddenly became solid, a pure, rushing torrent. It struck the twisted shape with power both infinite and effortless, tearing it loose and flinging it out, its screams fading to nothing. The bitterness and poison slowly washed away. It was peace, deeper and broader than the star fields around him. It was belonging. It was freedom. Kneeling before the one who could only be the ancient had not been the cost of freedom, but the means. For a long time he laughed, and wept, and laughed again, released. Then he saw something completely unexpected, and this time he did not understand it all. It was a book, old and faded. The cover was of red leather, and the design on the front was a lizard curled twice around itself. He did not like the look of it, and turned away but it was put before him again, pressed towards him. It was clear what he was expected to do, though not why. He reached out to take the book, and as he touched it, the vision faded. Stars began to wash away as hills, mountains, and clouds took their place. The light thinned into a few sparks and cleared as if a huge basin had been emptied and the last drops had fallen. Liru and Rock were staring at him. You are alive, Liru said, clutching his arm. It struck you, it held you, and you are not even burned. Aiden could still feel something burning in his chest, but he could see no mark on his hands or clothes. Rock was recovering himself. Yes, you are alive, he said. Let's see how long you manage that with steel through your belly. He had stepped a good way back, but now he came forward, cutting at the air before him and snarling. It was the same beast, the same terror, but something was different. Aiden watched as the sword rose over the man's head, as the foot was planted, the weight shifted, and the blade brought down with a fatal shriek. There was a clash of steel. He stared. The blade had not reached him. A sword had blocked it. His sword! Raised by his arm! How could he do that? How could he defy the monster? Rock swung again, harder this time, 
The blow fell like a hammer on the flat of Aiden's blade, nearly wrenching it from his numb hands. The shock stung him all the way to his elbows. Rourke bellowed and raised his sword overhead. As the large soldier towered before him, Aiden realized what was different. It was the fear. Though it was still there, it was no longer infinite and crushing, undoing him from within. That hidden traitor whispering lies into his mind was gone, and there was something else. The one who had spoken to him in the lightning dwarfed this enemy that faced him now, dwarfed him utterly. The enemy, too, was beginning to change. Though he could still see the wrathful image of his father, the shadows were falling away. Those great black wings that could block out the sun, the claws that could tear through mountains, illusions, lies. They had been powerful ones that had taken deep root, but they were now cracking and disintegrating like paper that has encountered fire. The monster was crumbling, shrinking, revealing a man. Rourke was only a man. A traitor and a murderer, certainly, but that made him less, not more. Aiden had been trained to fight such as these. And then it struck him that Rourke was making that most inexcusable of mistakes. He was underestimating his adversary and exposing himself in a wild, undefended attack. Aiden's training rushed back, bursting into his thoughts and settling into place, ready. In that instant, icy clarity returned. He gathered himself, clamped his fingers around the handle of the sword, and lunged, thrusting at the soldier's chest. The sword tip pierced leather armor, but barely. It produced little more than a deep scratch. From the exercises with pig carcasses, Aidan recognized the springy feeling of hitting a rib. Rourke leapt back, clutching his chest, seeing the patch of blood on his hand. He smiled. Aidan wanted to yell with frustration. That had been his big chance. He'd have to work hard for the next one. This was no regular soldier he faced. Rourke was a specialist swordsman, a veteran whose experience surpassed his own by a considerable margin. You want a fight now, do you? Rourke said. That suits me fine. He stepped forward and unleashed a series of cuts that Aiden managed to block and deflect, but he was driven backwards. Aiden! Liru cried. He'll push us over the edge. Don't step back again. Aiden had no advantage or opportunity, but neither did he have a choice. He stabbed at Rourke's throat. His thrust was easily parried, and Rourke swung the pommel across into Aiden's eye, then drove a knee into his midriff. Aiden collapsed and, by sheer force of hard-learned habit, rolled away as the point of a longsword sparked off the ground beside him. Dunn had been strict. Boys who lay and groaned after an injury were punished severely enough to purge them of the habit. Completing the turn, Aiden lunged along the ground at Rourke's ankle. The steel nipped through the skin, and Rourke leapt back, giving Aiden the space to scramble to his feet. He realized he would not be given another chance like the first. This was a soldier who had picked many fights and won them all. 
As he watched Rourke take his guard, he noticed the sturdy foot-placement and the ease with which he flicked the long blade from side to side. Rourke favoured the double grip. It was becoming clear now. His feet were planted wide and square for powerful swinging. It was a single-minded, forward-focused style that was slightly rigid, leaving his back rounded, shoulders and neck tight, and his eyes blind to anything that might threaten him from behind. It gave Aiden an idea. He remembered how Lero had been trained and how they had worked together when teamed against Osric. Without turning, he spoke. Lero, kilna avistros la malatia ena. Kiuni ranam. It was Fen. He did not trust his Sulis at such a moment. He knew Rourke spoke Arunian, but no more. Liru came up behind Aiden. So, you think you can protect your wench, do you? Rourke jeered. Want her to stay behind you? Let's see you manage that. Aiden did not smile, but he could have. Rourke had failed to notice Liru slip a long dagger from the sheath behind Aiden's back and conceal it in her sleeve. The next attack was brutal. Blows fell like rocks. It was all Aiden could do to keep from being sliced in two. The man's guard was impenetrable. The length of his blade preserved a distance too great to permit any kind of counter, not that Aiden could have exploited one if it had appeared. He was staggering under the onslaught. Twice he had been too slow to recover and almost lost his arm. Two cuts, one deep, bled freely. Blood ran down onto his hand, slicking the grip. In spite of all the training Aiden had received, this man's long-practiced skill and far greater strength were too much. Rourke drove him along the edge of the platform. Aiden blocked a furious swipe. His left hand broke from the slimy grip and he stumbled to the ground. Rourke stabbed and Aiden was not quick enough this time. The tip drove into his left shoulder and left him on the stone. Rourke lifted the sword up over his head. Liru was no fool. As soon as Rourke had separated Aiden from her, she had trailed the big swordsman. His frontal style kept his neck tight and his attention forward, so he had no idea of the danger that stalked him. Aiden had seen her raise the blade more than once, and he knew what held her back. She had seen the force of Aiden's thrust reduced by the armor. Her attack would need to find a chink and be pinpoint accurate. It would also need to be a surprise, which meant only one opportunity. She could not afford to squander it. But now her eyes were enlarged, her jaw locked, and Aiden knew she had committed. She darted forward and drove the narrow blade deep into the exposed armpit, withdrawing it in the same instant. Rourke screamed and spun towards Liru. From where he lay, Aiden reached up and thrust his sword into Rourke's leg, then fell back beneath the sweep of the longsword, narrowly escaping decapitation. The blade cut through his shirt and sliced across his chest. He rolled to the side as the enraged soldier prepared for another cut. He heard Rourke shout again, and saw Liru dancing away with a crimson dagger dripping, while Rourke clutched his other leg. The man staggered, but he was far from spent, and he had learned their tactic. 
Keeping now to the parapet, he clenched his sword in one hand. Aidan got to his feet, but he was dizzy from the injuries and struggling to keep his distance from the advancing soldier. He tripped over the pile of shoes and almost fell down the stairs while backing away. The longsword rang on the stone, where he had sprawled an instant earlier. Liru darted in, but Rourke swung on her too quickly, and she avoided the blade by a hair, ducking beneath it and diving away. Enna Brewer, Aiden called. I tire. He was losing strength faster than Rourke. He had hoped to wear the man down, but he could see that it was not going to work. They needed to do something else, and quickly. Negara loi, a lock, she said. Make him stand, I throw. Aiden knew that this would leave her defenseless if she missed, but he could think of nothing better. He stopped retreating, braced his feet and took his guard. To his right, Liru stood. He knew she was estimating the turn of the dagger and measuring the distance to her target. He had seen her practicing. She could hit a small tree from that distance eight or nine times out of ten. Getting the turns right was always the tricky part. The first throw could sometimes strike on the handle or the length of the blade. As well as getting this rotation right on the first throw, she would need aim for neck or head, small targets. She was not strong enough to pierce armor. Aidan glanced down to his left. The parapet was low, barely over his knee, and beyond that, air. Deep air. A long, free, uninterrupted drop to the ground. Rourke approached, keeping to the edge. He could not afford to let Liru circle him again. He prodded fast and hard. Aidan parried, weakly, dropping to one knee. Rourke grinned and drew back, preparing to run Aidan through. Lero's action was quick, no swaying or lurching, just a sliding back of her arm and an even throw. The dagger sang as the blade flashed in the late sun, sliced through the air and cut Rourke across the back of the neck. The turn had been a fraction too slow, and where he should have received the point, it was the edge that struck his skin, leaving no more than a shallow gash. The dagger glanced off. Aidan saw it spinning away, over the edge, growing smaller and smaller, until he lost it against the distant grass. He staggered to his feet and braced himself. He did not see a way through this, but he would not cringe again. It was a good throw. You did well, he said to Liru, not caring now that Rourke understood. Lyra was moving around on the platform, but Aidan could not afford to look. His eyes were fixed on the swishing longsword. It was a pig of a throw, she yelled. But this one won't miss. Aidan and Rourke both turned to glimpse something streaking towards Rourke's head. He raised his hands to ward it off, stepped backwards, and caught his heel on the low parapet. With a mounting scream and swinging arms, he tipped slowly away and dropped into the emptiness beyond the platform, twisting and tumbling through the air. The cries faded, faded, and then ended abruptly. Aidan could find little pity for this soldier who would have murdered children, though, he decided, he was feeling a lot less like a child.
Liru came up and guided him away from the edge. How did you find another weapon? Aiden mumbled, remembering now that he still had a knife he could have given her. Hush, Aiden. You've lost too much blood. I need to get help to bring you down those stairs, or you will fall. She made him lie down, then bound the wounds with strips cut from his shirt. Don't attempt the stairs, you hear me, she said. Aiden looked at her. Promise me, Aiden. Promise, he said. She knelt down and put her hand on his good shoulder, looking at him with uncharacteristic softness. Because if you do, I really will mix poison into the salve. She smiled in the simple, direct way he knew so well, the rare smile he had missed for so long. He smiled back. Then she squeezed his shoulder and left. Aidan felt happy tears slipping down his cheeks as her footsteps receded. If his chest had not ached so, he might have laughed. The late summer air was warm on his skin. He closed his eyes. Time passed, and he began to drift. But before he could find sleep, something disturbed him. A sound that did not accord with Liru's return, or wind in the ivy. It was a soft, drawn-out scraping, and with every breath he took, it grew louder. Chapter 57 Long shadows stretched over the grass. They were the shadows of giant statues, silent watchmen that were even more imposing for their silence. A soldier with a spear, a robed and hooded man clutching a twisted knife, a strange, lizard-like being with terrible claws and a tail, a giant with a club hidden behind his back, and many more that encircled the fortress. But it was the giant that broke the stillness. At first it might have seemed a shadow, a trick of the light, but a closer look would have revealed that a shape was moving, flowing like a dark stream of liquid rock over the statue's back, flowing upward. Aidan's dreamy thoughts vanished, and he propped himself up on his elbows. The sound was growing louder, drawing nearer. He could almost feel it in the stone now. He decided that, in spite of Lyra's warning, he had no choice but to attempt the stairs. The numbing battle fire had cooled, and his wounds ached as he turned over and froze. The trapdoor was only a few feet away, and yet it was too far. He would not make it. Each lemon-sized eye glittered like a gem in the sunlight, even more radiant for the setting of the leathery scales which were still coated in the museum's dust. Aidan held his breath. The snake glided swiftly around him, more and more of its long body being pulled up onto the platform until he was surrounded. As slowly as he could, he rolled to his side and drew his knife. Lero had taken the sword. Then, by gradual inches, he pushed his weight up onto one knee 
and slid a foot out and forward. That would provide the balance he would need. The snake had stopped coiling. It was facing away, but turned and watched him now. He remembered how Osric had aimed for the eye. This would be a much easier throw. A half turn. He rotated the knife in his fingers until he was holding it by the blade. If the snake held still during the movement of his arm, he would be unlikely to miss, and the eye would be ruined. But the snake did not hold still. It rose up, solid as a tree trunk, and looked down at him. The knife shook in Aidan's hand, but he held on to it and fixed his attention within a ridged and featured iris, concentrating on the large round pupil in which he and all of Kultum were clearly reflected. The way the head faced, the right side presented the most direct target, but as he took aim, the strangest feeling of reluctance came over him. It was in those eyes. This was not the mere calculation of a predator. The look of intelligence he had seen or imagined in the face of the great fox, it was the same here. These creatures were not just bigger. There was more that was changed in them than size. But while that colossal serpentine monster had chilled him with its air of ancient cunning, this animal had the look of a child, full of questions, full of awe, drinking in the world around it, gulping as fast as it can, and still being flooded. And the way it was looking at him was almost the way a child. But that was impossible. Relaxing his throwing arm, he let his eyes travel over the creature before him. This was the snake he had woken. The marks of his hands still lingered on the dusty sides of its magnificent head. Frog indeed. How long had it slept? For dust to gather like this, it must have been years well beyond his lifetime. Or many lifetimes. What was it thinking while holding his gaze? And that was when he had the most overwhelming impression that the snake was not only thinking, but speaking, or trying to speak, though it had no words. It lowered its head, one tentative inch at a time, and approached his. Every master in the academy would have condemned what Aidan now did. He loosened his grip on the blade until it had almost dropped, and then reached out the other hand. The snake blinked, watched for some time, and began to lean forward. It was the growing racket of footsteps from the stairs that broke the spell. The snake swung across and peered through the trapdoor in a movement so fast that there was no doubting its strength. It turned back to Aidan, this time pausing only inches before him, then darted over the edge, its long body whisking around the platform and slipping over the parapet. Aidan crawled to where it had disappeared. He looked over to see a dark trunk gliding along the body of the giant, around its club, and down towards the plain. Aidan, what are you doing over there? Come back here. It was Liru using her angry nurse voice, one that normally produced instant obedience. 
but this time Aidan beckoned for her to join him. She, Sandbert and Holt, approached the parapet at a crouch and looked down where Aidan was pointing. From this height it looked like an earthworm or a centipede slipping through the grass towards the fortress. When it reached the stone walls, it rose up, pressed itself into a corner between wall and turret, and threaded its way up as easily as a man would climb a ladder. What made you look for it? Lero asked. There was no reply. Aiden had lost consciousness. It was the restful sound of a camp that awoke him. Crackling fire, wind-shaken leaves, quiet talk. When he smelled stew, he tried to sit up, only to groan and flop back down again. There was another fire in the camp. It was located in his shoulder, and his head felt like it had been boiled. In fact, his whole body seemed to have been subjected to some horrible torture and drained of strength. Lero rushed over and put a hand to his forehead. The food is not ready yet. I'll give you a bowl when it's done. You rest now. Are you thirsty? A sand, he croaked. Lero handed him a water skin, and Aiden drank until he had to break for air. When he passed the skin back, it was empty. Chew this, Lero said, putting something that tasted like a stick into his mouth. What is it? Willow bark. Might help with the pain. By distracting me with the taste. Tyne came over and sat down, but did not attempt to nurse him. She appeared almost to defer to Liru. Aidan looked puzzled at this, and Tyne read his expression. Liru knows more about the physician's arts than I do, she said. I expect she knows more than her instructors at the academy. I can believe that, said Aidan, talking around the half-chewed bark and noting with amusement how Liru refused to show any bashfulness at being the subject of the discussion. Liru told us what you did, Aiden. Rock was a well-known fighter and a ruthless one. None of us would have enjoyed facing him, except Osric, perhaps. We are all very impressed with you. You overcame your fear. When Osric heard what happened, he looked as proud as a father. It was Liru who knocked Rock off the platform. We can all see by the injuries where his attention was focused. Liru would never have had her chance had he not been completely fixed on you, and that could not have happened unless you were a threat to him. It was your courage that gave Liru the opportunity she needed. Both of you have earned great respect. Aiden had lost too much blood to colour with the praise, but he did feel Tyne's words warming him. Where are we? he asked after a brief silence. About seven or eight miles from the fortress, she replied. Osric, despite his injuries, wanted to cover more ground, but Lero has been protecting you with some ferocity. She did not think you were fit to travel any further with your loss of blood. She said that if we carried on, she would remain here with you. She's a very stubborn girl. Aidan smiled. It was amusing to see them glaring at each other, Tyne continued. I don't think Osric has experienced that in a while. I did not wish to be insubordinate, said Lero, but the general, he was worried about uncertainties. 
and it was a certainty that Aidan would not last long being bounced around on a horse's back. Among my people, it is the doctor who makes these decisions. Don't worry, said Tyne. Osric is not angry. He suspected it was the right call from your first objection. If he had really believed you wrong, he would have tied you to your horse and led it himself, for your own good. She rose and sniffed her coat. I'm going to wash this reeking slime off. Don't want it spoiling the taste of supper. No, said Aidan, sitting up and collapsing again with another groan. Don't wash it off. Nobody must wash it off. The wolves, last time it was the smell that kept them at a distance. Maybe they're afraid of it. But it stinks. So does the belly of a wolf. After the belly it only gets worse. Aiden! Could the slime draw the serpent? Lero asked. It didn't follow us last time, but the wolves did. Tyne sat back down again, wrinkling her nose. Tell me, Aiden said, trying to ignore the pounding in his head. What happened in the staging room? How did you get past the soldiers? They didn't give much trouble, Tyne mumbled. Oh, yes, they did, said Liru, interrupting as she might do to an older sister. Virgil told me what really happened. When he and Tyne got Osric to the bottom of the stairway, they stopped at the tips of those two soldiers' swords. They'd armed themselves again, though the one had to use his left hand. Osric was barely able to stay on his feet, and when they tried to stab him, Fergal said it was as if someone had slapped a wasp nest. Tyne was everywhere at once. By the time Fergal had found a weapon, there was nobody left to fight. Tyne was far less comfortable with being discussed. She was studying some arbitrary point in the dark canopy of leaves. Osric was in danger, you say? Aidan asked. Then I'm not really surprised. Liru grinned. Tyne glanced at them and blushed. Oh, you two are merciless brats, she said. Later, Aidan finished three helpings of a stew that tasted of beans and barley and drained a second water skin. Lyra was delighted, saying an appetite like that was good news to any doctor. During the second watch, Aidan's sleep became shallow. Something was disturbing him a sound that did not belong in his dreams. His fingers closed around the knife handle. He opened his eyes without moving and listened. There it was again, a soft metallic scrape. He turned his head as quietly as he could. Tyne was on watch. Her tall outline moved gracefully on the far side of the camp, but the noise he had heard was nearer. He glanced towards the fireplace. Something seemed to be in front of the embers, a dark silhouette. But he wasn't sure if he was imagining it. It moved. Aidan jolted with such violence he almost lost his knife. But he did not lose his voice and shouted for all he was worth. He tried to jump to his feet and, instead, collapsed in a spasm of aches. The rest of the party was up in no time, weapons in hand, converging on the fireplace as Aidan pointed and continued shouting. The creature stayed where it was, either unaware or supremely confident. 
Aidan was prepared for a horrifying attack, an explosion of fangs and claws and a wild, thrashing escape, or a whir of blades and screams. But he was not prepared for the voice that now spoke from within the crouching shape. Is there any more stew? it asked. The voice was familiar. Yet it could not be. Murder? Tyne's voice trembled. Sorry for sneaking in. I didn't want to wake anyone after... That was as far as she let him get before smothering him with a weepy hug. Poor Murta was crushed with embraces, handshakes, and backclaps until he looked almost panicked with claustrophobia. The fire was rebuilt, and everyone settled down to hear the explanation. After that cage dropped away. Oh, and thank you, Tyne, for getting me out, else I'd be done. I fell in stages, until the structure jammed just long enough for me to catch onto the wall. It was just at the roof of the cave, and I could see those giant coils directly beneath me. That creature is even bigger than I'd thought. I heard you calling, but I decided that if I yelled back, I'd be as likely to get the beast's attention as yours. So I moved into a corner of the rock channel and started climbing up. The walls were rough, and the holes were good. The corner also made things a lot easier, but it still took most of the afternoon. By the time I got out, it was late, and the fortress was still as a crypt. I decided not to follow the highway of prints you'd left through the dust and debris, because I was afraid you might reset the locks on the entrance, and I have no idea how to open them from the inside. I headed west instead, the main gate. I knew wolves would be about, and seeing as I'd lost my sword in the cave, I broke into a large house and took two bronze display swords. The steel swords were all rusted to nothing, and these are really fine weapons. Aidan looked at the short, falchion-like blades still covered in their thin layer of pale corrosion. It was dark by the time I found my way out the main gate. Locating you took a while. How did you do it? Strong breeze off the mountain. I stayed downwind, ran until I smelled fire and stew, headed upwind. Osric laughed and cut off abruptly, clutching his ribs with a grimace. I thought you'd be peering at bent blades of grass and listening to the complaints about hooves, he said. Too hungry. And I'm still hungry. Will someone please... Osric tossed him a saddlebag. Murta dug inside until he found something edible and set to work. After a few mouthfuls, he sent everyone to bed and took the watch. Tyne objected, but he told her to shut up and sleep because he owed her his life. That earned him another hug, after which he melted away into the surrounding darkness without even the snap of a twig or the crunch of gravel. I wish I could move like that, Tyne complained. Even mice envy him, said Osric. I think you were right about him being part cat. Frankly, I'm not actually that surprised to see him alive and well. Probably still has several lives to go. At least with him snooping around out there, we can afford some deep sleep. We'll need it. Tomorrow we must cover a good thirty miles, injuries or not. I won't risk another night this close to the fortress.
By morning, Aidan felt better than he had expected. His wounds, expertly stitched, drained and bound, felt as if they had already started to mend. As Aidan had predicted, the wolves were thrown into confusion by the scent, or rather the stink of the party. After twice approaching, they abandoned this smelly quarry that they could not bring themselves to attack. The mood in the camp was solemn for a time. More than half their number had died in Kultum. Once they were a safe distance from the fortress, they held a quiet memorial, each speaking in memory of those lost. Osric's face seldom betrayed tender emotions, but Aidan knew he mourned the loss of the faithful and steady commander, whose large presence and billowing pipe had become as reassuring to the party as the campfire. The tears ran freely down Tyne's cheeks, as Osric recalled to them a man whose honour and loyalty had earned him respect among his friends, his troops, and even some of his enemies. Fergal spoke of the culver none of them had known, a shy and quiet man with a quick sense of humour and an insatiable craving for tales of adventure and romance. He told with a smile how he had often caught the great man lost in a book full of brave heroes rescuing fluttering maidens from pirates and dragons instead of attending to more serious duties. Fergal's expression remained hidden but his voice revealed the sadness that rested on him. As was the custom when bodies were out of reach, the mourners placed headstones and buried articles that had belonged to the dead. Aidan thought of burying a pipe Thormer had given him, but, after a brief consideration, decided against it. The pipe was inseparably linked to something the man had said, something Aidan never wanted to forget that the only good reason for war was peace. He let go of the pipe, allowed it to drop back in his pocket, and recalled the face of the rough commander who had shown him nothing but kindness. Yes, Thorma would have understood. He would have approved. Chapter 58 it was only after a week that they decided to discuss what had happened and what it meant. At nightfall, Captain Senbert and Holt were posted on sentry duty while Fergal gathered the rest around the fire. I came here in the hope of answering a question, he began. It was this. Did the storm over the Pelamines set in motion something that could destroy our city? Perhaps you felt the disturbances that have been taking place under Castith ever since that lightning bolt. I did, said Tyne. I felt nothing, said Osric. Yes, well, you shake the earth every time you step, she said, tossing a pebble at one of his massive boots. Of course you wouldn't notice. Fergal moved on. There was something in our archives that gave me cause for concern. I knew that there had been reports of strange storms at Kultum shortly before it was abandoned. The theory that formed in my mind was that the latched, prolonged bolt of lightning disturbed something in the ground under Kultum, which led to earthquakes. Nobody wants to be under stone roofs or beside block towers when they are shaken and leaning. I suspected something like that, possibly combined with the release of noxious fumes through a fissure in the earth, 
might have been enough to drive the inhabitants from the fortress. So, if the very security of our own walls and buildings was about to become a threat, it was necessary to know. We had the choice to either wait and find out, hoping that the Fen army would not be camped outside our walls at the time, or travel to Kultum archives and try to glimpse our future by looking into their history. To quote Agolich, History is the shadow of tomorrow, though it does sound so much better in the original Gellarach. My ears ache under the dead weight of these limping translations. Gellarach, said Osric, sounds like a throat infection, and it was the language of a people cruel enough to be considered an infection themselves. I was forced to learn a little of it during a course in historical tactics, and I think it gave me scars inside my mouth. All that snorting and scraping to get your meaning out has never seemed worth the effort to me. Chach, chashuch! And yet when you produce noises like that, you sound like an uncultured barbarian. It's enough to make a man's tonsils bleed. Fergal sighed and continued. What we found in the Kultum archives was not exactly what I had expected. According to the records, the storms were first seen about eight hundred years ago. The Gellarach documented observing them over the mountains for some five years before they ceased completely. Until now. More surprising than the storms themselves were the strange things they found at the lightning strike points. These copses of giant trees that we have been seeing all over Denilan are the points, and I think you can guess what else they found there. All the giant insects, rodents, and worse that we discovered in that museum were collected from such points. Being a systematic people, they collected pears. They believed that the lightning bolt both enlarged and killed whatever it struck. But it didn't kill the snake, said Aiden. Actually, I'm not sure the lightning killed any of them. I spent my time with the creatures that had not been damaged by skinning and stuffing. I found no signs of decomposition at all. Nothing. It was like they had entered some kind of extreme hibernation that can apparently last for hundreds of years. You mean the others were skinned alive? Tyne blurted. Alive, yes, but not conscious. Aidan winced at the thought of those magnificent creatures being cut up in their slumber. Some of you might have guessed it by now. The riddle of the missing snake. Remember all the animals had been collected in pairs, yet there was only one snake. That giant beast was the second snake. But it was ten, twenty times the size, said Osric, and the shape and markings were different. It has been alive for over eight hundred years, growing, and it would seem, changing in other ways, too. Everyone was silent, incredulous, waiting for more. It is my guess, Fergal resumed, that when the first snake began to stir, the Gellarach quickly closed and sealed that storage room in the hope of suffocating it. But a correct identification would have shown why that was the worst idea. If you ignore the size, it's— A yellow-eyed mole viper, said Murta. He was clearly more concerned with safety than looking respectful. 
because he sat with his back to the fire and the conversation, keeping his vision unspoiled by light as he searched through the surrounding shadows. Though the proportions are changed, and it has learned to spit like nothing I've ever seen. True, said Fergal. Now, as you can imagine, a burrowing snake, given enough time, would quite possibly be able to force a way out from what was meant to be its grave. I think we can allow ourselves the liberty of a guess as to why Kultum was deserted, and why it remains so. I don't think earthquakes had anything to do with it. Again they were quiet, contemplating what Fergal had just revealed, imagining the horror that the Gellerak must have faced within their own walls. The snake also explains the lack of birds, said Marta. Quite so. And the quest is concluded, and the question answered, Osric asked. We have no need to fear Castith's walls will be shaken down around our ears, correct? The question is partly answered, said Fergal, but the evidence does not establish a negative like that. All I can say is that there is nothing here to confirm my original theory. The shakings in the earth beneath Castith remain unexplained, and whether or not they pose a threat I have yet to determine. Bit of a limp conclusion, if you ask me, Osric growled. You academics are always so timid with your words. Your conclusion sounds like a different form of the question. And so it is, Osric, Fergal said with a chuckle. Slightly whittled, sharper, but it is still a question. In time it will be sharp enough to impale the answer. Fergal, Tyne interrupted. You said the shakings in the earth might not pose a threat. But what if that weird lightning bolt over the Pelamines created some awful creature near the city? It is possible. There's little more than dry rock up on the Pelamines, but it is always unwise to assume security. Perhaps a discreet investigation would be in order. If we do find something threatening, we would need to destroy it without waking it. I'll see to that on our return, Osric said. Aidan had been sitting on a question for days, and he decided he wouldn't get a better time to ask it. In the museum there were skeletons, he said, his voice betraying his excitement. And there were others in the mine below, massive things, bigger than any of the animals in the museum by far. What were they? I'm not entirely sure, said Fergal. They were discovered during mining. It was the Gellerak belief that these creatures from a lost age were being returned to the land, but the storms that were returning them were killing them in the process. We know now that the storms weren't killing them, but the Gellerak learned it too late. So, you think it's true that we might see monsters like that? By screaming, well, hope not, Tyne snapped. Aiden, haven't you seen enough monsters already? Fergal laughed. I don't know, he said, but I do share Tyne's sentiments. And, as she so eloquently put it, I also screaming well hope not. But the simple fact is that these are events for which we have no explanation. We may begin to understand aspects of it, but there is some power moving here that lies outside the frame of traditional knowledge. We may be on the cusp of the incredible, or terrible, and possibly both.
There seems to be a lot you don't know, said Tyne. I hope that doesn't sound rude. It's just that I expected with all that reading you scholars do, you would have more answers. Didn't think there would be so many uncertainties for your kind. I do not take offence at that, Tyne. In fact, I am happy that I give that impression. Luchrochen krash, rasrafdri krechk, agalech again. Loosely translated, the confession of ignorance is crucial to the pursuit of knowledge. Another way of putting it is that those who pretend to know never will. They lack the humility to learn. What we have fallen upon is something truly mysterious. Not a word we scholars like to use, but a fitting one. I don't believe anyone understands what is happening or what is to come. If I had given a closed answer to each of your questions, I would not be worth listening to. After a lull, Murta spoke, still with his back to them. Virgo, I know that you managed to get through those locks under the academy. I know that you have some idea of what lies beneath Castith. Everyone fell silent. Fergal gazed long into the coals before replying. I'll tell you what I may, he said, but it will do little to appease your curiosity. Castith, or Athgrim's Castle, as you might recall, was built on the grassed over ruins of a much older civilization. There's quite a labyrinth of tunnels and caverns beneath the academy, and beyond it, this is no secret. But very few know that the tunnels have been cleared of rubble, and restored. What almost nobody knows is that the underground ruins go far, far deeper than these first levels. None of us knows how deep. That ancient civilization must have preferred their chances beneath the ground to above it. One of the deepest rooms we have been able to access is vaguely reminiscent of a royal antechamber, with some very peculiar elements, and it ends at a stone door like a mountain on a hinge. It took some time and much reading to understand the locks, but in the end I was able to open the door, giving the credit naturally to Culver. Inside is a circular cavern, with three more giant doors, none of which I have succeeded in unlocking and a peculiar shaft extending down into the earth, the purpose of which also eludes me. But by lowering a pair of lamps at the end of a three-hundred-foot rope, we were able to observe something that I would struggle to explain, even if I were permitted. It is this that has given me cause for worry, and the prince caused to seal off the entrance with sixty feet of solid stone and hard mortar. The breathless hush that followed was turgid, even violent with curiosity, but Fergal disregarded it with practiced ease. You can't stop there, Tyne burst out. Can't you give us some idea of what it is? I'm afraid, my dear girl, that I may not offer details. I am bound to secrecy, and in this case I believe the secrecy to be necessary. However, I'll keep observing, and perhaps one day I shall find cause to break my silence. How will you keep observing? I thought you said it was now inaccessible. Fergal looked over at her, his expression altogether blank. No, I don't recall using the word inaccessible. I only said that Burkhart ordered the entrance to be sealed. 
Don't they mean the... Ah, uh, you and your riddles. Tyne looked away, dropped her chin into her palms and glared at the fire. Osric laughed. Very well, Fargal, he said. Keep your secrets. We will have to trust you as our watchman. Now, what about Aiden? Why is he unchanged? It would seem that whatever struck Aiden was something different. It could not have been traditional lightning, for he survived a direct strike, nor could it have been the phenomenon that changes things, for he is unchanged. Aiden knew this was not true. Though he hadn't grown any bigger, something else was different. He could still feel the heat in his chest and a curious tingling in his fingers, and occasionally his toes. It also felt at times as if his hands and feet were surrounded by water rather than air. But he was reluctant to speak of it. After Mistress Gilder's exhibitions of his scar, he had no desire to be scrutinized again as an object of interest. That gave him a thought. He reached up and touched his left ear, then dropped his hand with a sigh. It was still only a half-ear. He pulled the hair down over it, as he had done times beyond counting. Any ideas on the second snake's unusual behavior around Aden? Osric asked. Perhaps the confusion following a sleep of a few hundred years, said Fergal. Murder? Perhaps, the ranger said, not turning around. Aiden was thoughtful. He could still see the snake's eyes and feel the way it had appeared to question him. At first he had considered it circling him to be a threat, but the more he thought of it, the more it began to seem like a protective gesture. He shook his head. It was ludicrous to think like this. Perhaps it was worth remembering that he had been near collapse from his wounds. Perceptions would most likely have been distorted. After a lull, Fergal spoke again. We need to be clear on what we say to Prince Barkatz, so I need you all to listen very well. Firstly, he is not to know my true position as Culver's master. Secondly, it is imperative to convince him that none of us foresees any threat. The prince's objective in allowing this journey was to silence any voice that spoke of danger to the city. If we return and claim that the original suspicions were not confirmed, which is perfectly true, his objective is accomplished, and he will probably be relieved that our blood is not on his hands. The threat of a Fen invasion was one thing, but talk of Casteth itself being unstable was too much for him. Clearly he has plans that are threatened by the concerns I raised through Culver. I don't believe his interest is in the peace of the city, in spite of his constant declarations. I am convinced something else is brewing in his political pot. Something he is prepared to defend with extreme measures. If we threaten to spread a warning of danger, I fear we will not see the end of one day in Casteth. I hate to admit it, Osric said, but every word strikes true as a javelin. We will need to tread very carefully upon our return. I almost repent of bringing Tyne. Because I'm a woman? she asked. Would you rather I left Lero without suitable company? Osric opened his mouth, only to hang wordless and confused. 
This was a kind of battle he had never learned to fight. Tyne grinned and lobbed a stick at Osric, who snatched it from the air and tossed it back to her waiting hand. His confusion melted into a smile, and Aidan wondered, as often before, what the general was waiting for. Midsummer was bursting around them, and, unfortunately, above them. The cloudbursts were regular and heavy, driving them often to huddle under rocky overhangs or hide in swaying woods that chattered with rain and whistled in the gusts of heavy downpours. Afterwards, they would steam themselves beside huge fires, if they could find enough dry wood. Otherwise, they shivered beside little smoky fires that produced little heat and drew much teary coughing. On a few occasions, the wood was so wet that Murta didn't even bother to attempt lighting it. But the rain seldom lasted, and it was not uncommon for a stormy morning to be followed by a golden afternoon. When riding through open sections, Aidan's eyes would often wander out across the hills, and beyond them to the spine of the Denelan Mountains, growing blue once more with hazy distance. Yet it often seemed to Aidan as if something of this wild land was still nearby. It was in the way the horses lifted their noses at night and began to stamp and jostle, in the way he found himself spinning around to look behind him into the darkness. He couldn't shake the feeling that the camp was being watched. It was a long time before this unease faded, and he was able to relax. Fergal took up his lessons again, and Osric and Tyne resumed their training, though Waden had to be careful with his injuries at first. Murta also began sharing some of his woodcraft skills, taking not just Aiden but Liru too when tracking or hunting. His first lesson was to teach her to walk quietly. He pointed out Spoor and explained the habits of creatures from mice to gazelle. Aidan was constantly impressed by how easily the ranger spotted tracks from the saddle that most rangers would only have seen from a crouch, and that were hardly visible to Liru when she put her nose to the ground. Slight shifts of thin dust on the clay, blades of grass only marginally bent, a dead branch missing a corner of its bark where a hoof had trod. Even more fascinating than the search for what and where was the study of when. Murder showed how to determine the age of many kinds of tracks and taught the importance of understanding the environment. Dryness, he said, was often, and mistakenly, taken as a primary indication of age. But prints dried at different rates according to many factors like soil type, shade, wind, humidity and such, so that an hour-old print in one environment might look like a three-day print in another. Young trackers had often been fooled in this way, and stumbled onto the camp of someone they thought to be leagues ahead of them. It was during one of Murta's lessons that they came across the oversized bush where the stone carving of the locust had rested. The locust was gone. At first they thought they had the location wrong, but then Murta found the earthy patch still riddled with crawling things that had lost their shelter. Deep gouges in the soil led away along a vague, hollowed impression of bent grass and broken stalks. 
No wonder it looked so real, Aidan said with a slight tremor as he began scanning the nearby trees. When the rest of the party joined them, Fergal stood for a long time looking at the vacated resting place. Aidan stepped beside him. Do you think, he asked, that maybe the storms that have returned after these centuries are causing these animals to wake? It's a reasonable hypothesis, Fergal replied without looking up. What woke the bigger snake, though? Maybe it was struck twice. Maybe it never entered the deep hibernation of the others, and all the handling caused it to stir while it was being laid out in the museum by the curators. Aidan shivered. But then, how did the smaller one wake? Do you think it could have been struck recently, while deep inside the museum? There was a hole leading to the open, remember? If it had been raining during the storm, water could have carried the lightning below easily enough. I've heard of that kind of thing happening on farms. Let's not get fixed on the double strike idea, though. Perhaps the first snake was just a light sleeper, and perhaps the others are now all emerging from their hibernation. Something that I vaguely glimpsed when you pushed me through that doorway, and thank you for that. There was a long scar on the larger snake's head. I suspect it was the first and last cut of the Skinner, and doubtless it was this that woke the beast. Maybe that's what made it so hostile to people, Aiden said. I don't know that hostile is the right word. Basic hunger would be sufficient explanation for the animal's actions. But Aiden could not forget the way the second snake had behaved after being woken more gently. The look in its eyes had not been animal. He wondered. Then he remembered something from a long time back. When we first came through Denilan, we heard a strange call just before morning. My father said it had the pattern of a woodland fox, but it was too deep. He said there was no fox big enough for a voice like that. I think I understand now. Think I also understand why it sounded lonely. Fergal grunted. So then there are at least five of these monsters loose in Denilin. Two snakes, a fox, a locust, and the lakeside terror that once haunted Drumley. Yes, I know it was more than a legend. Also, let's not forget whatever it was that uprooted trees and did away with the rangers in that first confirmed report. It might have been the animal from Drumley, but possibly not. Maybe the same one Murta wanted to look for when we spotted those trees moving after the fen attack. That might have had another explanation, but maybe. There's something else I've been thinking about, Aidan resumed, encouraged by Fergal's patient ear. Back at Badgerfields in the Misty Vales, there was this giant tree that grew near the manor house. Nobody knew what it was, but we called it a pearl nut. Sometimes I thought it looked a bit like a plane tree with that mottled-looking bark and those fresh green leaves, only that the bark didn't flake and each leaf was as big as a blanket, and instead of those prickly seeds, the tree produced the most delicious nuts you ever tasted. Aidan reached the end of his breath, without getting anywhere near his point. The last words were pushed out like the final drops from an orange squeezed dry. His face was red, and he sucked an undignified breath placing a theory before the man he now knew to be the Chancellor was unnerving him more than a little. 
The thing is, Aidan pursued, there were no big trees nearby, but there were others like it miles out into the forest, a huge number of them, far more spread out than any of these strike point copses. I could see them when I climbed high enough, though it was really difficult to get. He shook his head and reached for his point. It makes me think our tree was an offspring from a seed that had been carried. If that's so, then could it be possible these giant creatures could reproduce too? And fill the land with the thunder of their walking? Yes, or slithering. Fergal blew out a slow breath. I find myself caught between excitement and dread at the prospect. But tell me, these trees that you saw out in the forest, were they all the same species? I... I... yes, I think so. Why? Because it confirms a suspicion I've had. It's likely that more than one species was struck, but only one of them has spread. I've been wondering about incompatibility with the environment. If some of these new species might not struggle to survive and if it would be possible for them to adapt within days. The biggest problem is actually not adaptation, but correct internal functioning. With animals, massively oversized offspring are almost never healthy, and they usually die young. These creatures, it would seem, have overcome this. Possibly their internal proportions are changed. But even so, the environment may not accommodate them. It falls outside the scope of your studies, but a diversion into the natural sciences won't harm you. Here are some examples that should illustrate the point. Take the enlarged birds. Both seed and insect-eating types would now have beaks too blunt and cumbersome for their accustomed sources of food. Bees would crush any flowers they attempted to visit. Mosquitoes would not be able to land soft and undetected when they drop like acorns. Moles' tunnels stay open in loamy soil, but if they were many times wider, they would collapse. That's why sappers have to use wooden support beams. Consider trees for a moment. A tree with a taproot that grows to several times its normal height would need to sink its root to several times the usual depth, and most locations would not have soil deep enough. This might explain the numerous dead giant trees. There are many more examples, but these should suffice to illustrate the difficulties of survival. But the snake seems to have done it. Quite right. I don't say that it is impossible, only unlikely. The larger of the snakes is one that has clearly managed to make the rapid adaptation, and it appears to have done more than just adapt. The changes in its form make me wonder if we are even correct in referring to it as a snake anymore. Fergal thought in silence for a while. But let's put that aside for now. We were speaking of adaptation. Once the former inhabitants of Kultum were no more, it might have learned to take deer or even hunt in the lake. There are some very big fish there. Maybe even some horrifyingly big ones, if the same lightning struck the water. It's possible that it has learned to slow its metabolism. Possible that it hibernates for long periods. 
So, do you think the parlour tree was the one that was able to adapt? It appears likely, but much more investigation would be needed to confirm it. Investigation that is not going to happen, because, as I understand, nobody goes into Nimless. Ah, uh, that's not exactly true. Fergal shook his head and sighed. What else did you find in there? I never went as far as those giant trees. That would have taken days of winding through the forest, so I can't really, uh, confirm anything. But I did once find the tip of a big skeleton. At least I think it was a skeleton. So this tree of yours, then, is the only example we have of possible propagation. I certainly hope you are wrong. Even if only the mole vipers began to multiply, can you imagine how our world would change? Osric stepped up. As his heavy boot thumped down, something that had bothered Aiden for years finally dropped into place. It's a trap! he exclaimed, without thinking of the consequences. Those huge bronze jaws with the giant teeth and the spring by the Lecran ship! Osric and Fergal spun on him. How did you learn about that? Osric demanded, almost in a shriek. Not even Don is allowed in there. Construction teams were blindfolded and carted in. Only— Fergal began to laugh and dropped his head into his hands. Ah, Osric, I think we should have known better by now, don't you? How do you think he found out? That academy is yielding its secrets to young Aiden like an overburdened plum tree tossing down its fruit. Osric held up a finger in front of Aiden's face, his lips tight as if he was about to explode with threats and warnings. Aiden could see them gathering under the surface, wrestling for front position, getting jumbled and crowded. Eventually they combined into a soulish bah of disgust. Osric shook his head and marched away with thumping strides, crushing the grass underfoot. Well, could it be? Aiden ventured. Fergal was still grinning. At least his eyes were. A trap, you mean? Yes. That is a most disagreeable thought. But I do see the logic of it. Our best guess back then was that it was intended for crippling rival boats somehow. But the design never seemed ideal for any application we could imagine. Though I don't think I want to know what could be caught in a trap that size, your suggestion is the simplest so far, and the simplest explanation is often the correct one. But this has reminded me of something. One of the builders once made a peculiar report. He found a spear embedded in the woodwork of the deck. Aidan dropped his head and looked at the ground preparing for some red-hot words. But all he heard was a thoughtful, Hmm. They spent the next two days keeping watch for the newly awakened locust. There were a few false alarms. The large shape of a mottled crane was twice mistaken for the oversized insect as it beat its ponderous way across the sky. But nothing of the locust was seen. After a particularly muggy day, and a late afternoon cloudburst, they were drying themselves off before the fire, 
when Aiden remembered something he had kept losing between the cracks in his thoughts. Liru, he said, you never told me how you came by another weapon. You only took the dagger. What did you throw at Rourke? She looked away and peered into the fire, which Aiden thought odd, as she was normally so direct. She replied with only a hint of embarrassment. Your boot. Chapter 59 Are you ready for this? Fergal asked. Yes, Aiden said. It was the right answer. It was the only answer, though he and Fergal both knew it to be wind. He looked at the palace and unthinkingly clenched his fists. When he noticed a guard looking at him, he compelled himself to relax and assume a posture more befitting a humble subject. They had returned to Castith slowly because of injuries, so the journey had taken almost two months. Eastridge was now a military outpost. It was secure, but the presence of soldiers was a hard reminder of the cruelty that lurked beyond the mountains. When the travellers had crested the last rise, and the broad grasslands and proud city of Castith stood beneath them again, Aden had been struck by its frailness after the mighty walls and hulking sentinels of Kultum. Still, the improvements to defences were considerable. The outer walls had grown taller, and there was work taking place on the nearby hill. He felt proud to have been a part of those designs. Then the pride fell and withered with a knife in its back. Betrayal. He could not shake it from his mind. He had been betrayed. Liru, Culver, Fergal. They'd all served the city, and the prince had been willing to have them slaughtered to suppress an honest yet inconvenient suspicion of danger. The only thing that kept Aidan's anger in check was his caution. Leaving Castith was an option, but it would mean leaving those who had become family to him. He did not have the heart to start over. Not again. Not yet. And he still had much to learn. The party was silent as the bustle of country roads became the familiar rumble of the city, clopping hooves, rattling wheels, the shouting of peasants, haggling of merchants and the wild games of children. After months of quiet travel, it was an overwhelming onslaught. They were approaching the city gate when they were intercepted by a jingling regiment of the Special Guard, silver armor and spotless white tunics flashing in the sun. The captain of the regiment summoned them to the keep, immediately. They had expected this. When they arrived, the whole group, enclosed in a cage of marching soldiers, was taken into the center of the courtyard, where they now waited. Aidan glanced over at Liru. She looked as angry as he felt. This was not a reception of welcome or thanks. It was a quarantine. At a signal, the regiment marched them into the main building. This time they were shown into a windowless chamber, thickly carpeted and lavishly ornamented, where only the prince and Ganavant awaited them, each behind a large desk. Welcome, welcome, 
Burkhardt cried, throwing his arms open as if he would embrace them, and staying behind his desk. Ganavant did not smile. We have so much to discuss, and I am eager to hear what you have discovered. The whole city is a buzz over your return. Somehow the news of your approach arrived before you did. It was almost a question. His eyes had a hard glint as they darted from one member of the party to the next, but nobody offered an explanation. Aidan thought back to the conversation he had noticed between Fergal and a young courier while they were still a ways out. Cunning. The widespread curiosity would make secret murders difficult. He wondered if that would be enough. When nobody in the group offered a reply, Burkhart resumed. Before we get started, tell me, what has become of the rest of the party? Where are Culver and the other soldiers? Fergal had reverted to his passive, subordinate role. To the prince, he would be no more than a voluminous and offensely bushy clerk. It was Osric who replied. Culver is dead, along with Commander Thormer, and all the soldiers except those sent back to Eastridge, and the two you see here. We encountered many hardships along the way. Osric? said Ganavant. How is it that you were among this number? The Prince's Commission did not include you. You are correct, Ganavant. It did not include me, but neither did it exclude me. My standing commission from the King in Tullinrow is to ensure the safety of the Southern Empire and the success of its ventures. When this venture, deemed of the highest importance by our Prince, came under threat, my duty was clear. I am surprised it is not clear to you. Your judgments strike me as ill-considered and wasteful of resources. You are a general. A whole town had been lost, and you chose to accompany a small band of travellers. Osric never made threats. His reputation and presence were so intimidating that he did not need to. He turned now and faced Ganavant with a look that caused even the furniture to gulp. Truly, Ganavant, is that how they strike you? Despite the fact that Eastridge was recovered without the loss of a single soldier, despite the fact that you are still in complete ignorance of what Culver's party faced, Despite the fact that our prince here named the quest an inquiry of the highest importance, and without my presence it would clearly have failed, your assessment is strangely at odds with the facts, Counselor. You exceeded your orders, Ganavan snapped. You interfered where you were not authorized. Osric stepped forward, dropped his plate-sized hands on the table, and leaned towards Ganavant. Interfered, he said. Now why would you choose that word? I might understand that you had some desire to deliberately exclude the first general of the realm from this quest. Any other man would have backed away, but Ganavant stood where he was, and looked up with toad-like detachment that could have been indifference or calculation. Aidan had never seen anyone stand up to the general before. Osric was frightening, 
but it was not Osric who seemed the more dangerous of the two. There was something unnatural, something disturbing about those big, slithering eyes that seemed always to be measuring, just waiting for the range to be right. Osric, the prince said, I concede that Ganevent has been less than cordial. I would ask that we put this behind us and move on. Will you tell me what befell the party? Why so many were lost? Then please, let us be seated. I have much to ask, and I would have you all comfortable. The velvet-cushioned chairs looked as delicate as seashells with spindly flamingo legs. Aidan glanced over at Osric's, half expecting it to crumple under the bullweight for which it was clearly not designed. When it held together, he chanced a quick look at the prince. Barkart was attired in his usual carefree way. He seemed almost to disdain the elegant fripperies of royalty, as if he wanted to look like a man of the people, comfortable as one of them. But his eyes were not comfortable. They would not settle anywhere, and shadows hung beneath them in spite of a nose that glowed more brightly than before. His cheeks, once pudgy, were taut. Every now and then he would jump and twitch as if spiders wriggled under the skin. This was the face of a man beset by worries, anchored to the floor of a rising sea. Still, he was working hard to appear jovial, leaning back in his chair and fixing a kindly expression on his wilted features. After seating himself, Osric detailed the journey. Aidan saw the events as they unfolded in his mind's eye to the rhythm of Osric's words. But something distracted him. A slight movement of Myrta's head revealed that he had heard it, too. The tread and scuffle of boots, many boots, in the hallway outside. More than the escort that had brought them in. The steps were quiet, but there were too many for them to remain unheard. They were soldiers. Aidan was sure of it. Soldiers were not known for stealth. Ganavant showed no reaction, but the prince coughed, leaned in his chair, crossed and recrossed his legs. He almost succeeded in drowning out the sound. Osric's voice did not waver. He spoke on. When he reached the stage where the soldiers deserted, the prince interrupted. I would not have expected soldiers to desert or rebel under a general's command, he said. It is a point well made, Osric replied something glinting in his eye. But these men, I happen to know, were decommissioned and were meant to be serving time in the barrack prison for various crimes, all of them serious. Insubordination, defection, striking an officer. They were not soldiers but lawbreakers. How is it that they ended up under Senbert's command? Ganevant pointed. Senbert, he said. Consider yourself under arrest. Highness, Osric interrupted, it seems that your counsellor is unaware. The captain does not have the authority to release prisoners. The order could only have come from much higher. I would be deeply interested to learn who signed those releases. For a moment, nobody spoke. If Ganavant was concerned, he did not show it. He actually seemed amused at Osric's tone. 
You leave this to me, said the prince. It is best that you do not speak of the matter again. I'll investigate it myself. Actually, Osric said, I should inform you that I have already written of the matter in my last report to your father. Ganavant shifted slightly, but Burkhart leapt to his feet and shouted, You wrote to the king? About this? Naturally. It is my responsibility. I am the first general of the realm. My eyes are the king's. Ganavant turned to the prince. They must have intercepted the courier near the city gate, he said. Shall I issue a recall? The prince nodded, and Ganavant stamped over to the door. Quick! he yelled to the guards outside. Put together a squad of rangers, and find today's northbound courier. Arrest him and bring him to me. If the seals on any documents are broken, I'll throw you and every one of the rangers in prison. There was a bark. Yes, sir and the clatter of receding boots. Aidan could have cried with dismay. That had been Osric's security. Why had he spoken of it? There was no courier who could avoid a squad of rangers. Osric turned to Ganavant. Why did you not tell me before you did that? he asked. Because you have already interfered enough the Councillor said, emphasizing the word this time as he sat. It would only have been to save you the trouble and waste of resources, which I understand to be of great concern to you. Now, waste. The rangers and your letter will be back before the day is over. I'm afraid that is not likely. General Osric, how is one carrier going to avoid a team of my men? It seems your wits are not what they say. Unless you manage to find a flying horse, there is no doubt of the outcome. Did you use a flying horse? Ganavant asked with a smirk. I think it was a mule cart. And why in the name of summer snow would my rangers not catch your mule cart? Because the cart left over three months ago. I dispatched my report before leaving for Kultum. The package I sent earlier today contains a letter and a small gift for my niece on her birthday. Ganavant stopped smirking. Burkhart, by the whiteness of his face, appeared to have stopped breathing. Osric continued. The king's personal emissary and military escort should enter our gates within the month. If he finds so much as a whiff of foul dealing... The position of First Counselor might just become a dangerous one. I hope, for your sake, that there are no stains when he arrives. The room fell silent. Ganavant fixed his eyes on Osric. This time there was no indifference. The smile lingered, but it was sickly and poisonous. Prince Burkhart recovered himself with somewhat more effort. I will be glad to welcome the royal emissary on his arrival, he stammered, and paused to cough. I have no doubt that everything will be found to be in order. Will you excuse me for just a moment? He walked to the door and slipped outside. The boots were much quieter this time as they withdrew, 
but soldiers truly were not famed for stealth. When Burkhart returned, he was in better possession of himself and asked Osric to resume. Osric told of the entry into the fortress, though he held back several details. A snake, said the prince. Is that all? Surely a company of armed men could deal with a big snake. Could we not send a larger detachment to drive it off and harvest the treasures of Kultum? It is too big. Its head would not get through the door. Ganamant threw his quill down and glared with open disgust. Osric ignored him. And it is changed in more ways than size. A hundred attackers would not survive as long as it took to count them. We owe our escape more to luck than anything else. I believe this creature is the reason the fortress was abandoned, and the reason it remains that way. That would make it almost a thousand years old, said Burkhart. That's not natural. Highness, this creature is hardly natural as we understand the word. Burkhart leaned back and kicked his feet up onto the desk, gradually regaining his boyish manner. So, the myths of some bases. It would also mean that Culver was wrong. He believed the storms triggered earthquakes that were responsible for emptying Kultum. Did he learn anything of them before his demise? You. I've forgotten your name. Fergal, Highness. Yes, that's it. You were Culver's assistant. Can you tell us what he discovered? Culver found mention of the storms, but nothing of quakes, so the link between the two was not validated. He would have agreed with General Osric's assessment of why Kultum stands empty. Did you agree with Culver's theories about the storms? No, Highness, I did not. It was quite true. Culver had produced no theories about the storms. Are there any among you who hold to Culver's ideas? None of them did. Even if they had, there was a tension in the air that warned them to keep silent. It was clear that the prince had some reason for hushing this threat of disaster, a reason that could move him to extreme measures. Well, though the loss of Culver saddens me, the prince said with deep relief and not a hint of sadness, it is perhaps a good thing that the inquiry has been shown inconclusive. The storms have no deeper meaning than a message from the gods. My diviners have succeeded in circulating an interpretation of peace through the city. It was a grave concern that Culver might fill people's heads with dangerous ideas, sowing fear, threatening the security of our people, the stability of our city. Such ideas can undermine our strength. They might even be considered treasonous. The prince had not made this speech idly, and he looked around the room from one person to the next, avoiding only Osric. Are there any among you who feel any need to pursue or spread Culver's notions, that we are facing some horrific devastation? None did. They had agreed not to mention the possibility of some dangerous creature slumbering on top of the Pelamines, if Burkhart even suspected them of spreading fear. Good, the prince said. Then you are free to go. But do not disappoint me. 
You will doubtless be asked of your journey, and I want you to be loud in your rejection of Culver's theories. You have served Casteth well, and I commend you all for your bravery and skill. I have many ears beyond these walls, and will be listening to hear how you continue to serve the city, by spreading a report of peaceful assurance. Though he wore a bright smile, the threat was obvious to everyone. Aidan knew the prince well enough to understand the full meaning. They were now puppets, whose mouths were under the prince's control. A loose word, an unguarded opinion, and they would receive the attentions of grimy tools in a black dungeon. As they left, Aidan realized with a sudden nausea how close they had walked to the edge, how treacherous their prince's preparations had been. Burkhart was all casual warmth and easy laughter, and behind this sunny curtain was a readiness to murder, perhaps not with his own hands, but Ganevant would be more than willing to perform any such task. He, Aidan guessed, was the dark arm of the prince's rule, and he would make a dangerous enemy, one who would embrace the lowest means. Though Osric's rank was higher, Ganevant held more power in this city, for he was clearly the prince's favoured man. Ganevant was not encumbered by a conscience, which made him a tool that Burkhard could apply to any purpose, honourable or otherwise. Osric could never be such a man. It was for this very reason that he was trusted by King Elgar. The prince drew those of supple morals to his inner circle, and he would no sooner confide in Osric than undress in public. Osric's eyes were indeed the king's eyes, and it was becoming clear that Burkhart had much to hide from them both. Clouds were darkening the city's keep. The northern king's favour, Aidan realised, might not protect Osric long, and that meant that Osric might not be able to protect him. Aidan now had two matters on which his careless tongue would bring about his death. During the silent walk back to the academy, he envied the scampering street children, whose names the prince did not know. Chapter 60 Hey, look! It's the Wanderer returned! He's got bigger. And uglier. Aidan! Did you bring us gifts? Rescue any foreign princesses? Did you bring one for Lorimer? He hasn't fallen in love for weeks now. Shut up, Peashot. You've been pining like a pigeon for Lero for three months. Pigeons don't pine, Lorimer. Yes, they do. Oh, so now you're an expert on pigeons? Lorimer knows nothing about pigeons, but he is the expert on pining. In spite of his uncertainties about returning to Burkhart City, it felt good to be among his friends again, and Aidan slipped into the routine quickly enough. Thanks to Fergal's teaching and Osric's training, he did not seem to have lost much ground. Some of the topics he had covered were slightly different, though. The examinations were only two weeks away, and he nearly injured himself catching up. The examiners were satisfied with his progress, with the usual exception of Colis. Dunn was particularly impressed, remarking that Aidan was noticeably stronger and judged his encounters with a far steadier eye. 
The worst result was in Lecran. Aidan's grip on the language was found to be the poorest in the class. Law was nearly as bad. Rodwell felt that Aidan was not implying himself. He was right. Aidan had lost all interest in Burkhardt's leadership and the laws by which he ruled. He passed the subject, but barely. His third year was complete. Liru, too, was promoted. Malik did not openly display his fury, but none could miss the thorns in his eyes. As usual, Vale received perfect results for anything that tested his extraordinary memory, and Lorimer endured a perfect agony of suspense, followed by infinite bliss when he slipped over the bar. Giddard asked Aidan to stay behind after the final class of the year. The wizened master seated himself on his table and scratched the deep wrinkles around his mouth. Since leaving for Kultum, you have changed in a way that I have seldom observed before. Perhaps I should say, never before. Since you've been back, people have been watching and noticing. They've also been talking, and I, of course, have been listening. He dropped his hand and looked straight at Aidan. Aidan shuffled. This is the first time, Giddard resumed, that I have ever heard of a third-year student making an apology to a first-year student and then offering to teach him and his friends a few personally devised combat tricks. I can tell you the impression it made on them was staggering. That little boy is standing taller than he's ever done. He used to be as dull as a corpse. Couldn't get any participation from him. Now he participates so much I can hardly get a word in myself. Aidan laughed. I'm glad to hear it, he said. I learned from Fergal what happened to you out east, Giddard said. I have no idea how to understand it, but I can say that the change in you is not imagined. All the masters have noticed, even Coles, though you are not likely to hear it from him, and though I believe he attributes the change to his own efforts at improving you. Giddard's face betrayed nothing, and Aidan had the good sense not to laugh. The party at Liru's had become a tradition. This time, due to her long absence, her parents agreed to host all of Liru's and Aidan's classmates, as well as Delwyn, of course. It was unnecessary to inform Malik that he was not welcome. Neither he nor Cade arrived. They spent the time before the celebration inventing reasons why it would be an awful event, and casting wistful looks at their excited classmates. When everyone had arrived and the music began, Peashot surprised Liru by knowing the steps to her favorite dances and chatting to her in the most appalling madre. She was delighted with the efforts, and her bright smile and raven hair whirled constantly across the dance floor. Though she and Peashot were inseparable, it was clear that she was as proud of Aidan as of a brother, telling the story of his fight with Rourke many times over. Aidan always diverted the attention, finishing it off with the little detail on how the famed swordsman had finally been toppled. Ilona had forgotten her dislike of Liru. For how long, none could say, and she was apparently determined to win back Aidan's affection, insisting on dancing with him more than once. But then she seemed equally intent on winning the affections of Hadley, Wharton, and two or three others. She had grown even more dazzling, and it was not lost on the boys.
Perhaps the only person more taken with her looks was Ilona herself, and it went a long way to spoiling them. When Aidan saw how sure she was of being admired, it almost made him dislike her. But then, when those eyes searched him out... Aidan was disappointed with himself for being so easily drawn back into the spider's web, as Liru had once put it. He fell into blackest despair when Ilona danced with Hadley and studied her for signs of disinterest. Then she danced with Wharton, and Aidan's heart dropped another foot into the earth. When Kian approached her for a dance, and Aidan saw her derisive sneer, he suddenly woke, as if from a drugged stupor. Peashot's comment floated back to him. Kind and sweet people are kind and sweet to everyone. Ilona was nice when she wanted something. It was like a beautiful mask she put on for a purpose, and beneath it was steel. Despite this, Aidan's eye was still lured whenever the golden hair swung across the dance floor. The following afternoon, Aidan began searching the libraries. There were five of them in the Marshal's division alone. The image that had appeared in the lightning was still clear in his mind, a red leather cover with a picture of a lizard curled twice on itself. At first he thought the search would be quick, as there were not many volumes bound in red leather, but after fruitlessly scouring all the libraries in his quadrant, he began to wonder. Access to the other quadrants was not that straightforward. Security, however, was less strict than the law wing. By dressing up and assuming a preoccupied look, tinctured with that pained superiority he had often noticed in the students from this wing, he was allowed to pass. The search was fruitless. The officer's wing possessed only one library, and it did not seem anyone cared who entered. Again, the book was not to be seen. He might have been able to pose as a law student, but he had no intention of disguising himself as a girl, so he asked Liru if she would search the libraries in the women's section. It took her the whole day, but she gave no sign of exhaustion when she returned and suggested that they try the army-owned city library in the morning. Peashot and Lorimer got wind of the search and offered to join in. By midday they had scoured every shelf without success. Are you sure it was a lizard? Lorimer asked. I saw one with a coiled chain. It was definitely a lizard, said Aidan. I can still see it as clearly as your face. As unpleasant? Shut up, Peashot. The fiery-haired, trouble-hunting boy was about to step it up a notch. He opened his mouth, but whatever he was going to say was lost, as he sprang in the air with a howl of pain. Liru gave him a stern look when he landed. Aidan was not sure how to announce himself to Fergal. He wasn't even sure if it would be possible to reach his office unattended. When he got back to the academy, he gathered a pile of books from his shelf, and put on a frustrated look of someone doing errands. The guards knew his face, and when they saw the tell-tale errand expression, they let him pass without a question. The knock was answered by a familiar voice. Aidan opened the door. Fergal was busy studying a map against the far wall. Come in, Aidan. Aidan paused. How did you know it was me? 
because everyone who has permission to knock at my door has been given clear instructions not to, on pain of death, or something along those lines. Because I expected it would take you three days after the conclusion of your examinations to search the libraries for the book you asked me about during our return journey. Because your persistent nature and penchant for finding yourself where you do not belong were bound to lead you down here, in spite of it being forbidden. And because your knock was too timid for anyone on a real errand. Then, of course, there is the reflection in the brass shield over there. Oh. Uh, I really didn't mean to disturb you. I sincerely hope that is untrue. If you arrived here with no objective capable of disturbing me, then you arrived with no objective at all. And you will have succeeded in disturbing me without purpose. Any man is rendered more intimidating by the walls of his office, and Aiden found himself considerably off-balance now. Are you angry with me? he asked. Do I look angry? Aiden could never tell what mood Fergal was in. He was not even sure if the man was capable of such things. Whatever emotions played through Fergal's thoughts ran as deep as water gurgling under a glacier. I don't know, said Aiden. I can't really tell. He saw the eyes wrinkle slightly. Fair enough, Fergal said. Osric the stone-faced himself accused me of being unreadable. He moved over to a bookshelf that spanned the room and drew a red volume, which he handed to Aidan. On the cover was an image burned into the leather surface. A lizard wrapped twice around itself, exactly as Aidan had described the book to Fergal during the journey home. You hid it from me. I did not. I spent some time searching, and when I found it, I drew it for you. There are archives that you do not know about. Very few of us have access. Before you leave here, you need to assure me that you will look after this volume. It is an original, and there are no copies. I will, said Aidan, barely able to contain his excitement. I might have sent word earlier, Fergal mused, half to himself. Could have saved you a lot of searching. But I thought it good to hold back for two reasons— Firstly, it would cause you to become acquainted with the shelves of all the libraries you have access to, and those you do not. Secondly, it would be fitting punishment for disturbing me. But I hadn't disturbed you yet. Quite so. An appalling exercise of distorted ethics. Punishment before crime, as if making a purchase. But, as it turns out, my wrath is appeased. And I send you on your way with pleasant wishes, and the stern warning I hope you have not forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I'll look after it. But how do I return it when I'm done? By disturbing me again, boy. How else? Now off with you. Aidan ran all the way back to his dorm, as fast as his cumbersome pile of books would allow. It was the second time he almost triggered one of the stair traps. They had caught two inattentive daydreamers over the years— the first was Lorimer, who had been seen a moment earlier lagging behind with dreamy eyes and a tender smile. The second was also Lorimer, and this time he took two others with him. He claimed to have been thinking about an abstract problem in trade law. No one even pretended to believe him. When Aidan reached the dorm, 
he tossed his own books on the desk and settled down to discover what was hidden within the red covers. The script was less than neat, but it was not this that caused him to frown. He worked through the first words. Some were familiar, enough to tell him that the book was written in Lecran. He slammed the cover shut and pushed it away. After pacing the room a few times, he decided to at least find out what it was about. There was no name on the cover, but the title page made it clear. The Customs and Rituals of Ulnoy. If Fergal had not cautioned him against damaging the book, he would have repeatedly hurled it against the wall until it fell apart, then burned the pages and mixed the ashes with pig muck. Ulnoy was the foulest word he knew in any language. It was the North Island of Lekrau, the island where his beloved Calorie had been offered to whatever filthy gods those murderers served. And he was expected to read this. He clapped the book shut again, booted his chair across the room and stormed out. The sun was shining outside, and it annoyed him further. What was this obsession that everyone seemed to have with understanding Lekrau? Why was he constantly pushed to not just face, but to study the one culture that was death to him? He felt tricked, betrayed. Forgiving and confronting his father was one thing, but this was going too far. The rest of the day was spent in a fog of disappointment, lit with the occasional flashes of anger. He could not throw the book out. Neither could he return it, so soon unless he wanted to hear Fergal's opinion on blinding prejudice and the need to overcome it. He pushed the volume to the back of his shelf and stacked the rest of his books in front until the red cover was hidden. Then he concerned himself with other matters and drove the book from his thoughts. One of these matters was the arrival of the emissary from Tullinro, along with two hundred cavalry. The entrance was spectacular. Prince Burkhardt and his entire retinue publicly welcomed them, and, Aidan suspected, privately wished them dead. If there were any uncomfortable scenes, though, they took place behind thick walls. Mern had not been saddled for months, and it took a while to reacquaint him with the leather. Aidan went back to the sandbags and started over. But it was quicker this time. He worked up the courage to get on the horses back again, at first just sitting, then walking with a lead, and then, finally, with the bridle. Sometimes Mern took it into his head to perform, and then he was a ship in a tempest. It was a game to him. Most things were. Students would come to watch Aiden aboard the Dark Beast. He tried valiantly to put on a good show, but mostly he looked like a desperate sailor clinging to the mast for dear life. The few moments of trotting or walking were never long. Mern had too much energy. His antics weren't vindictive, but shaking Aiden loose was an entertaining challenge. Aiden put up some jumps, which gave Mern a new purpose. It also gave Aiden several new bruises. The mischievous Ruthrek was still causing trouble with the other horses, in fact, with anyone or anything that came within range. A dog once slipped into a neighboring arena yapping at the pony's hocks. They neighed and tooted and galloped clear. The dog was having a wonderful time. 
Then it spied the tall, dark horse standing alone in the middle of its paddock. The dog's hair bristled. Courage poured into its veins. It stalked into clear ground, head low, shoulders rolling, eyes fixed. Then, when the distance was right, it launched into a furious barking charge, straight for the isolated horse. The dog left the paddock a moment later, doing at least double its initial speed. It was no longer barking, but yelping, then squealing, and its back legs looked as if they were about to run under its body and overtake the rest of the dog. Twenty feet behind and gaining fast was half a ton of black, barreling fate. The dog shot under the fence and kept going until its yelps faded away. Mern thundered to a stop just before the beams, looking mildly disappointed. He had enjoyed the game. When the rest of the students returned from recess, so did Aiden's greatest source of misery. Eva. Aiden was strolling across the wintry lawns, looking nowhere in particular, when he heard a deep voice behind him. Wham! the senior barked. Aiden stood where he was as the tall law student strode up to him and grasped the front of his shirt in a big fist. Thought you could hide forever, did you? Aiden made no reply. Eva smiled. I've had an idea. I thought it would be good for the world to know about your hollow spine. So I've written up a detailed account of your break-in and how you behaved when you were caught. It makes for fascinating reading. You are going to work for me whether you like it or not. Report to my quarters tonight for instructions, and if you don't show up, I'll have a hundred copies made of my little report, and I'll hand them out to anyone who is interested. Can you imagine how the news would travel? A marshal with no spine. Anyone who wanted to test it out would only prove its truth. If you try to hide from me again, I'll ruin you. When Aidan returned to his group, he was preoccupied as he sat down. No more running. No more circling, he thought. That afternoon, Liru and Peashot, worried about Aiden, went looking for him and finally located him at the stables. It was a loud, tinkling rattle that drew their attention. When it stopped, they saw Aiden straighten up and emerge from Mern's stall with a bucket. Even Mern looked puzzled and nosed over Aiden's shoulder. You can tell the difference between a cow and a stallion, right? asked Peashot wrinkling his nose at the bucket. Aiden shrugged. It's a rotten habit some horses have. When they get into the stables, they foul the straw. I thought I would try something to keep it clean. Better for his hooves. You do this every day? No, don't think I'll try it again. It splashes. He shot backed away. Liru, Aiden said, I've been meaning to ask you. You have access to the chemistry labs, don't you? Yes. Do you think they would let you take a small vial of powdered madder root? I'll see if I can find some. I'm sure it would be fine. What's it for? Just a little experiment I was thinking about. Aidan would say no more. 
It was night. Every one of Aiden's classmates was there, bar Malik. They crept past the half-nosed statue of Olemris, still frowning at his herbaceous audience, past two centuries, between the giant crindo boards and through the forbidden boulevard of the Law Wing. Then they took cover in the shadows while Aiden knocked on an open shutter. Eva's heavy-browed face appeared. Aiden began handing the costly wine bottles through the window. Even he could tell that this was good stock. Eva had made it clear that a single broken bottle would be repaid with a broken arm. Aiden had treated the bottles like gold, wrapping them in his own clothes to protect them. When the last bottle was handed over, Eva said something and Aiden bowed slightly and withdrew. Are you going to tell us now why we are here? Hadley asked on behalf of the waiting group. Aidan spoke in a whisper. It only took a sentence before the entire group rushed to the window as one. They stayed low, not looking, but listening. There was a good party going on inside. Many women's voices were mingled in the din. Corks popped. Eva's name was cheered and there was the sound of backslapping. The bully's voice could be heard as he told them about his new slave. There was a clinking of glass and the gurgling of wine. A toast was proposed, something about shaping the world any way they pleased. More cheers were heard, and then everything grew strangely silent. There was some violent coughing. Wow! Kicks like a mule! What year did you say this was? Sort of smells like a mule, too. I think one of the bottles was a bit corked. Mine tastes funny. Actually, it tastes... It tastes... I think I'm going to throw up. Eva, what filth have you bought us? Quick, she's going to be sick. No, not on the carpet. If you've poisoned my Gertie... The small crowd of listening boys was shaking so violently with suppressed mirth that it seemed they would burst apart. They scampered and staggered around the corner where they laughed until they ached. Ah, Peashot sighed, stumbling up to Aiden. If only man could have been here to take pride in his work. The world's first horse winemaker. Oh, matter root. It's a red dye, isn't it? With a bitter taste. I had to match the colour to the original wine. I hope it didn't spoil the flavour. The reprisal came early the next day. Aidan was alone, flicking acorns over the benches. Eva marched down to him at a pace that was nearly a run. When Aidan saw him approach, he felt his knees begin to tremble. He whispered under his breath, Just a man, just a man, and set his jaw. The fear was there. There was no denying it, but it no longer crushed him. Though that treacherous section of his bridge was groaning, it was not collapsing as before. It was holding the weight. He had to finish this. Eva caught Aiden by the front of the shirt and twisted it, almost lifting him off the ground. You want to die? he snarled. I'm sorry, sir. Was the wine not good? Aiden spoke loudly. Too loudly. Keep your voice down, you impudent beggar. Why, don't you want people to know that you've been forcing students to smuggle your wine? 
I thought that would make you seem strong. Don't play with me, worm. Remember, I have half a dozen witnesses to back up whatever story I decide to tell, and you have twenty-eight. Eva stared. Aidan pointed to the trees, where the long line of his classmates appeared, less only Malik and Cade. Eleven of the girls were there, too, having got wind of what was happening. This was something they would not miss. The large group waved and called greetings to the senior, whom they all addressed as, Sir. Eva let Aidan's shirt go. I would be more than happy to stay on as your smuggler, Aidan said. I have really enjoyed my position. No? Eva spat. Aidan brushed his face off, turned, and walked away. Come back here, you sniveling cur, and I'll— Aidan came back, and this time the way he walked was somehow different, more purposeful. Eva clenched his fist, but it was all too obvious that if he beat Aidan to a pulp, there would be a whole line of witnesses to testify at his expulsion hearing. And if he lost— Aidan was looking at him in a way that was almost, almost eager. I'm resigning, Aidan said, and I'm also removing the other boy from your employment. If we, he gestured to his friends, speak of what we saw now and last night, you face not just expulsion, but barring from all forms of legal practice in the district. I checked with my Master of Legal Studies. Eva looked like he was about to explode. His eyes grew black as a winter's night, and his face turned pink and swelled up. But his hands stayed at his sides. Eventually he threw off some choice threats and curses, and marched back across the field to a chorus of cheering and applause. Chapter 61 Winter had the day in a firm grip, and was filling it with a wind made of ice and nails. Aidan was happy for once to be indoors, though he regretted not bringing a lantern. He was cleaning out Mern's stall, which, while providing an escape from the wind, was dark as night on this gloomy morning. Telling the good straw from the soiled was not easily done by sight, and he was not prepared to lower his nose and sniff. He held his breath and thought, with a grin, of Eva, as he tossed another forkful of pungent straw to the side. Snatches of voices slipped through the open door as they rode the gusts of cold air. Aidan looked out from the dim stable and immediately pulled back. It was the royal guard, plumes and capes being flung about them, spoiling their dignity. It made them look like perched birds when the wind catches them from behind. Ahead of the soldiers, wrapped in thick coats, were two men Aidan would have recognized from any distance. The prince, who walked with an unusually eager spring to his step, and Ganavant, who, as always, thumped beside him like a giant bullfrog. Two more men walked on the other side of the prince, and it appeared as if he was giving them a tour of sorts by the way he pointed and talked. Aidan had no desire to be seen by Burkhart or his counsellor. He wanted to keep as far away from those men as possible. The corners of his stall were sunk in darkness, so he moved into the blackest one and waited. He just wanted them to pass on. The party appeared to have stopped nearby, judging from the voices. 
Then the two strangers stepped into the doorway of Man's stall and began to speak, keeping their voices low. Something about them struck Aidan as unusual, but when he heard the words, he understood. They were speaking Vinthian. He could follow most of the conversation. What think you of the city so far? I think she will like it. I think she will like it very much. Can they withstand the Fen? Let's hope so. We may not find another leader so ralge as this young prince. Let us ask if we can inspect the defences. Considering the Krolua, it is not an inappropriate request. Aidan had understood all the words but ralge and Krolua. Burkhart's nervous manner suggested that there was some kind of foreign courtship underway. If that was the case, then Ralge probably meant desirable or something, and Krulua, courtship. He ran the two words through his mind a few times, so he would be able to ask about them later. The two men had finished talking. They were looking out at the paddocks, looking at Mern. This is an animal worth remembering, the nearer of the two said. They watched for a long time. Aidan did not like the way they admired his horse. He was happy to see the last of them as the party reassembled and moved away across the lawns. Aidan ran back to the main buildings as soon as Burkhart turned the corner and was hidden from sight. Finished the book already? Fergal asked as Aidan pushed the door open. Aidan dropped his gaze. No, it's something else. Can we be overheard? Not if you close the door. Aidan did so and took the seat Fergal indicated. Do you remember you once said you thought Prince Burkhart had another motivation for suppressing any rumors of danger to the city? I do. Well, I just overheard another. Stop laughing at me. It wasn't my fault. I was busy in the stable, and they happened to have a discussion in the doorway of my horse's stall. I apologize. I'm only amused at your consistency. Let's hear what concerns you. Aidan repeated the conversation as well as he could remember. When Fergal made no response, he offered an opinion. It looked to me like the prince was showing off. Is there a woman he wants to impress? Some royal Vinthian he is courting? Fergal did not answer. Recite the conversation again. Slowly, he said, taking up a quill and a blank parchment, this time without translating it. Aidan did so. What does Ralge mean? he asked. Somewhere between innocent and trusting. Oh. Aidan saw how big a difference that made to the meaning. And Krulua? Negotiations. So this has nothing to do with a romantic arrangement, then, does it? That might be there, too, but the discussion you overheard implies a political arrangement, such as a trade agreement or military alliance, and this would indeed be a strong reason for Burkhart to suppress rumours of danger, or anything that might cast his city in a bad light. Who is the woman they talk about? Officially, King Renka still holds the throne in Vinteros, but one of our sentinels—sentinels? 
A delicate word for something else. You'll learn about them in time. One of our sentinels delivered a message that has not yet been circulated. It contains only unproven suspicions. Princess Irinel is considered by many in that palace to be ambitious, and black-hearted enough to murder her parents for the throne. Fergal paused. Our sentinel suspects she has already done so, and is hiding their deaths while she consolidates her position. What you overheard seems to confirm this. Do you think Prince Burkhart knows? Whether he believes he is negotiating with Renka or Irinel is of little consequence, because we are forbidden by our king to form any kind of alliance with Finteros. They are a treacherous nation with a history of dishonor and underhand dealings. Burkhart, it would appear, is making free with the southern reaches of his father's kingdom, as if it were his own. If I know King Elgar, then this is news that would most certainly bring an end to Burkhart's rule here. Another secret that could get me hanged, Aidan groaned. Not hanged. That's only for public executions. Dungeon axes and swine feed troughs are for hushing. Aidan put his head in his palms for a while. Can we get word to Tullinro, to the king? he asked. We would need far better proof than we now have. Our stern eyes would be turned on us. We need to wait until it is clear what is happening, until it can be proven. Then we will send word. I would give a few toes to see the last of this prince. Being in his city is like standing in a bear trap that's been jammed with a stick. I keep wondering when the stick will break. Don't panic, Aiden. For the time being, we are no great threat to Burkhart. He has far more troublesome things on his mind. He is not likely to think much beyond these negotiations and the Fen threat. We will find a way to deal with him eventually. Something will slip, and we'll have our proof. Hang on to your toes for now. If things get desperate, you can make Burkhart an offer. Aidan laughed. Fergal's eyes were lost in thought while his hand dug somewhere through the wild bush of a beard, probably just as lost. I'll let Osric know, he said. In fact, I think the Academy High Council should be told. May I know who they are? Considering the context in which your name will be mentioned, it is a fair request. I am Chairman, Sorn and Edrius whom you do not know, along with Giddard and Balfour, hold the other seats. Balfour? Mayor of the city south? Yes. We needed a man with strong political influence. He has done fine work for both the city and the academy. He would not approve of this disloyalty to the throne. Seeing the prince reminded me of the last time I overheard them. And I was wondering... No, Aidan. I'm not going to show you what lies beneath the Academy. I hate mysteries that are forbidden. They're like meals you have to watch other people eat. Did I forbid you to search or explore? Won't I be punished if I'm caught? Of course, and I will be most surprised and a little disappointed if you see that as a closed door. You have a strange set of ideals, Fergal. Nothing to do with ideals. I consider it to be part of your training. I gave my word not to admit anyone, and I will keep that. You are training to be a marshal, 
and marshals are required to go where others cannot. Your explorations will not be by my enabling, and will be for your advancement, and ultimately for the good of Castath. Aidan grunted and rose to his feet, but Fergal was not one to forget things. Have you even started on the book? Aidan frowned. No. Fergal said nothing. It struck harder than the worst of Dunn's shouting. That silence gnawed at him all the way back to his dorm. He pulled the red volume out and looked at the cover. The design was as familiar now as his own hand. He sat down, opened the book, and tried to read. But it had the same effect as a plate of rotten offal. No, he growled, shutting it and putting it back. Not that. Anything but that. He drove it out of his thoughts again, but it was like shaking a pebble to the front of his shoe. Just when he thought it was gone, it would slip back and make its presence felt. The only means of getting it out was by reading the book, and he could not do that. He would not do that. So he nudged the pebble away, and pretended and thought of other things until it slipped under his tread and made him wince and almost scream with frustration. But that was the course he had chosen, and he held to it. Since news of Eastridge had arrived in Castith, much had changed. Aidan had noticed on his return that there were fewer soldiers patrolling within the city. Castith had no separate police force. All internal security was managed by the military. So when garrisons had been posted in a broad arc to the east, the military presence back home was thinned. As a compromise, martial apprentices and student officers were assigned to patrols, assisting them from time to time in order to supplement the numbers. Even so, there was no hiding the fact that fewer eyes watched inside the walls. A cruel counterpart to this was the growing number of naive country folk that had moved to the city from their isolated homes in the east. The result was not unforeseeable. Aidan and Lorimer were paired with a group of soldiers, the very old and the very young. All they managed to do was aid those they found beaten and robbed, and load up those who had fared worse. The patrols were too few to be everywhere they were needed and spotters picked them out from a long way off. Aidan's mood sank through the day, but it was the last scene that turned him white with anger. An old woman, her skin cut and swollen with puffy bruises, and her jaw struck almost from her face, hung weeping over a dead man, presumably her aged husband. The depth of her heartache was like a solid weight that rose with her soft keening, settled on the shoulders of everyone there. The younger soldiers were constantly brushing their cheeks as they tried to help her up and lift her onto the cart, but with feeble arms she fought them off and clung to the dead man, burying her face in his neck, gently brushing his thin white hair. Oh, Sherwin, Sherwin, my Sherwin, she cried. The couple's rough country clothes told enough of the story. 
Lorimer stood at a distance with his back to the scene. Aiden tried to watch, but kept turning away, striking at the air with his iron-sheathed quarterstaff, wishing it was not air that he was striking. That night he visited Osric's house. The general was packing for a fortnight-long patrol in the east. I saw an old couple near Miller's Court today, he said, sitting down. They were old enough to be grandparents. His neck was broken, and it looked like they used a hammer on her face. What is happening to our city? We send our garrisons out to defend it, and it begins to cut itself up from inside. Osric paused, water skin in one hand, oatmeal loaf in the other. The irony of war, he said. It has always been this way. We are taught to think that the battle lines separate the good from the bad, but the truth, as you are beginning to understand, is less comfortable. When we have clearer knowledge of Fen movements, perhaps we can pull back some of the patrols. Until then, the dogs will take their chances. Osric, what are the Fen after? I know it's not silver. We don't have much left. It wouldn't be food, because their soil is just as rich as ours. What do we have that could justify a full-scale war? You've done some study and trade. What gem could bring about a war, even if a small deposit were found? Earth stars. But we don't. Osric looked at him in silence. We do? I should not really answer that, but seeing as you have been a guest in the War Council, and seeing as you shared knowledge that has more than once provided vital clues, I shall tell you. But it must not be passed on. The deposit was only recently found, and it has brought great danger. We are like the poor man who has just discovered a treasure trove beneath his floor. No walls to his property, flimsy locks to his doors— and merchants who would follow him back home the moment he attempted to trade. A nation trading in these gems needs to be well fortified before entering the market, or it will simply be invaded. We can't even use the stones to buy arms or hire builders. Fortunately for us, the Fen would not want to spread the word for fear of competition. Have you ever seen an Earth Star? A few. You've seen at least two yourself at Kultum, don't you remember? I saw a speck of light at the top of a cave. You saw one up close. You wanted it. Oh, the gem and the crown. Yes. Aidan sat back and considered. How did the Fen hear about our deposit? I'm not sure. Prince Barkart has not told us. I suspect he tried to look for buyers. Is it as bad as that? Try to sell and the buyer becomes a thief? That's about the way of it. The most hostile market I know. Horrible things to have to sell. Do you think news of the Earth Stars has reached Vinteris? I truly hope not. And so should you. If our young prince has not held his tongue, we may find ourselves in a two-front war with Lekrau always hovering. Osric finished packing his food, slung his bags over his shoulder, and strode to the door. There's something you should know, he said. 
Both Holt and Captain Senbart have disappeared. I've checked prisons, patrol rosters, discharges, and even asked the officers. Nothing. It's as if the earth swallowed them. I don't think they will ever be seen again. Aidan stared, a needle of fear slipping behind his collar. Keep out of Burkhart's way, Aidan. Even further out of Ganavant's. I always do. Osric glared at him. There is nobody in Castith for whom that is less true. The door slammed. It was the general's version of a warm goodbye. Aidan lingered for a while, staring into the grain of the rough oak table, as if he would find in it some answer of how people could do to others what he had seen that day, and why one nation would rise against another for a few sparkling rocks. His thoughts produced neither answers nor solace. He had intended to fix a meal, but his appetite was charred. Instead, he trudged out through the city to the walls, climbed a rickety builder's ladder, and found his usual lonely spot between sentries, where he could stare out into the heavy darkness. A while later, big feet slapped towards him, and Lorimer lowered himself onto the stone. They watched the night in silence, before Lorimer spoke. Still upset? he asked. Still, Aidan said. Me too. I thought I could handle blood. But the people we saw today, none of them were armed. And even with weapons, they would have been helpless. What kind of cowards? He trailed off. Do you think, Aidan said after a while, that anger is wrong? Don't know. Maybe it depends on how you use it. Or where it comes from. What do you mean? Lorimer asked. Well, I used to think real men turned their anger into revenge, and that's what got them to be respected. But I tried it a few times, and it didn't make me feel like a man any more than swearing or kicking the chickens. But when I saw that old woman today, the anger I felt was huge, and it seemed like a right kind of anger. Does that make sense? I think so. Makes sense to me. I felt like that, too. So did most of the soldiers, judging by how their faces looked. Lorimer was quiet for a time, and when he spoke again, his voice was different. It was the voice of someone who had decided to release a long-held secret. One of my uncles used to come over when he was drunk and play this game where he would jab his knife into the table between my fingers. I could see my father was scared, but he didn't want to argue with his brother-in-law, so instead he just laughed. That thin, false kind of laugh. When he hugged me afterwards, I hated it. It was like he was lying. I used to think if he cared anything that he would have got angry. If you care about people and you really love them, you should get angry at the things that put them in danger or hurt them. You've also got to decide to do something, said Aidan. I used to get angry when my father... He caught himself, and then after a moment's hesitation decided he was tired of hiding it. If Lorimer could lay down his secrets, so could he. It was time. 
I got angry, and my father beat my mother, he said. The day I decided to stand in front of him, things got really bad for me. I thought I'd made a huge mistake at the time, but I don't anymore. I would rather be the person who steps in front of a whole gang to defend someone and gets beaten up for it than the person who watches from a safe hiding place. There were times I hid, and I think the shame hurts more than the bruises would have. A distant series of creaks interrupted him. Listen, said Aidan, it's the main gate. It must be Osric's patrol leaving. He loves heading out at odd hours. That way nobody knows when to expect him. I wish I was going with. Lorimer did not chime in with his agreement. If they actually meet an enemy front, he said, I wonder how many of them will make it back. The next morning, Brenton, the stabler, shocked Aidan with stories of what was taking place near his home. Later, Aidan went to visit Garald and Hayes in the seeps. The things they told him he could hardly believe. It was even worse than he had thought. A reign of sickening lawlessness was spreading unchecked. The knowledge turned inside Aidan like a bad meal. It shattered whatever was left of his assumptions about solidarity. That, when war threatened, people with a common enemy stood together. Princes and peasants, thespians and thieves. How, in a time like this, could men turn on their own? Apparently to some, their own did not extend beyond their hands and feet, and they would turn on anyone and do anything that suited them. Many who had run to the city for shelter had found all that they had dreaded, and found it here, within the walls that should have protected them. Aidan remembered his first experiences, the gang that had tried to rob his father, his encounters with the anvil, whom he somewhat hoped to run into again, the gang he had spotted at work, and that had tried to collar him. And then he had an idea that sent him running. Aidan was grim, as he explained. Dunn's mouth stretched into a smile that held little humour. That's the whole class, he said. I'll collect a few of the seniors. It took a little time to find everyone, but they were finally gathered in the weapons hall. It's Aidan's idea, Dunn said and it is a blazing good one. For some of you, it will be your first uncontrolled encounter with the sharp end of a blade and men who will not hold back. But I believe the time is right. Almost all the boys had passed their sixteenth birthdays, and they were strong for their age. As Dunn began to explain, the faces watching him grew angry, then firm, then eager. Chapter 62 It was afternoon in the seeps, but already the light had fled, along with any respectable company. Some of the narrower alleyways were almost dark enough to warrant the use of lamps, but there was no lamp among the group of frightened young women that hurried between the mounds of refuse, shrieking at rats and arguing over directions in thin, frightened voices. They came to a sudden halt as the shapes of three men filled the alley ahead of them. Gasps of horror escaped them, 
when they spun and found that the alley behind them was now blocked too. They stood, quivering, drawing their shawls over their heads as if to hide, but it was too late. Pay up, the largest and dirtiest of the men said. Leave your money and we'll let you pass. The women were too frightened to protest. Coins clinked, some dropping on the floor as the foremost girl collected them and handed them over. Now will you let us pass? she pleaded. I lied, he said with a laugh as filthy as the floor of the alley. I'm not much for county, but it looks like there's as many of you as there is of us. One each, boys. He stepped forward and pushed his unwashed hand around the first girl's neck. The other men closed in. You've done this to many girls, haven't you? she asked. Many, he said with a smile of pure evil. We all have. Pickings have been good lately. I thought so. This time the girl's voice was softer. It did not sound frightened, but it was heavy with sadness and it shook with swelling anger. You're going to give me trouble, aren't you? The man growled, raising a club and tensing to bring it down hard. But the swing was never completed. The sharp tip of a dagger sprouted through his left arm. He shrieked and released his grip on her neck. The girl stepped forward and plunged another dagger into his right armpit. With a howl of agony, he dropped the club, which she deftly caught and swung at his face. The blow struck with such force that it smashed several teeth from his mouth and sent them skittering into grimy shadows. A second blow knocked him off his feet and he landed solidly on his back. He lay still, breath fizzing through the bloody ooze that trickled from his mouth. Aidan pulled the shawl and wig from his head, spat, and turned to see the other men falling under a similar wrath. Dunn had instructed the boys to avoid killing unless their lives were threatened. But this gang had a dark name. It had been given special mention. These men are widely rumored to be guilty of the worst crimes, Dunn had said. And even a suggestion of ruthless intent, you are to use your daggers. That is an order. Today you are fully authorized by the city of Castith to administer capital punishment for capital crimes. Aidan had let the man take his neck because he needed to know the truth before acting. He could have stabbed for the chest, but he wanted the noose to have the final word. The boys carried both daggers and clubs strapped against their kirtles and hidden by thin cloaks. After what the gang leader had said, Aidan was not surprised to see that every member of his team had used daggers. One of the gang members looked to be dead, or nearly so and the rest were either unconscious or lay gurgling and twisting in mortal agony. Hadley was still punching the man that lay beneath him, his face contorted with rage. No one interfered. Call the soldiers, Aidan said. Peashot jogged down the alley and returned with a heavily armed patrol. At their head was Cameron, the polite old captain who had spoken to Aidan on the day of his arrival almost four years back, and who well remembered the young lad who had once asked his name at the city gate. 
Aidan gave a short account. When he was finished, Cameron stepped over to the leader and planted a savage kick in the man's neck. Been wanting to do that for a long time. Lots of us have heard of this Mole Alley gang. Earned a hanging ten times over. They confessed to a capital crime, then attempted to repeat it. Their deal's done, at last. Commander's waiting at the gallows with the judge. I can guarantee you this lot will be swinging tonight, dead or alive. Any of you hurt? No, said Aiden, turning to look around. The revulsion still burned in him as he remembered the leader's depraved boast. It almost pushed him to march over and put his daggers to work again. It was the first time in months he was glad to be serving the law. The others were silent. None of them had ever had to clean their blades before. There had been laughter in the wake of the first two encounters, as soldiers had bound the gangs of thieves and dragged them off to prison. But there was no laughter now. That's three gangs, said Cameron. You boys are doing what we soldiers could never do. Even in disguise, we look like soldiers. We smell like soldiers, and gangs of sharp noses. Aidan turned to his companions. One more, he said. What you have in mind? asked Hadley. Aidan was silent for a moment. Let's team up with one of the other groups and take the Earl's Quarter Gang. But that's a huge gang, Lorimer exclaimed. One of the most powerful in the city. And one of the busiest. If they land in jail... Everyone will hear about it. It will do more than taking a dozen smaller ones. I think Lorimer's right, said Vale. Aren't they too big for us? I doubt we'll see the whole lot, but the soldiers will have to be nearby for this one. How? The spotters cover at least five blocks. If soldiers are anywhere near, it will be like hunting deer and taking a brass band along for company. Aidan's eyes took on a glazed, distant look. I have an idea, he said, though it's not going to be comfortable for the soldiers. The farmer, who usually delivered the feed and hay to the royal stables, was nowhere to be seen on the big cart, and apparently his children were making the delivery for him. It was not uncommon. Many things were out of order during this time. In spite of the crowded conditions in the city, this was not a busy street, for it was a delivery track strewn with manure, and its narrowness meant that pedestrians never fared well. Night had settled, and a lantern swung near the driver, a young, nervous-looking boy. This time, Peashot did not have to act nervous. He was strung as tight as a harp. A bulging purse was secured to his belt and he tapped it constantly while his eyes scanned the road. The cart was at the darkest point of the lane, approaching an intersection where a lone boy idled, when a wheel slipped off the axle. The girls, who had been singing songs, began to cry as they understood their isolation, and the boys tried in vain to lift the wagon and replace the wheel. Peashot and Kean hopped down, walked across to the much bigger boy, and asked if he would find some men to help. Peashot dug a silver chim out of his money bag and handed it over, promising another if help were found. The boy was no idler, 
but a spotter. He would report the situation in detail. A group of children making a farmer's deliveries, a few boys but no adults around, and at least one large money bag. Before long, the narrow space began to reverberate with the tramping of heavy feet. About twenty strong men arrived, showing an eagerness that did not accord with the mending of a wagon wheel. The spotter indicated Peashot and spoke quietly. A wiry man barked a few sharp orders, and two of the group ran a hundred paces down the lane where they stopped and faced away, standing guard. This gang was cautious and well-organized. One of them stood apart. He was tall and deep-striding, and the other members parted before him as he walked into a shadowy section of the road and watched. Aidan marked him. Though he gave no orders, his mere presence dominated the gang. This, surely, was the mastermind who led the city's most cunning group of outlaws. They were not murderers, but they were thieves, and dauntingly successful ones. Peashot stood atop the wagon, pointing down at the wheel. He did not want to provide an easy target for a snatch and run. Six men came up, three on either side of the wagon, squeezing past the mules, eyeing the boxes under the seat. What you got in there, boy? the wiry man asked. Nothing, said Peashot. Well then, you won't mind if we take them all along with us. They're my father's. Not any more. That there money bag, you'd best hand that over too. One of the men began to climb up to the driver's seat. Peashot unhooked the money bag and slung it at the gangster's head, knocking him down and scattering coins all over the road so that they tinkled and called in sweet voices to greedy ears. As soon as the attention was off Peashot, the three boys and seven girls dashed off the front of the cart. They demonstrated surprising agility as they ran along a beam separating the mules and sprinted away, screaming. Even the girls dodged between the gang members with uncanny ease, passing them and making good their escape. A large girl, who might have answered to the name of Wharton, was not that light on her feet. Someone tried to stop her. Instead of screaming for help, she raised two club-like fists and punched her way free. Her assailant landed on his back with a thump and a rapidly swelling eye. Five of the children went straight, five turned into the adjoining alley. But then they stopped and spun around. Scatter! It was the tall man in the shadows whom Aidan had singled out earlier. The man was hardly visible, but his voice moved the gang like the touch of a whip. They turned and ran towards the exits the children were blocking. These children were behaving strangely, though. They seemed to be sowing seed, seed that bounced and skittered over the cobbles with hundreds of metallic tings, unlike coins, thinner, sharper. The gangsters thundered towards them and did not slow down at the sight of this puny barricade of children, and the apparently senseless littering meant nothing to them. They made no effort to avoid the little bits of metal. This gang would rush past like wind and vanish into the shadows beyond, organized, silent, and strong. But there was neither organization nor silence in what now took place. 
The little bits of metal were caltrops, sharp, four-pointed, blade-like stars with one point always raised to the sky. Howls of pain filled the air as the upward-facing blade slipped through boot soles and sank deep into flesh and bone. Some of the blades even emerged onto the other side. The shrieking thieves collapsed onto more steel points. The caltrops were everywhere now, but none of them could stand again until they had pulled the spikes from their feet. At the same time, the wagon burst open like a termite-infested log. Soldiers threw off hay-covered panels and poured out front and side. They cut off the third escape and worked their way forward, knocking down any thieves still on their feet. The soldiers clanked about as if they were running with pots strapped to their boots, and this was, in fact, not far from the reality. The steel plates under their soles did make the cobbles slippery, but it saved them from the more immediate concern of a road with teeth. No gang could put up much of a fight under the circumstances. The children kept throwing the little four-pointed horrors under the feet of any gangster who was attempting to make a stand. Aidan had not forgotten about the two who had taken up sentry positions further down the road behind him. They were still there. He could see their outlines. But then they turned and jogged away. Only now there were three. He assumed the third was the leader who had slipped past. Twenty-two men were arrested, many of them well-known members of the criminal elite. Cameron was actually laughing with delight. Most of the soldiers had seen the whole performance through spy holes. They were grinning as they led their wincing prisoners away. The boys took off their disguises and lit lamps while they cleared the road of caltrops. What gave you this idea? Heshot asked Aiden. Remember when we were making our first swords? The day I went to the forge barefoot? I was a cripple, and the rest of you were fine. Heshot grinned. Might have given you a good idea, but I'm still going to remember that as one of the stupidest things you ever did. It took some time to clean the street, and it was late when they made their way back to the academy. As they trudged homeward, the mood was lightened by the memory of thieves hobbling about and howling and sitting down and then springing up howling again. It was a quiet group, though, with much on their minds, and the laughter was punctuated with long silences. Aidan excused himself, saying he needed to fetch a new shirt from Osric's house, but he really just wanted to be alone for a while. None of the boys had noticed the stealthy figures trailing them through the darkness. When Aidan split off, he drew the followers, and they closed the distance quickly. Chapter 63 It was the second dull scrape he'd heard. Soft, easily ignored. There were many cats that scavenged in this part of town. Since Malek had successfully tailed him in his first year at the academy, Aidan had been vigilant, constantly checking his surroundings. But tonight his thoughts were unusually heavy and sluggish. Another scrape, this time closer. When he turned, it was too late. The clunk of a wooden baton rang through his skull. 
He sprawled forward and tried to roll to his feet, but two men were on him before he could recover himself. They took an arm each, yanked him up, and dragged him against a wall. A third man approached with a deep stride. Aidan, in spite of his dizziness, recognized him immediately. It was the man who had called the warning, the one he'd assumed to be the mastermind. But now he began to hear the chimes of recognition from elsewhere, from before the last gang roundup. Long before. Then the man stepped into a beam of light from an overhead window. I have tried very hard not to despise you, Clawman said. But you are determined to earn my hatred. Aiden did not speak. He stared at his father's tall figure with growing dread. Do you know what you did tonight? Aiden guessed in an instant. He looked down, suddenly ashamed, despite the voice of reason protesting that he should not be. Yes, you know, don't you? With all your supposed knowledge, I would have expected you to learn where my interests lay and respect them. Nearly three years ago, you defied me. You overturned one of my projects and brought about the loss of many of my collectors. Then you cowered away in your little academy safe house. Tonight, you robbed me of half my best men. I didn't know it was your gang, because you did not bother yourself to find out. Clawman shouted, stepping forward. Aidan saw the vein swelling in his father's neck and heard the heavy breathing. But Clawman contained himself and stopped short. A calculating look came into his eyes that worried Aidan even more. It's time for you to pay back, and this is how you will do it. My operations thrive on information, layouts, numbers, schedules, and, of course, security measures. You will find a way of providing me with those. If you betray me again, I'll turn all my attention to destroying you. Aidan was trembling. He knew his father was no more than a man yet his words brought back all the fears of childhood. The same demon began to claw at him again, prying his heart open and hurling mockery into the depth of his being. It told him that he was a broken, beaten pulp, and if he did not shrink away and hide, he would be crushed. His legs began to tremble, and he felt his back slipping against the stone wall. Step aside. Clawman ordered his two men. They let Aiden go, and he sagged to the ground. Answer me, Clawman said, glaring at his son. Aiden's mouth was dry, and his words would not come as he tried to form words. Clawman smiled. I understand that language. I will expect you to contact me within a week. Find something that will begin to pay back the losses you brought about. He turned and strode away, his men jogging to keep up. Aidan saw them dwindle away. The danger was gone, 
But something else was gone too. Something he needed. He was not sure what it was, but its absence made him realize that he had escaped nothing by his silence. He felt a sudden weight settle on him, and he understood what he had lost. Freedom. He had faced his jailer, and not even made an attempt to gain the key. Every muscle felt like it was made of shivering lard, but he pushed himself up, filled his lungs and shouted, though it came out more like a shriek. No! The three figures stopped moving. They turned and began to walk back. There was no mistaking the way his father strode now. The arms were pushed slightly out over bald fists. Every movement betrayed a pounding, swinging fury. Clawman did not even break stride. He hit Aiden in the stomach and hammered him to the ground. You dare to speak to me like that? I didn't think you needed to be reminded of your place, but I am happy to do the necessary. He kicked, causing Aiden to skid back against the wall where he coughed and gasped for breath. Do you understand? Or must I carry on? Aiden understood. The message was sharp and clear. But another message began to rumble in his mind. It was the message he had understood as that colossal voice had spoken his name the second time. It was a message so pure with kindness and so terrifying with its power that the lies had crawled out from their hidings and melted before it. From where Aiden sprawled in the stink and grime, he looked up between the buildings into the great depths of the night, at stars beyond the reach of the highest mountains. Someone whose voice had made even those distant stars tremble with awe knew his name. The same warmth grew in him. Though he still drew thin, scraping breaths of air, he pushed himself to his feet. A weight he could not see was pressing him down, but he would not bow under it again. He looked at his father, and, as he did so, a covering began to slip. He glimpsed the man behind the horror that had stalked his past. As with Rourke, as with Eva, there was no monster, only a man who had behaved monstrously. And as before, it made him seem smaller, not bigger. Clawman laughed a hard laugh. Want to stand up to me, do you? He hit again, but this time the blows did not fall as cleanly as before. Aiden was blocking and ducking. Though there were openings for retaliation, he took none of them. Clawman was breathing hard when his son stumbled and dropped under a furious rain of punches, but this time Aiden rolled quickly and got to his feet again. How about we hold him? asked one of the gangsters, stepping up to Aiden. But he stepped too close. It was a movement like the strike of a python. The base of Aiden's palm crunched into the thief's nose, knocking him backwards. A knee followed, driving into the groin, doubling him over, bringing his head in line for Aiden's elbow. A short swing, a solid blow. Before he knew what had happened, the man was sagging. He dropped with a soft moan. 
It was one of Dunn's standard sequences. The other gangster had been approaching, but now kept his distance. Clawman watched his son for a long time before speaking. Why didn't you strike me? he asked. I don't want to, Aiden said. Still a coward, then? No, because I forgave you. It took more courage to do that than hating you. Hating and hitting are easy. Call it what you want, but it seems that my blows have finally turned you into a man. Aiden could hardly believe the words. A man? You made me into a cowering worm. It was something very different to your treatment that got me to my feet. It's as different from the way you treated me as rain is from drought. So you hold back your hands and hit me with your words, just like a woman, just like a traitor. I did not betray you, Aiden cried. I stayed with Mother because she needed me more than you did. Clawman swallowed. How is... He squeezed his eyes shut and said no more. She misses you, Aiden said. Clawman's eyes opened again, but his jaw was clenched and his look hard. She has her friends. She chose them, he said. She needed family. And I did not. Clawman almost screamed the question. The light from the window glistened in his eyes now. It was the first time Aiden had seen anything beyond the rigid, proud barrier. And for the first time, he knew that it had been only a barrier. There was a person who hid behind it, someone who felt the same pain that he did, who had the same need for family, for acceptance. Even in the misty veils you turned your back on me, Clawman said. If you weren't learning languages with... with... her... languages that excluded me, then you were off to that daughter of Dresbon's as if his family was better than ours. It was you who drove me away. At Badgerfields I was never frightened. Callery was the sister I needed when you were too angry to be my father. She accepted me always. So I did not measure up to your standards, and that justified throwing me out. Throwing you out? You were the one who walked out, don't you remember? I walked out on the meddling of others. Do you think I wanted to lose my family? He shouted and kicked a discarded crate so hard that it flew into the wall and shattered. Aidan's mouth opened. He had always believed that this was exactly what his father had wanted. I thought... Someone opened a shutter in the wall above and stuck his head out. Keep it down out there, will ya? He called. Glorman unhooked a short club and flung it at the window with a roar, sending the man tumbling back into his house. The shutters slammed closed. Clawman inclined his head for Aiden to continue. I thought you did want to leave us, Aiden said. Why did you not come back? You knew we couldn't have found you. Clawman's eyes dropped and searched the ground. They found a pair of big boots, 
and suddenly he became aware of the gangster who was listening with ill-concealed interest. He straightened up, and his jaw locked. Because I cannot abide traitors. But I did not betray you. Clawman looked at him. Even now you betray me by denying your help, your repayment. All his former hardness was returning. The father and husband who had stepped from behind his shield was gone, and the light now glinted off a face of iron. What you ask of me is wrong, Aidan said. No son of mine would dare instruct me or question my judgment. His mouth twisted. So you cannot be my son. He turned and walked away with the gangster who carried his sleeping companion over a shoulder. When they had left, Aidan slid down against the wall and cried like one of the country children in the overcrowded streets who had lost his father. Chapter 64 Most of the apprentices were still a little moody and preoccupied the next day, so when Aidan wouldn't talk about the new bruisers, he was not harried. Dunn cancelled their early training session and spoke to them of the previous day's work. He was thoroughly pleased with the results. The gangs of Castith had taken a heavy knock. Twenty-three small gangs and four large ones had lost many members to the city jails, some to the gallows. News had spread, and it was clear that the days of easy crime had been interrupted. Not all the operations, though, had run without loss. One group of older martial apprentices had been surprised by a reserve force. Two of the boys were dead, and one critically wounded. The gang was rounded up during the day as a priority, and every member convicted of murder. Lawbreaking across the city lost much of its appeal. The surprises continued. Houses that should have been perfect targets for burglary were found dripping with marshals and soldiers. The city's honest folk sensed the change and began to move about with less fear. The gibbets were full, the jails too. A heavy hand closed on the city's crime, and several days passed during which nothing more than petty theft was reported. It was even rumoured that many of the shady prospectors had found honest employment. When Osric returned from his two-week patrol, Aidan found out and went to visit. The general, Tyne and Murta, sat at the table, now covered in a soft cream cloth, before a small mountain of fresh crumpets, a pot of honey, and mugs of steaming tea. The scene was made cosier by the absence of lanterns. The room was lit instead by a bright fire humming in the hearth. Aidan grinned as he looked around. This could only be Tyne's influence. He had never seen the room, so far removed from its accustomed, stern character, and he had never seen its owner so comfortable. In that moment, Aidan understood that Osric was not rigid and severe because he enjoyed it. He was that way because he didn't know how to be anything else. Aidan had once wondered if the general was too set in his nature, if that was why he had never married, if there was no place for a woman, not even Tyne. But it was clear, just by looking at him, 
that he relished the softening she brought to his life. The way the two of them were smiling ran deeper than the warmth of a greeting. Tyne's long hair was loose, falling gently on her shoulders and giving her an air of homeliness, of womanliness that her tight braid and uniform had muted. It was almost difficult to believe she was the same person. Osric's eyes were unable to leave her for long, even at Aidan's entrance. Aidan ground his teeth with frustration at these wonderful, silly people. They were like starving urchins hovering before a feast, trying to convince themselves that food was not the right thing for them. Their reasons for remaining apart made no sense. Tyne had said Aidan was too young to understand, but young or old, what right did yesterday's hurt have to steal today's happiness? Only the right that was surrendered, surely. Here were two fearsome soldiers, yielding what they both longed for without a fight. He wished there was a way he could knock them from their delusion, but it was Osric who did the knocking. Aidan, it's good to see you again, he boomed reaching over and delivering a clap on the back that struck like a hoof. Murta, sitting as usual with his back to the fire, gripped Aidan's forearm warmly, and Tyne hugged him and asked after Liru. While Aidan was being plied with tea and honey-drenched crumpets, Osric took up the conversation. We heard about the business with the gangs while we were still out on patrol, he said. We were just talking about it when you came in. Your idea? I had to do something, Aidan said. Men can't be permitted to behave like beasts. Couldn't agree more. You and your friends did a fine job. Has your mother stayed safe through all this? Yes, she is safe. When I arrived in my patrol uniform, she didn't recognize me at first. We had a good laugh until Harriet arrived. I wish it was Harriet who didn't recognize me. Ever. To her, I am the cause of all griefs in Therna. The Fen would not be threatening our borders if I had just done everything she insisted on. They laughed, but Aidan was quiet. Aidan, said Tyne, are you all right? You look like you're heavy inside. I met my father, he said, after considering whether or not to mention it, and deciding, as with Lorimer, that carrying it alone was doing him no good. It was almost like he really wanted to put our family together again, but he ended off by disowning me. This might have been enough for Osric, but Tyne wanted to know all the details. When Aidan had finished telling the story, they were thoughtful. What made him beat you as a child? she asked. Don't answer if it's too bold a question. Once I tried to stop him hurting my mother when they were arguing. He said I had betrayed him. Before, on his angry days, he used to just ignore me. After that, he didn't ignore me any more. Osric looked as if he was about to smash a hole in the table. His breathing was shallow, his face flushed, and his lips tight with the effort of holding back whatever snapped and growled inside. It was Tyne who eventually spoke. I am glad that you were able to face him. I think it is what we were all hoping for. It's a bitter sadness, though, that he did not decide differently. 
Pride is the biggest thief of all. But perhaps he will yet change his mind. Aidan might have reacted to anyone else pointing out his father's error, but there was no blame in Tyne's voice, and no doubting her sincerity. He remembered how his father had recognized and condemned Dresborn's pride years ago, yet held fast to his own. Perhaps, he said, he wondered if she knew how much hope stood behind the word. The room was dark. Daylight was several hours away, but Aidan knew further sleep would be impossible. It was the same dream, and this time it was sharper, sterner. The image of that Lecran book would appear, and he would hear the word read. Then he would wake as if he had been pushed from slumber. He knew he could ignore it, turn over and wait for daylight, but this time it was as though there was urgency in the voice. It was the same huge voice that he had heard twice. He was caught between wanting to obey it and wanting to avoid that sickening book. The blankets were warm. He turned over and closed his eyes, but the sense of disappointment that poured over him was so deep that he sat up. Fine, he grumbled. I'll do it. Working by feel, he got up, pushed aside the books on his shelf, and drew out the volume from where it was buried. Then he took his thickest blanket, for the night was cold, scraped around until he found his lantern, and crept out the door and down the passage to one of the study coves. He lit his wick from the night lamp that was mounted nearby. The disappointment had left him, he noticed, and in spite of his hatred of everything Lecran, he felt a curious peace. Perhaps, he thought, this was not so much about getting over his hatred as it was about getting over his sensitivity. He would not be much use in a war against a nation whose culture he could not face without a wave of sickening weakness. What he was doing now was like building a resistance to poison in gradual increments. It was beginning to make sense. The time had come for him to look in the face of his enemy and not turn away. There were forms of strength that came only at a great price. With a new feeling of purpose, he wrapped himself in his blanket, dug into the couch, and began to read. The first chapter was entitled Homes, Social Structure, Customs and Celebrations. The going was slow. There was much he did not understand, given his poor handle on the language. He had just begun the section dealing with religion when Dunn's whistle filled the passage. He had read through the night. Hiding the book under his shirt, he slipped back into his room before many pairs of curious eyes found him. Strangely, he did not fall asleep during his classes. That night, during his study session, he continued where he had left off, and finished the section on religion. He turned to the next section. Sacrifices. His heart began to pound as he skimmed over the words. It was as he had feared. On Olnoy, they did not sacrifice goats or cattle. He closed the book and closed his mind to the persistent voice. He was not ready for this. Would he ever be? 
It took him a long time to fall asleep that night, but when he did, he dreamed immediately. He saw the chapter clearly before him. Sacrifices was written boldly across the page, and the same voice called him to read. In his dream he shouted, But I can't! The pain! Courage! The voice replied. Then he awoke. As before, it was dark. Muttering, he tore himself away from the warm cocoon of his bed, gathered the book, blanket, and lamp, and padded over the icy flagstones back to the study nook. After settling down and wrapping the blanket until there were none of those little breezy gaps, he began to read, thinking what a ridiculous, meaningless, and injurious waste of hours this was. He knew he needed the toughening, understood the value of the exercise, but was beginning to doubt if this was the most effective approach. Nevertheless, he pushed his eyes along. The words on the page made him wince, as if each one was a knife stabbing out at him. He was so desperate to fend off the meaning that he almost missed a sentence hidden within the awful details, but the further he moved from it, the more it tugged him back until he left his place and returned to the nagging line. Vranenim Schlago lag Buin. As with much of what he was reading, he only grasped part of the idea. Vran was women. Vranenim, he assumed with a shiver, were the female sacrificial victims, or supposed volunteers. He didn't care. Lag, must. Slago, age. But Shreta Buin meant nothing to him. At first the words drifted in his tired thoughts, disconnected, irrelevant. Then, like shards of magnetized iron, they began to snap together and formed an idea, an idea that sprang from the page and struck him full in the depths of his sleepy mind, shattering his drowsiness. He gasped, a sudden wheezing gasp, as if a great vat of icy water had been emptied over his head. The couch skidded back into the wall with a thump as he lurched to his feet, dropping the book and tipping the lantern so that it smashed on the floor and went out. He didn't even notice. His eyes grew wide, and his twitching mouth opened further as the thought took hold of him. Snatching up the book, he took off down the passage at a speed that set the paintings rattling in his wake. By the time the blanket had crumpled to the ground, he was out of sight. Never had he covered the distance to Fergal's office so quickly. In his haste, he flung the covering boards right off the platform in the display room, but he was already darting down the stairs by the time they banged against the floor. Even if he had stood on one of the trigger steps, the trap would have opened on nothing more than his dust. Fergal! Fergal! he shouted as he flew along the dark corridor and whipped under the archways. He did not wait for an answer. He knocked and opened the door in one movement and came to a quivering stop in the office that apparently never slept. Aiden, what manner of— Aiden ignored him and interrupted. Fergal, what does Shretebuin mean? It's lacron for a number or an age. I need to know. Now. Please. Fergal sat back in his large chair, 
aiming a severe look at the young intruder. But then the raised eyebrows settled down again. It is neither a number nor an age, he said, but a ceremony that represents both. It is the entry into womanhood, which for Lecrans happens at the age of eighteen. Now, before we go any further, I insist on knowing what this is about. Aidan was pale, and looked very much like he was about to drop to the ground. Quinn deceived us, he whispered. Calry is alive. Then he did drop to the ground, and woke a little while later to see Fergal holding a bottle under his nose. His nostrils were complaining about red-hot pins. The big man helped him to a couch, then sat back in his own chair and faced Aidan. A soft whisper of fire and a quiet pop from a burning log were all that disturbed the silence for a while. Fergal would be the last person to feel the need to fill it with words. Read me the section, he said, looking with disapproval at the book that showed the corner of a page sticking out where it should not be, and a small stream of oil running down the cover. Aidan did not see any of this. He found the page easily. It was the one that had been folded when the book dropped at his feet. He read the line and looked at Fergal with desperate, expectant eyes. The wait was the worst torture he had ever known. Fergal, please, say something. Fergal glanced up from the fire. It must be so, he said. The man who wrote that book was both trustworthy and knowledgeable. Quinn, on the other hand, has nothing to recommend him. All you told me of him suggests that an honest message would be something out of character. Perhaps it was his intention to ensure that there would be no pursuit, though Olnoy is considered by many to be less assailable than an Eyrie. I don't care how unassailable it is, Aidan said, standing. I'm assailing it. Sit down, Aidan. I did not say there was no hope, but the difficulty is something extreme. Set, set. Too much haste and fire, and you'll burn down the stable instead of mounting a rescue. Aidan sat, though everything in him cried out against it. His whole mind and body were shivering with suppressed energy. Fergal looked across into the fire, twisting little ragged ropes in his beard. And when he spoke, Aidan could not believe what he heard. Chapter 65 A year? You want me to prepare for a year? He cried, jumping to his feet again. Fergal motioned and waited again for him to sit. Two years would be better, but as I recall, she is a little older than you. What will her age be on this coming Midsummer's Day? Seventeen. That's when the sacrifices are held. So she is safe this year, but will be called upon in about a year and a half. Travel and the actual attempt to save her will take a few months, and you won't want to time it so that you arrive on the day, which takes off at least six months. You will need to be there by the beginning of winter. That gives you just under a year to prepare. But what if they move early? What if they get her age wrong? These people are very particular over such details. 
they're not likely to make a mistake. That is fairly certain. But what is absolutely certain is that if you move early, you will throw away your only chance. On the Lecheren Isles, Olnoy in particular, foreigners who are not slaves are made into slaves as a matter of law. You open your mouth and say one word that holds a foreign accent, or show an ignorance of one of the many strange customs, and it is all over. For both of you. He paused to let the words sink in before continuing. The layout of the island is not favourable for a sneak spy and snatch operation. There is forest in the western reaches, but everyone lives on the east side, where there is almost no cover. You will have to move in the open, through their society. I won't conceal from you the fact that even with a year's preparation, taking a sacrificial tribute from Olnoy will be like stealing a fish from the jaws of a bear. I will aid you, but in rebellion against the fear that I am sending you to your doom. Aidan began to understand that he would not be leaving that night. I'm assuming you have paid little attention in your Lecran classes, said Fergal. Aidan avoided his look. So you have a considerable amount of learning to do in a relatively short time. But there is another problem. Aidan raised his eyes. Prince Burkhart is not likely to let you go. But... Fergal hushed him with a wave. Which means that we will need to be careful about how we get you out of here. You will also need help on Lekrau. I recommend asking Tyne. She has been posted on one of those islands before. She is fluent in the language and knows the culture. Why would you help me do something that the prince would oppose? Because, since Burkhart betrayed us all, my allegiance is to his father, the king, and I know that the king would approve of sending you, partly for calories' sake and partly because it is time that we begin to strike back at Lekrau. For too long we have presented that nation with a soft belly. An invitation. The thing is, Aidan, you don't know the full truth. Reports of Lekran raids have been suppressed by Burkhart's direct orders. Many more were taken this past year than in previous years. If you are successful, we will learn much that could be used against the slavers. Burkhart sees only the immediate threat of the Fen, and has pulled all resources from watching Lekrau. I believe that this is short-sighted and may cost us dearly. So I shall not only aid you, but see that you are commissioned, though Burkhart will probably overrule the commission if he learns of it. I'll provide whatever resources the Academy can offer, and Osric will no doubt be able to supply a good deal more. It's starting to sound like a big operation. How will we keep it all hidden? I have a few ideas, Fergal said and turned back to the fire. Aidan knew from the rough treatment the beard was getting that something was amiss. What is it? Aidan asked. This is not going to work. Aidan began to interrupt, and Fergal glared him to silence from beneath the bristling eyebrows. This is not going to work if you simply add Lecran studies to your current program. You have less than a year. Less than one year, Aidan. In any of your languages, have you ever approached native fluency in that time? 
Aiden knew he was not required to answer. And it's not just the words of the language. It's the whole culture. You need to be Lekran. The opinions you have of national figures and their deeds. The foods you prefer and how you like them done. Your favorite jokes. Your attitude towards slaves. And how you react to them when you see them mistreated on the road. After Krunvar, there is no nation whose ways are so unnatural to us. No nation where our habits and manners stand out so clearly. Quinn succeeded. That's just it. He did not. You and Calorie found him out. What if you encounter curious children on Olnoy? I understand all this, but what choice do I have? Fergal leaned towards the fire, putting his elbows on the armrests. The only way I see that offers a reasonable chance, he said, is a way that will cost you everything you have worked for. You will need to give up your studies and your ambitions to become a Grey Marshal. Your preparation will need to be full-time, and the program will take you to your limits and beyond. You will lose a year, and then much of the following year in your attempt to locate and bring Calry back. By the time you return to Castith, if you do, I doubt even I could get you back into your current position. Aidan looked confused. Fergal, do you really think that would give me even an instant of hesitation? Fergal's eyes crinkled and the beard moved, betraying the hidden smile. An excellent reply, he said. He looked from under the hedges a while. I believe you will succeed, young Aidan. Tomorrow I shall speak to your masters and explain that I have appointed you as my assistant, whom I will personally train. You will continue your classes with Dunn, and one or two other subjects that might prove useful to you, but the rest will come to an end. From tomorrow you will begin to learn, at frightening speed, how to be Lekran. Can I not begin now? Fergal laughed, and, after brief consideration, pointed to the red volume. Finish it by morning, he said. We'll go through it in greater detail again when you have a better grasp of the language. Try to get at least an hour's sleep. You thought the marshal's program was demanding. Aidan was already on his feet. One more thing, said Fergal. Don't tell anyone. Not yet. If these plans reach the wrong ears, we could both be tried for intended desertion. You have a form of military training, and this is a time of war preparation. Remember that. It tastes like raw fish entrails. Quite correct. Raw fish entrails tend to do that. Now, have another mouthful and try to get this one down. Burgle was merciless. Where he had obtained the hideous grey mush, Aidan did not care to know. But the fact remained that this was a lecheran delicacy, and one that he would need to be able to devour with relish in front of watchful eyes. He made another attempt gagged and ejected it into the bucket. Fergal sighed. Try to think of steak while chewing. I can't. The taste is too convincing. Well, you'll have to find some way of getting it down. You'll need some breakfast in you. Don't the lecherans eat bread? 
Of course. But swallowing bread is a skill you already have. Now, do you want to learn or not? Aidan gripped the bowl, held it to his lips and tipped, swallowing in great gulps and trying not to think at all. When he replaced the bowl on the table, there was a moment of uncertainty as he hovered over the bucket, neck and shoulders twitching. But, miraculously, it all stayed down. Good, said Fergal. When Don has finished with you, I want you back here and ready to study like never before. Aidan jogged away on shaky legs, looking as green as the sea that was washing around inside him. He had broken the news to his dorm before breakfast that he had been appointed as an assistant to one of the senior clerks. They had looked at him as if he had lost his mind. He'd seen surprise, confusion, and sadness in their faces, and it had hurt more than expected. During the training session, he had to answer, or rather parry, several more questions. Warchen, to Aidan's surprise, was openly upset. He actually seemed angry. Even Cade frowned. Malik was the only one who looked pleased. Aidan wished that he could tell them everything, but Fergal's warning rang in his ears like a tower bell. When he got back from Dunn's class, the fishy dish had settled, and he braced himself for the next obstacle. Fergal unlocked a heavy door at the back of his office and pushed it. It swung open with a sigh, admitting a cool breath of air that was heavy with leather and paper and deep thought. Aidan stepped through onto a walkway overlooking the biggest library he had ever imagined. Four levels of book-filled balconies ran around the circumference, and on the vast floor beneath, stepladders and even movable staircases enabled dwarfed figures to scale the towering islands filled with honeycombs of scrolls. This, said Fergal, is where the masters and approved senior students draw the knowledge that is delivered in the classes. Many of these books are uncopied originals. All of them are important. You will be spending a large portion of your time here with Lecran histories, folk tales, plays, songs, and plenty more. The real beauty of it is that most of the volumes have been written by Lecrans. If you are to learn to behave like one of them, you need to think like one of them, which means that you must now study from their perspective, not ours. I thought that kind of writing was kept away from the public, censored. It is, but this is not a public library. You will find a lot here that will turn you red with anger. Foreign opinions of us can be very offensive. You had best get over your reactions. Those would give you away quickly indeed. Let me take you to your section. They were on the highest of the balconies. Fergal led the way along a book-lined wall to a turret stairway that appeared to be made of solid brass. They descended one level and walked to the far corner. Regularly placed lamps cast a good light, and Aidan was able to make out the titles and sequential numbers on spines. Roughly between these two pillars, Fergal said, indicating a collection of perhaps five hundred books, some of them almost as thick as the stone pillars themselves. Did you finish the first book? Yes, but 
There is a lot I didn't understand. That was to be expected. I suggest that you start with three collections of children's stories, followed by three of popular folk tales. These are things every lecheran would know, things you cannot afford to pass over. They will also help you with your grasp of the language on a foundational level. There are three lecheran to thernish dictionaries. You may keep one with you, but it would be better for you to use the straight lecheran dictionary as soon as you're able. How large is your current lecheran vocabulary? Maybe four hundred words and another two hundred that are vague. By the end of two weeks, I want you at a thousand. That's in the region of forty words a day. Write down every new word along with a phonetic, all the meanings, and space for several examples of how it can be used. You are not to avoid a single word in the children's stories or the folk tales. Those are the words that form the basis of a language. Words you need to fall back on without hesitation. I will aid you with pronunciation and syntax. You will spend an hour every day with Colis and an hour with Tyne. Fergal ignored Aidan's look of displeasure at the mention of Colis. From now on you will speak to all of us in Lecran only. With this, Fergal switched seamlessly into the language, and Aidan had to concentrate to follow the next words. Olin Myrta now Lekrar. Your food will be lecran, and you will not only eat it but learn to prepare it. I've had arrangements made so that you can still take your meals in the company of your friends, though they will probably find them strange. What Aidan heard was Your food will lecran, and you will not eat it but learn it. I made you Meals of your friends. We'll find them strange. One possible meaning of this was strange indeed. Fergal placed his reading lantern on one of the large desks that stood against the balcony railing. The assistant's desk in my office is now yours. I expect it to be cluttered with books before the hour is up. He walked away and left Aidan to stare, bewildered, swaying slightly as the enormity of what he had undertaken began to settle on him. When the giddiness passed, he took a hold of himself and attacked the shelves, skimming over titles until he found the section of children's literature. He selected a weighty volume that cracked open and released a puff of dust. The pages were dark with age, but the script was neat and easy to follow. He picked a few more collections, and after much searching, found two dictionaries, then staggered back to the office beneath the pile of books, lamp balanced on top. Fergal insisted that Aidan interrupt him for help with pronunciations after every tenth word he wrote down. It was a language with difficult sounds, requiring all manner of unfamiliar contortions of tongue and lips to form the complex vowels. The day went slowly. Lecran folk stories were strange, full of sea monsters that crawled up onto the shore in the forms of serpents or jelly-like masses with hundreds of creeping tentacles. The heroes, if the illustrations were to be trusted, scoffed at armor or anything else that interfered with the display of their muscles. They donned only loincloths and attacked the beasts with only spears, 
Most of the stories had similar themes to the ones Aiden had grown up with, but the way the themes were illustrated was alien, sometimes amusing, and often disturbing. It seemed to be a culture where strength and domination were honoured. Kindness and mercy made few appearances. Very good, said Fergal, when Aidan explained these observations. You are quite right, but I advise you not to share that with your dinner hosts tonight. Aidan looked back wordlessly. For fifth and sixth foreign languages, they had not yet been required to socialize with native speakers. You didn't think you would be able to prepare in the comfortable isolation of study without actually meeting the people themselves. But I... Aidan could not put the lecran words together quickly enough, and Fergal ploughed on. The sooner you put aside your barrier of prejudice, the better. These are good people I'm sending you to. Getting to know and appreciate them will help to close the distance you would otherwise preserve between yourself and the subjects of your studies. That was the beginning and end of the argument. Every night from then on, Aidan dined with the Lecran families that Fergal knew. There were four families. Two came from wealth and two from more indigent circumstances. These were people who had been granted citizenship of limited rights in exchange for political favours. They were essentially traitors to their homeland, but they were natives of Lekrau and had not forgotten the customs of their people. Aidan rotated through the families, dining as a Lekran every night of the week. The initial warmth of welcome and the self-consciousness of entertaining a stranger caused his hosts to suppress many cultural peculiarities, but soon these began to show through. He noticed how the women's roles were more subordinate, how children never dared to interrupt, how the father determined what was funny or interesting, how this was never challenged, how nobody was ever thanked for doing what was perceived to be a duty, and a hundred other social currents that no book would have properly revealed. Yet beneath it all he perceived a comfort with the customs, or perhaps just an unwillingness to challenge them. But no matter how familiar they became, some of these social norms continued to feel wrong to him. A number of the dishes were as strange as that first breakfast Fergal had prepared. Aidan had more than one desperate moment when getting the food down was only a shade less difficult than swallowing bricks. By sheer force of will, he avoided humiliating himself. He even began to like some of the peculiar foods. One of the more unsettling lessons he learned was never to touch the women. After Aidan took an embarrassed woman's hand in greeting, her husband drew him aside and explained that taking an unmarried woman's hand was akin to a proposal of marriage, and touching another man's wife was an insult only atoned for with blood. Aidan understood by this that a significant quantity of blood would be required. He apologized profusely and never repeated the mistake. It was a stark warning of how easily a cultural blunder could ruin everything once he was on Lecran soil. Fergal, Aidan began, after returning from one of these dinners. I have something I want to do, and I think I can convince you, but you're not going to like it. Chapter 66 
The first spring winds rushed in from across the plain, carrying a stream of dead leaves, wheat husks, and dizzy midges that tumbled past the five people sitting on the west wall. The early sun was just cresting the hill. It warmed their backs and threw long shadows out over the grassy expanse. As the parapets here had not been completed, they were able to sit side by side on the broad surface, with their feet dangling. Thank you, Liru said, squeezing Aidan's arm. You already know my answer. And mine, said Peashot, as he leaned forward, puffed into the tube, and sat back with a slightly tilted head to better appreciate the yell of pain from below. Adley, said Aiden. I have a few questions. While he was all momentum when following his own instincts, he had shown a curious tendency to think a good deal more about others' plans. Ask away, said Aiden. It wasn't the first time Hadley was cross-examining his ideas. Firstly, why take so many? Doesn't that make it harder to move unnoticed? In Thierna, yes. But on the Lecran Isles, it is different. The more slaves people have, the more important they are, and the less they're interfered with, up to a point. Tyne has seen it herself. She was posted there for a year. It's just like that, she said. All right. Then how did you convince this Fergal to include us? Taking two martial apprentices and Liru out of training for the duration of the rescue is a big cost. I don't see how he can justify it for the rescue of two girls, who can't really be of any help to Castiff. What did you promise him? Aidan laughed. I didn't offer you as a library slave, if that's what you are worried about. I told him that Liru's sister would be a potential source of information, valuable to Castiff, and to find her, we need Liru. I also said that with you and Peashot along, sabotage becomes feasible. Sabotage? Peashot's face lit up. Hadley's grinned. Exactly what are we going to sabotage? I'd like to destroy all their sacrificial temples and sink every one of their slave ships. That would be a good start. I'm sure you'd also like to fly. Even if we only sink one ship, Aidan said this time without humour. It will more than pay back our absence from Castiff. There is a retired captain who is going to give us some instruction on Lecran ports and ship design, and how to cause the most damage with limited tools. That sounds reasonable. My last question, then. Will we be able to come back? The orders will be official, said Aidan. General Osric himself will sign them. But it's complicated. We are fairly sure Prince Burkhart would try to stop us if he found out. He's too short-sighted to see the advantages of something like this, and too insecure to attempt anything that might anger the Lecrans. We won't directly break any laws by leaving, but we'll be slipping between them on the way out, and coming back might be complicated. Burkhart is a two-faced, lying, murderous coward who needs a lashing from his father. Peashot mumbled. Liru told me what he tried to do to you two. Everyone was quite happy to let these words hang in the air, unchallenged. At worst, 
Aiden resumed. We could be arrested on our return. I know of two soldiers who are made to disappear without any trial or official record. So it's dangerous. At best, you'll lose a year of your studies. Peashot almost looked bored with the details. Aiden guessed he'd be making the journey with them, even if he was guaranteed an execution on his return. Hadley was done thinking. That toppling look came into his eyes. I doubt the worst case is likely, he said. Dropping back a year doesn't look so bad either. You're going to drop back too if you don't lose your place altogether. And Lorimer has been skimming through by magic. He's due to fail about now. I'd go anyway, but it's nice to know I won't be alone afterwards. I'm in. Only thing that's going to annoy me now is the waiting. Couldn't Lorimer come? asked Peashot. His height would draw too much attention, Aiden said. Think how tall he'll be in another year. And Vale wouldn't want to go. We all know how difficult it is just to get him to drop whatever he's reading and actually do something. Hadley and Peashot laughed. Vale had earned himself the reputation. He preferred contemplating plans to implementing them. He was roughly Hadley's opposite. Also, said Tyne, with Liru's sister, Aiden and I will have four slaves when we reach Ulnoy. Any more could begin to make us look more important than we can afford. Unusually wealthy strangers will tend to be noticed more. So you think we make good slaves, said Peashot, loading another stone with a mean smirk. Rotten slave, said Aiden. Good saboteur. What language is that? Yours, blockhead. It means someone who sabotages, you know, breaks stuff. You're good at that. Good, Hadley said. Complete genius is more like it. So are we all agreed? Aiden looked around. They all agreed, except Peashot, who was taking aim. Liru flicked his ear, and that brought him back. Ouch! Yes, yes, of course I'm in blockheads. Sorry, Tyne, I didn't mean you. Ouch! Or you, Liru! Then remember that if a word of this gets out, it's all over. Try to get as fluent as you can in Lecran. As slaves, you will not be expected to sound like natives. But the more pairs of working ears we have, the better. Also, get used to Lecran weapons. We won't take any of our own. I hope we don't need to fight, but if we do, you don't want to discover in the moment that their blades are shorter and heavier, and the crossbows have a very tricky latch. Lecrans also have some strange weapons that are in the upper racks in the weapons hall. I'll speak to Fergal. Maybe he can nudge Master Dunn to teach us how to use them. Lecrau is, after all, a constant threat. Aidan and Peashot lingered after the others had left. Aidan because Fergal did not expect him back immediately. Peashot because he never cared much what any of the masters expected from him. He hadn't been in trouble for almost a fortnight, and some disturbance was due. They talked of this and that, Fenlor, Classes, Mern, Liru and Callery. But no matter what they spoke of, it was Callery who filled Aidan's mind and butterflies and birds and storms crashed about in his belly. Peashot aimed, puffed, and scooted back to savor another bark of pain. You are different since Kultum, he said. 
You don't walk around looking like you have a dagger up your sleeve and a score to settle. Liru says you look stronger. I just think it looks like you aren't taking your daily draught of poison, whatever it was. Close enough. She thinks something happened to you in the lightning. What was it? Aidan thought for a while. It wasn't something, he said. It was someone. To be plain, I'm still trying to understand it myself. I think the lightning was only a doorway, just like my dreams have been lately. You're not going to start blabbing like those diviners our prince has on every street corner. Aidan laughed. If I do, please hit me very hard. With pleasure, said Peashot, clicking his knuckles. But don't you think you could have imagined the whole experience? Shock or something? If you were there, you'd understand why it couldn't have been anything like that. Ever had that experience when you wake up and it's snowing in the night? Maybe you even walk out and let it land on your shoulders. But by morning, it's all melted. The only person who saw the proof was you. The only proof you can give anyone else is that you're convinced it was real. That's what it's like for me. I know I've got a strong imagination, but this was far, far beyond anything my imagination can produce. You're not talking it up? The way people do about things they own or places they've been? I'm not talking it up or making it better than it was. I can't even get close to what it was like. It was better than anything else I know. Even better than Calry? Peshot grinned. Aidan felt the blood rush to his face. He tried not to smile. It was hopeless. I would have to say yes, but it was better in a different way. What's she like? It was a question to breach a damn wall. Aidan took a deep breath. She's what I wanted Elona to be. She really is the kindest and sweetest person I know. Huh, <laughs> Peashot interrupted. So where does that put me? Last, idiot. Peashot smirked. Calorie always used to make me want to be nicer to others because she made it look so good. Being kind to people made her happy. To see it was really something. And it wasn't just people. I remember that time I walked through town with Ilona, and there was a donkey braying because it couldn't reach the stand of cabbages. I secretly wanted to go buy it one, but I had a feeling Ilona would have rolled her eyes at me. That's the difference. Calorie wouldn't have been able to enjoy herself without doing something for the hungry donkey, and she would have run down to the market with me, shared the cost, and smiled all the way home. Pretty? Aidan laughed. Not in the same way as Alona. Alona's a rose or something sophisticated. Calorie's more like a wildflower. A simpler kind of beauty. But it felt more complete. More honest. When she smiled at me, it was like being hugged. It wasn't just the way she looked. Her thoughts were... Let me put it this way. Conversations with her were like magical journeys. There was also something about the way she spoke, like a kind of singing in her voice that brought everything she said to life. You should have seen the way babies would listen to her. Big, eager eyes, spellbound. There was one thing everyone used to tease her about. It was her messy hair. But I remember it as threaded with trapped sunlight and she had these laughing hazel eyes, 
more brown than green, as soft and warm as rich tilled earth baking in the sun of a spring morning. Ugh, stop! What's with all the poetry? All you had to say was, yes, she's pretty. I can just see you and Lorimer bent over the lines you've obviously been composing, sniffing and weeping and... Aidan lurched over and snapped a solid punch at an unguarded shoulder. It brought Peashot's mockery to an abrupt end, and he leaned back, probing the damage to his freshly bitten tongue. He drew his finger out and brightened when he saw a little blood. I suppose I'd best get going, he said. Classes feel weird now that you are missing. Even Malik commented on it. Oh? What did he say? Something that earned him a gut punch. You don't have to fight my battles. Peashot frowned. What's that got to do with it? Think I would miss an opportunity like that? It was truffle pudding. Is that where you got the mark under your eye? Pathetic, isn't it? I thought I would at least get a nice blue plum. All he could manage was this little sissy bruise. Looks like a coal smudge. Aidan laughed. You just don't mind pain, do you? Sometimes I'm convinced it actually makes you comfortable. He shot smirked. Well, said Aidan, thanks for giving Malik my regards. Sure, I'll see you at lunch. Can't wait to smell what they put in front of you today. That grey thing you ate yesterday had us all checking under our shoes. Better get used to it. What do you think you're going to eat in Lecro? He shot grumbled and sauntered off. For a while, Aidan sat, letting the wind gust around and buffet his shoulders. He thought about how he had changed since Kultum, and wondered if he might have been able to overcome the crippling fear on his own, the way Osric had described. Maybe it was possible. Pride might have enjoyed claiming the boast, that he had carved a way through his afflictions unaided. But where was the sense in such a boast? Why swim an ocean when offered passage on a ship? It was beginning to feel, though, that his encounter with the Ancient was no mere favouring, but a summoning and equipping. The equipping, he suspected, would be altogether crucial to any chance of success on the Lecran Isles. He looked up over the nearby walls and spires of the knife-like Pelamine range. Then he raised his eyes to the young blue of the morning sky. As he did so, Something in his chest blazed. His hands and feet prickled with that peculiar feeling, as though the air around them was no longer air, but something else. This was the fourth or fifth time it had happened since the lightning strike, and it gave him the strangest feeling that something about him was changing, being transformed in a way that his friends had not yet seen, and that not even Fergal would comprehend. He had a sudden urge to leap out from the wall, not to fall, but to travel, to glide. The sensation was so strong that he moved away from the edge and pressed his back against a large block of stone. Thoughts like these were dangerous. When the tingling had gone, he drew out the little leather-encased journal. He never looked at it unless he was alone. It had a trick of drawing tears. Now that he knew Calry to be alive, 
he wasn't too sure if he should read it anymore. After a small inner battle, his scruples were defeated. He promised himself, though, that it would be the last time. There were two entries he wanted to pay a last visit. He found the first and began to read. Remember when we found that cave in Nimlis, and there was that huge claw sticking out of a pile of rocks we couldn't move? Well, that day I realized that wonderful, terrible, incredible things were actually possible, because that claw had to have belonged to a real animal big enough to eat crows or trees for breakfast. I hope it preferred trees. And it wasn't a pretend discovery, no matter what Emroy and my father and my tutor said when I told them. This doesn't mean that I think pretend discoveries aren't important. It's just that a pretend discovery can't actually bite you. Can you imagine if we could have lived in times when enormous animals like that were alive? I know trolls and dragons and all those are made up, I think. But imagine if there were creatures just as spectacular. I'm really going to have to ask your mum about this word. That were actually walking around and we had to run away from them, unless maybe, hopefully, we could make friends with them. Now this brings me back to what I wrote in my last entry, about the song that I can sense all around me. It's like the earth and the trees and the birds and the flies. No, not the flies, but everything else is excited about something. Everyone would laugh at me if I said it, but I think there is some huge and ancient power breathing into the world the same way we blow on little sparks to make a fire. Remember that exquisite storm you told me about that happened over Nimlis that one time? And ever since then, Nimlis has felt all tingly and mysterious. From what travellers are saying, it sounds like those storms are also over Danielin. Maybe they'll move over the whole world. I'm sure they're changing things. Just imagining what could happen is already making me full of jumps and squeals. I can't even describe the feeling I have about it. How do you describe something indescribable? I read somewhere that the best word for things that are bigger than words is wonder. It's now my favourite word, and I need it here because I think the time we are living in is going to be a dawn of wonder, the beginning of something incredible, a time of mysteries and legends and heroes, just like in the old stories. If that's what's about to happen, then I'm going to be excited and scared, and you're going to have to let me hold your hand. Just please don't spit in it first. Aidan grinned at that. He wondered now for the first time if the claw had really belonged to a dead animal. They had prodded and tugged and wrestled to pull it free. What had really lain behind that screen of rocks? A skeleton? Or something in a deep sleep? The second entry he wanted to read had broken his heart at the time, and now called to him like the sounds of a celebration. He found the page and angled it so that the morning sun reflected off paper that was stained thumbed, creased, and crinkled from more than one soaking. Around the edges, ink had run into little rivulets and pools, now dried, but the young handwriting he knew so well was still legible. Dear Aidan, 
You weren't at Badgerfields today, so I played hide-and-seek with Thomas and Dara. I decided to hide in the forest, and I went in a bit too deep. At first it was fun practicing all those bird calls we've been learning, and hooting into my fist like an owl. I'm getting really good now. But then I realized it was too quiet, and I got muddled trying to find the way home. By the time I got out again it was dark, and I was horribly frightened. I'm scared that one day I might get so lost that nobody will find me. I thought that was going to happen today. It made me think about that story of the little boy who wandered into Nimlis and he was given up for lost by the end of the week. I think most people were just too scared to go and look for him properly. I wouldn't have been scared if you had been there. You can find anything. I'll never forget the day you took me along a fox trail and we actually saw the fox and her cubs. I don't know how you see prints from those little scuffs in the dirt. I actually thought you were making it up until the vixen growled. I suppose it's silly to write this in my diary, but I'm going to one day ask you to promise me that, if I'm ever so lost in the forest that nobody even knows where to start, you will look for me, until you find me. I'll draw flowers in the earth and arrange pine cones like hearts, you know, all that girly stuff you tease me about. Then you'll know it's me, and not some bandit's trail. I'll have to tell you one of these days. When you set out, please bring some of Dorothy's muffins, because there's nothing to eat in most places that are any good for getting lost in. So I'll probably be starving. But don't wait for her to cook new ones. Just take whatever is in the cupboard. And bring my wool jersey, too. The old blue one with the holes in the elbows. It's probably going to be lying under the bed, or dangling over the chair, or hiding under something. Ask Julia to dig for it. Just so you know, I'm not asking you to do all this only because you're good at finding things. It's because when I get rescued, I want it to be you. It was sort of weird when your father found me once. If I see Emroy first, I think I'll pretend not to see him and stay lost until someone else comes along. He tried to kiss me one time, and when I pushed him away, he raised his arm like he would hit me. I didn't tell you because I knew you would go and punch him in the face, and then he would have tried to use that horrible cane on your head. He really is not a nice boy. He is not allowed to be part of my rescue. I'm very fussy about this. It has to be you because I want to be found by someone, you know, like a princess being found by a prince. I haven't forgotten that you always made your nose go like wrinkled dead frog skin when those parts of the stories came along. But this is my rescue, so I get to say how it happens. If I cry, it will be because I'm happy to bursting. Just remember that. You'll spoil the magic if you ask what's wrong. I have to go. Dinner's ready. Don't forget about the muffins. Aidan closed the diary for the last time and slipped it back into its cover. And for the first time, there were no tears. He held it before him and looked again at the image on the case. The toadstool and the sapling. He still remembered asking her what it meant and hadn't forgot her answer. 
Oh, Aiden, I'd spoil it all if I told you what I think it means before you've had a chance to think too. A mystery is so much more exciting than a wrapped-up answer, wouldn't you say? A mystery carries on, but an answer just ends. The following day, Aiden had told her that he'd thought about it and decided it meant slow beginnings were not so bad because the sapling would outgrow the toadstool. Then he demanded her interpretation. Maybe, she said, with one of her thoughtful, faraway smiles. But what if it's a toadstool, like the pearl nut tree? When I look, I imagine the remains of a tiny picnic under the sapling, and the hasty footprints of the silver dwarf. On the ground are little holes where his sword and arrows were pushed into the ground, just so he could be ready in case of danger. There's a concealed hatch in the side of the toadstool that has been slammed tight, and the grass is starting to move as a wicked creeper approaches, awake like the pearl nut tree, only in a dangerous way. It's a story, an adventure, and it's just beginning. So it is, Aidan whispered, as he got to his feet and looked out to the west. Out there, far away, was Lekrow and somewhere on the northmost island, she was captive. He wished he could say something to the wind and have it carry the message to her. He raised his eyes to the sky again. I'm not sure if you can hear me, he said, but I don't really think you need a storm to carry you around. And I'm not sure if I can ask you this, but I can't see that you would be angry. So would you mind telling her somehow that I'm getting ready to find her? There was no rumbling answer, but neither did he have that awkward feeling of having spoken to nothing. With a deep breath, full and rich, Aidan turned around and looked at the protruding rungs of the long, shuddering ladder he had climbed in order to gain the top of the wall. His feet and hands began tingling again, and in a sudden flood of something he could not define and dared not contain, he sprinted past the ladder and leapt off the wall. He hurtled out over an awful drop that was now inevitable. It would be a landing to crush every bone in his legs. But whatever it was that had blazed in him earlier now flared up again. He spread his arms and pulled down on the air as it whistled past. It caught in his fingers, almost like water. And he slowed. Slightly, but enough. He landed with a solid thud. Dust leapt from the ground, but his legs did not buckle. They felt strong. He felt strong, though he lacked even the beginnings of an explanation. A stonemason had been working nearby. He was no longer working. His mouth hinged open. A chisel dropped from his grasp unnoticed and clinked into the debris of chippings and rubble. Aidan stood up from his crouch, peering at his hands and feet with dawning astonishment. Gradually he became aware of the stonemason and realized he was the object of the man's gaping stare. So he nodded a greeting and jogged away, a slow smile growing across his face. 
He had a book to finish today. He would make it two. You have been listening to Dawn of Wonder, Book One of The Wakening. Produced by Greg Lawrence. Executive Producers James Ton and Greg Lawrence. Text Copyright 2015 by Jonathan Renshaw. Production Copyright 2015 by Podium Publishing. All rights reserved. If you enjoyed this audiobook, let us know. Take a quick moment to rate and review it on Audible, so we know we're bringing you audiobooks you'll love. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.